Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Telus. This is being broadcasted live and recorded live on January 1st, 2022. The time right now, 8.06 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. You probably know why we opened with that song, the Golden Girls theme. The last Golden Girl has passed away. Three of the four of them have been dead for over 10 years. But the last one hung on for a long time. Actually, the oldest one, Betty White died just 17 days short of her 100th birthday. Kind of similar to Bob Hope, who did make it to 100, but they had to cancel his big 100th birthday bash because he was in really bad condition, and a very short time after his 100th birthday, he died. So Betty White did not make it to 100. Three of the four Golden Girls were actually very close to the same age, including... The one who played the mom, Estelle Getty, who played uh, Sophia Petrillo, was actually not even the oldest one. She was the third oldest of the four. They were all pretty close in age. They were all within a year and a half of each other. But Betty White was the oldest, and uh, she's about, I think, six months older than B. Arthur. But she lived a lot longer than all of them. So rest in peace, Betty White, very well-liked throughout Hollywood, kind of a uh, the grandmother figure of Hollywood for many years now. And it was not thought she was going to pass away really soon. I mean, she may have been sick, but this was not known. But of course, when you're near 100, it can happen anytime. We have a massive free roll right now. When I say massive, I don't mean $100. I don't mean $200. I don't mean... One million dollars. No, we have a free roll that is really, really big. One hundred billion dollars. I'm going to have trouble paying that one out. So we're going to have to scale it back a bit from a hundred billion. But seven hundred thirty dollars is the free roll. And it has already started, but you have time. Don't panic. You have some time. You have 16 more minutes to get in there. 25 minutes of late registration. It began at 8. Started a few minutes here uh, after the free roll began, which I was hoping not to do, but I was a little bit late getting uh, dinner, and I had to eat before this long show. But you can still get in. Now, don't ask me to validate your account. I, I gave a lot of warning about this. I announced this free roll well in advance. The reason for this big free roll is not New Year's Day though we are coming up on our 10-year anniversary of Poker Fraud Alert in two months. The occasion is a memorial, the memorial free roll 
for Mark Fusil, also known as Shoeshine Box, known as as uh, Robert Souza on Facebook. A lot of you knew him, a longtime Vegas gambling figure. He held a lot of jobs in the Las Vegas gambling community. Very, very well liked. Very good guy. Everyone loved him. A real character, but always nice. Always, always very nice and positive and earnest. And we talked about him last week. And if you want to hear my memorial for him last week, you can go back to the previous show and listen to that. We didn't have the memorial free roll. We didn't have the memorial free roll last week because the show was announced very hastily and I didn't want to have a big free roll like this with little notice. I also didn't want to have it at 10 Pacific time because that's too late. So we did it a little bit earlier, 8 Pacific time, and that allows this individual who is a big reason the free roll is $730. In fact, he's almost 50% of that reason. Calwatt, who gave $350 to this free roll. Thank you very much and hello. How you doing, Druff? Um, yeah, I mean, all I did was match what other people already donated, and thank you for running it in uh, Mark's honor. Yeah, that was very, very nice of you to give that, and uh, you've been very generous to the site in all of your time here, both with time for this radio show and also in uh, free roll donations, sometimes some very big ones, and I appreciate that very much, and uh, he's even posting on the forum recently. He's, he's getting a lot of uh, hassle from Dwy, but... Uh, Cal yeah, but that's to be expected, right? It, it is mean, to be expected, on. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, for a moment, I'm like, oh, no, is Dwight going to scare Cal Watt away? Go, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. No, Cal Watt's been around for a long time. He's not He's not going to be run off by Dwight. So, yeah, Cal Watt doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, it is going. You have 14 minutes left to get in there. But as I said, I'm not validating new accounts at this point. I, I gave everyone that chance, and I did get a few people in who otherwise may not have made it. And very quickly, the requirements are that you had to either have a registered form account in good standing, meaning you can't have your posts banned and the account can't be banned, uh, and it has to be registered as of January 1st, 2020 or before. So if you register at any time after January 1st, 2020, then you had to get special permission from me either in the past for past free rolls or in the present where you ask me and I say yes, and you'd have to explain to me why you have not registered for the forum this time and uh, that you've been either reading or listening anyway, and then I'd probably grant an exception. But it's too late for that. That's one way to... Those are the qualification rules. Also, you cannot owe any money to anyone who is a Poker Fraud Alert forum member. If you do, then you also don't qualify for the free money. And... Is that why you're not playing, or...? I'd, I'd rather not talk about that. <laughs> I, I, I do owe money to people some, for the previous free rolls. So I did pay out a bunch of them. I, I paid out a bunch of free roll prizes this past week, many of which were uh, a few months old. So apologize for the delay, but I did pay them out. And if you have not been paid in your owed money from the free roll, get to me soon, or I may have to roll it back into the prize pool, because after six months, at any point, I can roll it back in. I'll give a bit more time this time, because it took me a while to pay some people, so... Still, if you were owed money from the previous free roll and from this current free roll, which some people will be getting some big prizes, then uh, please let me know, especially older uh, debts. By the way, Dref, does the audio sound all right? The levels, everything's all good? I think so. Uh, all right. To me, you sound okay. Sometimes it's a little bit softer to the audience, but I'll, I'll be checking, and if, if I see a problem, I'll tell you to turn it up. 
so anyway, let me list who is uh, who has donated for this free roll, and then we will give you the prize pool. And it's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room as usual. Go to pokerfraudalert.com slash free roll to learn about qualifying for the free money, though the rules are a little different this week for that. Anyway, Calwad, I already mentioned, gave the biggest donation of 350 but we had two other three-figure donations. Reno, not the city of Reno, but the Poker Fraud Alert member Reno gave $104. Murray Rothbard gave $100. Thank you to him. Shoeshine Box, in anticipation of his own death, gave $20. Well, not, not exactly, but he did give $20. He uh, had won two $10 prizes in uh, the past, and because of my non-speediness in payment, unfortunately, he left this earth before I could pay him this final 20 So I decided, what better use of this 20 that he can't collect than to actually put it in the memorial free roll for him. Trader Ruski, who hopefully we'll have on tonight, gave 25. Jeff Dime, 34 from him. Blissey69, who I believe is from Australia, gave $15. Desert Runner, who is oddly banned from Poker Fraud Alert, but is a personal friend of mine. In fact, he can even play. He's the one exception here. He can play tonight, even though he's banned. Some We're still friends, even though he's banned. But uh, he... Gave $5. Joe D. gave $25. Jay Jammy gave 22 And finally, and this was the only one after Calwatt matched it. At that point, we were up to exactly 350 and Calwatt matched it. Then uh, later today, Manx gave $30 to make 730 So that's our $730 prize pool. Country 978 actually wanted to donate something else. And I said, you know what? I promoted everywhere at 730 and I don't feel like changing it. So... Uh, I just decided that's going to be what we stick with. But I appreciate Country's attempt to donate more, but I decided we're going to stick with 730. The the prizes, we're going to pay seven places this week. The first three are all three figures. First place is $350. That same 350 the Calwatt gave is all going to first. Second place, $180. Third place, $100. Now, these are bigger than what we have in just about every free roll. Even third place is better than first in most of our free rolls. So that's really nice. Fourth place, $50. That's sometimes our whole prize pool for the free roll. That's fourth place alone is 50 bucks. And then we're paying uh, fifth place, which we usually don't, $25. Sixth place, $15. And seventh place gets a whopping $10. But usually, if you finish in seventh place or sixth place or fifth place or often fourth place, your prize is a total of... Zero... Point zero. So that I'm not hearing the sound effects. Yeah, I, real, I realized that. I just as I was playing it, I'm like I forgot to enable sound effects for Calwatt. You should be able to hear them going forward. So anyway, seven places paid, and I appreciate the community opening up. And uh, it's kind of hard to have a memorial free roll because a free roll is a free roll. I, I changed the name of the free roll, as you'll see there. It's hard to have a free roll memorialize someone, but. He played in it. He liked the free roll. He loved the show. He liked the forum. This guy was very into Poker Fraud Alert, so much that when he would deal at tables that I was at, he would instruct everybody. I said this last week. He would instruct everybody to go find this show and listen to it. How many dealers would do that? So he really loved Poker Fraud Alert, and Poker Fraud Alert loved him, and he was a personal friend of mine, and his passing was 
very, very sad for me to learn about, even though I knew that he was very sick with cancer and that this basically could happen any time. So he passed Yeah, I on think a, a free roll is a very appropriate thing to uh, memorialize him. You know, he's a dealer and he, he loved the show. He loved the free world. So it's a really good thing you're doing. Yeah, and that's well, great what you did with all the money you donated. Uh, and I just want, I really wanted to do something like this for someone who was so into the site and participated so much. And, uh, you know, I, I had the whole memorial for him last week, but it's, it's actually kind of nice. We're actually doing it two weeks, two different things, and I feel he deserves that. So a lot of money at stake compared to usual this week on Poker Fraud Alert, and it is free money, by the way. This is not money that you'll be getting paid on ACR or some other site where you may not want it. This is free cash money that I can send to you by Zelle, by Cash App, by a bank transfer, by various cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash. I don't think Ethereum because the gas fees are too high, but if somehow they aren't, I can send it to you that way. And then other methods you can think of that you can send money around on the internet. You can PM me on the forum, Dan Space Druff, to claim your prize. And I'll try to get these out a little bit faster since these are bigger prizes. And I don't want to make people wait for $350 or $180. It just feels kind of weird. So I will pay these you faster. You got the money I sent you, right? We're good? It, it says I got it. I didn't actually claim it yet. But I, I, I know where to find you if uh, some, something goes wrong. So I'm, I'm going I'm, to Mexico. I'm willing to take the chance here that something went wrong with the payment. You know, some people, if they're going to send me money for a free roll, like they're going to send me 350, I'm going to grab it and make sure it's in my pocket before I announce it. But uh, with you, I'm willing to float a little bit of respect and say, you know what? I'll assume it's there. Though I did get a notification it's there. <laughs> Much obliged. Okay. So anyway, uh, if you want to call the show, as always, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s rotary phone which sits on top of Mount Charleston, which has a lot of snow right now. 702-430-1808. That's a separate line into the show. 702-430-1808. You cannot text that number, but you can call it. But if you'd like to text me, just text the main number, 775-372-8355. You can text me before, after, or during the show. And if it's uh, during the show, I may read your text on air. So... Make sure to state beforehand that I shouldn't read it on air if you're sending it during the show. Otherwise, I will assume it's not something to be read. But you can text me anytime. Really, really anytime. I'm not kidding. It's not something where I'm going to be offended that you're texting me too late or too early. Or I won't get on you for the topic being stupid. Like, I really am okay. The reason I give it out publicly is because I'm okay with texts from anyone. Only thing I ask is at least be somewhat polite. We have a chat room probably a little more active than usual yeah it is there's there's a number of people in there you can chat you can also chat in the poker room if you're playing right now but we have a chat room there's a number of people there i don't read it all that often but i do take a look every so often and uh it's probably better to text me if you have something to say but i do sometimes look at the chat it's more to chat with other people if you're listening live and it works with any device now it's very old it's about a 15 year old chat room so it hasn't been here for 15 years, but it, it was written in 2007. I had to make a few modifications so it would work with the site, but it was written in 2007. I will admit that, but it's fine. It works. Sometimes old stuff isn't bad stuff. If you want to listen to the show in the archives, you have a lot of ways to do it. We have iTunes. We have Google Podcasts. 
Stitcher, TuneIn. These are apps, of course, I'm talking about. TuneIn can also be used to listen to the live show. We have iHeartMedia, which is very big. Spotify, also very big. And the Bullhorn app. So a lot of different ways you can listen. You can usually even play or download an MP3 file of the show. And you can play an MP3 file from any device without any kind of external player. So that's a very easy way to listen. So just go to the radio tab on Poker Fraud Alert. All these ways are listed. You just click on whatever way you want, and it'll take you to the right place. And finally, I forgot to mention this, the call to listen line. That's a number you call and listen to the show. It's not a way to call in and talk to me, but it is a way to call in and listen to me. And it does not require a computer. It does not require a data plan. It does not require a smartphone or an app. No, 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 no. It's very old school. You just call up and listen. 605-313-0736 is the number the alternate number is 641-741-1095 it will never buffer it will never stream unlike all other streaming media i i, I said i'm, I'm not going to have this we're not going to allow buffering or freezing because i hate it and i bet you hate it and i refuse to design something that will do that so this will never buffer or or freeze unless it crashes. It does crash sometimes. Not very often, but occasionally it crashes, but it never buffers or freezes. And it is free to call as long as you can call free within the U.S., unless you have T-Mobile, and then it costs one penny a minute that I don't receive. That's T-Mobile's decision, not mine. That would be kind of cool, though, if I charged everybody a penny a minute and just pocketed it. That would, that would be a nice income stream for the show, because there's been over a million minutes listened to on there. By the way, when we're not on the air, you can call it and you can hear a streaming rerun where it just picks up a show that we did. We've done more than 400 episodes. It'll pick one at random for the last 10 years or so and slap it up there and just run it in full. And they'll pick another and another till we come back live on the air. You can also find the same thing on the radio tab and on the TuneIn app. The TuneIn app actually has a Poker Fraud Alert station. And one other way you can listen is Amazon Alexa. You just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast. Say it slow because it's a long name. Play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast, and it will play the last episode. And if you want to go to the previous one, you say next. Okay, so here's the agenda, and then we will get going. You've got one minute to get into the free roll, and then it is closed. It's looking good, man. There are 56 runners so far. Yeah, well, people come for the free money. Oh, 57. Someone's just uh, Someone's in. rushing in before that minute ticks by. The main, the main story tonight, and I'm so glad I have Cal White on for this because I know we've had a lot of discussions about this topic, is Phil Galfon's Run It Once poker site has closed, or it will close in two days. And they announced it's going to close. They gave very short notice. On January 3rd, it's going to be done. So today's January 1st, January 3rd, 2022. It is out of here. And they have future plans to move to the U.S. market. And I have a lot of things to say about the site, about why it failed, about uh, Phil's explanation for the whole thing, which he wrote in a blog. We're going to pick that apart. And also about the future it has in the U.S. market, if any. So I've got a lot of things to say about this, and that's the lead topic tonight. Second topic is also a pretty big one from this week. Dan Bilzerian appeared on Doug Polk's show for a contentious interview. Now, it got less contentious in the second half, but in the beginning, it was pretty contentious. They were pretty pissed off at each other, especially Bilzerian was pretty heated, and you can hear it. So I'm going to play you clips of this and comment on it. I have criticism for both guys, by the way, in this interview. I I don't think either of them came off uh, anywhere near perfectly. Then we're going to take a little break and do just a little old, frivolous topic from a long time ago. 
Cal Watt, did you know that about 31 and a half years ago, I caused Fidelity Investments to change their phone number? I had no idea. I didn't I was, know you were such a mover and shaker in I was, the financial industry. And they were a big deal back then. You may say, oh, well, 1990 Fidelity was nothing. No, 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 no. It was very big in 1990. So I caused this huge investment firm, Fidelity, to permanently change the phone number to reach them, something that still has an impact today. And it was because of me. And this wasn't anything illegal I did, by the way. This wasn't any kind of hacking or I wasn't harassing them. I'll tell you what happened, but I'll tell you the story about why Fidelity changed their phone number, and it was because of me and only me. Nicholas Palma is accusing Tim Riley. These guys are both poker pros. Tim Riley is a right-winger who's pretty vocal about that on uh, Twitter. Nicholas Palma has a lot of controversy surrounding him, he has a lot of allegations that uh, he has scammed people and uh, not paid back stakes. So there's a lot of bad things said about Nick Palma over time. So and, he's a poker player. Yeah, and, and Tim Riley was one of the main people uh, like bringing it out to Twitter a few years ago. Anyway, it looks like Palma got his revenge because Palma got word. I don't know how he found out, but he got word that Tim Riley, who, remember, is, is right-wing and, and was fairly anti-vax on Twitter— played the World Series of Poker with a fake vaccine card. Uh-oh. He did not provide proof of this, but he made this allegation. And the poker world went nuts. And Daniel Negreanu even got involved. So now a lot of people are talking about Tim Riley and his alleged fake vaccine card. So I will tell you about what's going on there, and I will tell you about my feelings about the matter. I played the World Series of Poker, the main event, but I did not have a fake vaccine card. I had a a very real vaccine three times. A Casino Advantage player claims that he was forced checked out of his MGM Springfield hotel room while he was at a football game that was actually uh, given to him by the hotel, the tickets to that game, and that $20,000 was stolen from his room. Or more specifically, his room safe. So we will talk about these allegations. I'll tell you if I believe them and what I think happened. Poker Shares, which was run by Mike McDonald, though I think he's somewhat pushed away from active uh, management of it in recent years. But uh, Poker Shares has been around uh, for five years where you could buy pieces of poker players from Poker Shares instead of the poker players themselves if they were in uh, tournaments that they planned to play. They are shutting down. So they're not the only site shutting down, of course. Uh, Run It Once and Poker Shares independently announced that they were each uh, shutting down in the past few days. But we'll talk a bit about Poker Shares and uh, what caused it to spring up five years ago and what is probably causing it to shut down. Not any kind of scandal, by the way. So don't get too excited. Controversy hits Slot Lady. Now, I bet most of you don't know who Slot Lady is. Cal, what, have you ever heard of Slot Lady? I have never heard of Slot Lady. Yeah, Slot Lady is exactly what she sounds. A woman who plays slots on YouTube. There is a genre on YouTube of people who go into casinos, play slot machines, record it, and then broadcast it 
and it gets a lot of views. I don't know how. It sounds really boring to watch, but uh, there are a number does of these wear, people. Like, is she scantily clad or unusually well, attractive or something? Well, sort of. So that's that, that plays into this. She is the only female who does this, and she is fairly attractive. So... This caused, her, this caused her channel to rocket up in popularity. Now, she's not scantily clad. She's just dressed normally. But uh, just the fact that she's female, around 30, and fairly attractive made her channel rocket up in popularity, whereas the dudes doing this had to put a lot more effort to get their channel views. Though there are some dudes who are very well watched as well. Anyway, there's some controversy involving her channel, and she responded to the controversy. So... I've known about her for quite some time. Someone started a thread on Poker Fraud Alert about all these slot channels, and I never quite found it worthy of discussion on this show. It just wasn't quite interesting enough, but this pushed it over the top. So now we're going to talk about Slot Lady and the controversy, and I'll introduce you guys to the whole world of YouTube slots and the current drama going on there. It's actually more interesting than you think, at least with the present drama happening. Then we will have a topic I skipped last week, not on purpose. I just completely forgot to put it on the agenda. It did happen right before radio. I said, oh, I've got to cover this, and then I forgot. So it was fine because we had a very long show, but it has been put on this week's agenda. Fedora Holtz has made an allegation of online poker collusion against a Brazilian poker group, and a coach who is not Brazilian jumped into the whole thing on Twitter and was defending them. And now he's getting a lot of heat. So I'll tell you about that. California Indian tribes and the California poker rooms, which are not Indian rooms, are battling once again. If you wonder why California does not have sports betting or legalize online poker or legalize online casinos, what so many other states do, this is why. There's a lot of bickering between the tribes and the card rooms, and it just can never allow any of this legislation to get through. There's always too much opposition from one side or the other. It's been very frustrating. So I have another chapter in that story to tell you as our final regular topic, and then we will have another Omicron subject at the end. So that is our agenda this week. Sounds like it'll probably be a long show again, even though it's only been one week since our last show. Usually when it's been two weeks or more, then we have a very long show, but not this time. This time it's going to be long, even though it's been one week. At least I think it will be. Phil Galfond, he is a very well-liked guy in poker, and there's good reason for it. Phil Galfond has a very calm demeanor. He's always very, very positive. He exudes positivity. Phil Galfond is also a great player who's had tremendous success at the table for a very long time. He did back on Full Tilt in the 2000s. And he continues to today. That's why in these Galfond challenges that we talked about where he was taking on all comers for uh, heads-up PLO matches, which is his best game, but still, he beat everybody. He even had an epic comeback against that Veni Vidi guy where it looked like he was not only going to lose, but lose big. So he was undefeated in these Galfon challenges, showing that his PLO skill is timeless. So he's not even regarded as a has-been anymore. When he was losing to Veni Vidi, at, at least for... At that point, people are saying, okay, well, he can't compete with the players of today. They, they've uh, passed him up. He's a relic of the 2000s. But then he proved, nope, he's not a relic of the 2000s. He's still a great PLO player, maybe the best one. So, so it's a bit When did you remember first knowing of or, or running into Phil Galfon? Because I, I, I remember quite well. Well, I remember it because I was on full tilt in the mid-2000s, and I saw 
saw OMG Clay Aiken, and I thought that was kind yep. of a funny screen name. And I said, who is yep. that guy? <laughs> who is this guy? He's like yep. always sitting like to play heads up, and uh, he seems to be winning a lot, and I, don't, I didn't know who it was. Yeah, I saw him there and uh, watched him play on Rail Heaven and all that stuff. I actually own railheaven.com, by the way. It was oh, really? one of my things that I was thinking about doing something with but never did. But I also subscribed to an old training site called Blue Fire Poker. Do you ever remember yeah, hearing remember that Blue at Fire. all? Yeah, I remember Blue Fire. Yes, yes. And I remember listening to tons and tons of, of Phil Galfon videos, and I loved the way that he, he just had a really good way of breaking down hands and, and talking about his thinking. And it was just, I really, really enjoyed listening to him uh, talking about uh, the poker hands. And he eventually, I think he got in some kind of a dust up with whoever was, because it wasn't him that was running Blue Fire, it was someone else. And there's some kind of a dust up there, and then he ended up uh, doing his own on uh, Run It Once. Yeah, yeah. and, and that's was going to say too. Run It Once, the yeah. training site was very well regarded, and and people liked their content. And he wasn't the only instructor there. There were a lot of different instructors right. that worked for one, Run It Once. So, and but he got I, smart. You know, he said instead of making someone else money, I'm going to I'm going to build my own fortune. You know, as opposed to making videos and getting, you know, either a flat payment or royalties from them, he said, "I'm going to take my own notoriety and turn it into its own wealth." So it was a really smart move. I think there was some kind of a dust up with when he left Run It Once, if I remember correctly. Though you mean you mean the other, the Blue Fire one? Yeah, Blue Fire. Sorry, yeah, yeah, and he couldn't get the rights to the videos or, or something like that. I don't remember what. Yeah, it was. I, I, don't, I remember I don't something think Blue about Fire that. Is around anymore though. Yeah, I, I didn't yeah. follow it very close, but I remember something about yeah. that. But anyway, he's up yeah. until he started his poker site which is also called runner once runner once poker there were very few criticisms of him ever he was just uh someone who was almost beyond reproach and uh, when you would see people discussing things on twitter like who's the poker player who's the known poker player who you haven't heard anything bad said about them ever and that, that's not that long a list of people everyone has some kind of drama or, or enemies in poker he was one of the few who didn't he was one of the few who was always named as someone who just everyone likes or at least thinks somewhat highly of. So he really had everything going for him in poker. And and I'm not going to say he doesn't anymore, but uh, this definitely is the first failure he's had. And I saw it coming from a mile away, as, as did Calwan. So he first announced that he was going to run a poker site, that he was going to start a poker site way back in August 2016, late August 2016, he made a blog called A Poker Site Should, and it was on runitonce.com. And it had a list of things a poker site should do, probably like 15 things. I won't read it all to you, but things like a poker site should value poker players, a poker site should value the casual player and, and the pro, a poker site needs to believe in the dream of poker as a career, a poker site needs to be a software and user experience company. Uh, these things all sounded great. Like it really sounded like it was written by somebody who understood. Even Poker Stars, which was considered kind of the the model of how to run a poker site, they were ha- getting a lot of criticism at the time because they were no longer run by Isai Scheinberg and uh, a new company had bought them, which was undoing a lot of the good that the Scheinberg the Scheinberg family did. So there were a lot of uh, criticisms of poker stars that a lot of what people liked about it was going away and that they were not valuing their players and that they were not always acting ethically. And we've discussed that uh, to a large extent on this show. We're not going to rehash all that. 
But I was pretty excited to see this because I thought, okay, Phil is a smart guy. Phil has been successful in everything he's done. And from this little A Poker Site Should blog, which wasn't very long, he just quickly rattled off like 15 things that A Poker Site Should do, I agreed with all of it. And I said, okay, this is uh, a good vision. Now, I was a little bit skeptical as to whether he could succeed in that market in the mid-2010s because it was already hard to start a new poker site. Now, what's funny, as I'll get to shortly, I was a little bit wrong about that because there was a poker site that started in 2017 that has become very successful. So it was possible, it turned out, but uh, not for Phil. He didn't do it right. But I was skeptical because it's not easy to do. It's a lot harder than it used to be. And I was also skeptical about something else. I thought, okay, for them to have a successful poker site, they need to have, number one, at least one person there who isn't young, like like Phil and the rest of them. He's not really young, but they need to have like at least one older person in the room. And number two, someone who really knows and understands the industry well. And you may say, well, wait a minute, Phil Galfon knows and understands it well. He just listed all these great things on a poker site should. Nah, because that's just like idealistic stuff. But as far as how to implement it and the way to implement it and how the community will react to your implementations, you have to have a really good feel for the way the poker world is going to react. And also, you have to have a good feel of for how to react when they react. You have to have... A, a tremendously good understanding of the online poker community. And just being a big winner at the high-stakes games does not mean you have that understanding. That means that you're right. a great poker player, but it doesn't mean you have that understanding. And you also have to have uh, uh, an understanding of software. And That's the big thing I was going to say, Druff. That's the real big thing that they needed because – they do, you know, just from being a poker player and having played online poker for a very long time, oh, sorry, hit the mute button, <laughs> playing poker for a very long time, they probably had a, a decent understanding of what they wanted to do from a product owner perspective. They might have gotten a little bit fancy, and I think we're going to get this into this later with uh, some of the features that they were planning to add, but what they really need when they're building something like that and building on- an online poker system that can scale requires real software engineering and they needed a CTO that could effectively manage that. And they did not have anyone in that capacity. And I remember actually talking to you on the show. I was in, uh, I think it was in either in Chicago or Toronto and I was on a a terrible connection on my phone, but I was talking to you um, about what he was doing with it at the time. And I said, I guarantee you what they did is they took the people that made their website and they made them a, a, a bid on building the poker system. And I knew, or the sorry, the poker site. And I knew it was going to end up as a disaster. Because I, I come from a background of doing app and software development. And I lately um, have been doing a lot in the web world as well. But I know a whole lot of people that are front-end developers. You know, Maybe they know HTML, CSS, or they know JavaScript, or they are using a, a framework like React, and you cannot take people like that and use them to then build something like a poker site that requires real back-end scalability, that requires real security, real DevOps, and a whole bunch of stuff like that. And I think that's what ended up happening, man. I think they ended up using them 
the developers that made the run at once site and they did a great job making the run at once site and but i think they used them to build the uh the poker uh site that they're working on uh sorry the the actual poker uh game system and i think that's where it fell on its face <laughs> and i and he alludes to it too um after the fact he was talking about the developers they initially hired and yeah, the spec problems. Well, I'm, I'm going to read his blog out there and, and, and right. we'll break it down together. But but that's uh, but a hundred percent, man. They needed someone in there that knew what they were talking about from a tech perspective. Yeah, well, that's that was definitely one thing. of the big factors yeah. for sure. And but mm-hmm. actually, I believe there's a few factors here, a few major factors. That being one of them, there, there's no question that was one of them. Uh, but there was a few major factors they had that were missing or done wrong. And uh, and some of this is on Galfon himself. In fact, a lot of it's on Galfon himself. So. Anyway, that was uh, August 2016. Now, you may say, well, I don't remember this site launching in late 2016 or early 2017. That's because it didn't. It didn't launch in early 2017. It didn't even launch in late 2017. Did it launch in early 2018? Nope. Did it launch in uh, mid-2018? Nope. Did it launch in late 2018? Actually, nope. It launched in early 2019. And by the way, that had somewhat to do with that first development team they had, which we'll get into. But that was the beginning of it all crashing down. But let me tell you, before that, I was already getting really skeptical with some of their plans. They were planning it all wrong as well. It wasn't just execution was wrong. Planning was wrong. Everything was wrong. So it never succeeded. It never did well. The peak if you can call it that, was right at the beginning of the COVID pandemic in the spring of 2020, because everyone was trapped at home during all these lockdowns, people started to play more online poker, or people played online poker when they previously hadn't, and he got some of the benefit of that. But even then, it wasn't a bustling site. So he was so proud of it at the time, saying, wow, look at all the traffic we're getting. I go, no. Like, okay, your traffic doubled or so, but that's when you had almost nothing, doubling isn't what you need. You needed a, a massive uh, jumping traffic. And also, since you've gotten some additional traffic, you've got to find a way to keep it and build from this. And, and they didn't. So I, I knew that as soon as the lockdowns ended, that this was going to fall back apart. And sure enough, it did. I recently remarked that I was shocked that Run It Once was still going because. Phil seemed to never talk about it anymore. It just seemed to be languishing with almost nobody on there. The last thing it really did was have those Galfon challenges where some people played him on his own site, which I never understood. Not that I think he would cheat, just uh, it's still never a good idea to play someone at a high-stakes match on their own site. But, and that's uh, the other thing about that site, right, Druff, is that it? it's kind of weird coming from a a very good poker player who makes a very good training site and then trying to sell a poker site on top of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) Because it's kind of like, you know, all right, well, who is going to play there? Who is his reach in terms of people that know Galphon and and who is going to then go to the site? And it's like, man, I could easily see that being just a site full of pros or a site full of people who are at least – engaged in trying to get better at the right. game and know about it from his run at one site, you know? Yeah. So it was it was really languishing and I wondered what's the point? Like why obviously they're losing money. In fact, he admitted on uh he he was on the 2+2 two two, not the 2+2 two two, on a Dad Poker podcast 
with the same guys as from 2 plus 2 plus, plus Negranu. He was on there, and they asked him some good questions. And he, at one point, talked about how they're losing money every month. So this was no secret. And obviously this wasn't changing because the, the traffic was getting less and less, and it was never high. So I wondered why are they even staying up? Like, what do they think is going to happen that's going to turn this around? Even even the everyone being on lockdown, it wasn't a, an active site. So I think they got their answer that it has failed. So I'm like, why are they burning money every month? So shortly, yeah, there are two things when you've got a a startup like this that you're trying to do something with. There are two things that you really, well, three things really that you're concerned about. The first is MRR, like what is your monthly recurring revenue that you have coming in. And the other is your burn rate, and it sounds like their burn rate was just not good if they're constantly losing money. Yeah, you know? it was it was at least way higher than whatever they were bringing in, and and also yeah. they they had nowhere to go. This wasn't something with potential. They they already shot their load, and they were just languishing, getting worse and worse every month. There was really no room for improvement. There there was no way this was going to turn around. So it was like a, it was like a bad marriage where. You've, two people have been together a long time and have gotten to hate each other. They're not just going to wake up one day and decide they love each other again. It's just time to get a divorce at that point. So I was, and, uh, it, w- and it was an odd business. Like, uh, <laughs> ironically, the business I'm in is one of those businesses that actually does well during the COVID because you know the traditional brick and mortar. So as soon as it started to open back up, you knew that it was going to leak away, right? Yeah, and, and it knew did. That that was going to be problematic, right? And so that, and once it did, yeah. and once that. The traffic was like at an all-time low, and they obviously had no path to improving that. They should have shut down a while ago. Otherwise, they're just burning money. So shortly after I was saying this, I've been thinking it for a while, but I've been mentioning it more recently. And then not too long after I mentioned it, I'm not taking credit for this. I doubt Phil saw it, but uh, an email came that explained that they are shutting down. The email was on December 30th, and the shutdown date was January 3rd, which obviously is very little notice. But I'm going to read this to you, and we're going to analyze it. So it is shutting down, but they are trying to get it restarted in the future in the U.S. market, because this is a site running in the non-U.S. market, and that didn't work out. And this is all for legal reasons. because So they want to join the ranks of those highly successful... U.S. facing sites like WSOP Online and yeah. <laughs> Poker Stars and well, right. Party Poker, right? And that's and that's the problem is yeah. that the, the people, right. they're not going to become right. another Bovada or ACR, which is just uh, offering services to all or most of the U.S. and and is going to take the chance that they get busted. Phil Galfon is doing it all by the book, so he can only do this in the regulated and and legalized states for poker, and he has to get a license, so it's not either as simple as it might appear or and success is not going to be as simple as it might appear like it is for sites like ACR and Bovada they're willing to break the law but we'll get into or that it's cheap right aren't some of these licenses kind of expensive yes they, they can be expensive yeah. as well so here is his blog I'm not going to bother to read the email because it's similar to the blog so here's the blog it is called running it again December 30th 2021 Two days Maybe ago. he should have run it twice, Druff. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. Yeah, well, that's what he's doing, actually. He's going to try to run it twice. So here's, here's what he writes. Where to begin? I suppose the last time I wrote to you here is as good a time as any. It was over a year ago, October of 2020, and I had just detailed our new offering, Sit and Go Select. Okay, let me stop right here. I don't even know what Sit and Go Select is, and I don't care. But something that we haven't mentioned yet, we've mentioned on previous shows, was that when they did launch in early 2019, they had 
an amazing dearth of features. They didn't have tournaments. They had no tournaments. And that's what the donks love, man. Right. And you couldn't even resize tables, which is something that Poker Stars was able to do in the early 2000s. So here they were <laughs> inferior software-wise, big time inferior in both software and offerings to early 2000s Poker Stars. That's that's already a big problem. So they launched like that. Now, remember, they took two and a half years to launch. So do you think anyone would have cared if they took two years, nine months to launch rather than two and a half years? No, nobody would have cared. It, it was already way, way past when they claimed they would be launching. They were so far past that, it didn't matter anymore. They might as well get it right. But for whatever reason, maybe from investor pressure, I don't know, they felt the need all of a sudden in early 2019 to rush this incomplete and crap product to market. And uh, that was the beginning of the end. So he said that in October 2020, he had just detailed their new offering, Sit and Go Select. So it must be some kind of Sit and Go, which was which is a single table tournament, for those of you that don't know. Uh, so it's probably some Sit and Go thing that they were doing. But they still didn't have tournaments. They still did not have multi-table tournaments, which is what everybody wants. And this is October 2020. He's announcing this. Like, oh, great, guys, we have sit-and-goes now. We've been up for over a year and a half, and it's been over four years since we announced the project, and every other site has tournaments. But, hey, sit-and-go select, everybody. Like, this shows you how clueless they were there. So, yeah, it's like opening up a buffet, and you have no entrees. Yeah. You know? Like, oh, we're going to be fancy. We have all sorts of this, that, and the other thing. But entrees, no, we, we don't have any entrees. And then, like, two years after the buffet opens, guess what, everybody? We have spaghetti and meatballs now. Come on yeah, down. Who, who gives a fuck? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So then he goes on to say, it was an exciting time here at Run and Once Poker. Not only were we launching a game we were extremely proud of, we were doing so during a, a very eventful year for us and the world, of course. 2020 began a couple of months after we launched our Legends Rewards program, which was very successful for us, increasing volume dramatically towards the end of 2019. See, see this is all just dishonest. It was never doing well the site it's not like the site was great at one point and then fell apart this was a failure from the beginning and all the way through they had their little covid bump and that was it it was never doing well it never had the traffic they wanted or anticipated or had hoped they'd get they didn't even have a fraction of that so oh we launched our legends rewards program and that was uh, very successful no it wasn't the whole thing was a failure you could say that uh you liked the program you can say it help things a little bit. It was not very successful. Nothing was very successful. And while I admire people who exude positivity and who don't get rattled easily and have a very even temperament, and sometimes I even wish I was more like that. Sometimes I wish I had Phil Galfon's temperament, which I don't. And uh, I sometimes say, you know, I, I wish I could be more like that. Sometimes I, I do think that. But this is where I'm happy I'm not, because you also have to be realistic. You can't be positive in the face of something negative that has occurred and then and, and be in denial of it and try to write a blog that people are supposed to take seriously where you are in that denial. You need to be realistic or, or don't write the blog at all. So he goes on to write, the first Galphon challenge started in January and was a hit. The Run It Once poker platform was being seen by many more people than ever before. Those things, undoubtedly pushed further along by worldwide lockdowns, led to far and away the best traffic trends we'd seen at Run It Once. Okay, but they still weren't good. The best traffic trends. I mean, well, and note the wording though. You know, he's saying traffic trends. He's not saying new. He's not saying acquisition. He's not saying you know in terms of the the volume that they're they're running or the number of games that are playing. 
you know, traffic patterns can mean a whole lot of things. Yeah, and, and it was seen by more than people than ever before. Well, who cares? If they saw it and didn't bother to play, that doesn't help you. So he goes on to say, As you may know, a poker platform's product is significantly improved by simply having more games available. The more players you have, the better the user experience is, and the more new players you attract and keep. So as we no put... Shit. Yeah, the... <laughs> Welcome to 2000. So as we put the finishing touch, touches on Sit and Go Select, we were optimistic about reaching a tipping point in our volume where we'd no longer be fighting as much of an uphill battle. The, the, the tipping point may have happened if you ever brought tournaments to people. Not Sit and Go Select wasn't going to do it. Though Sit and Go players and Cash players don't have a massive overlap, I was hopeful that the new game type would bring more and more players into the run of one's ecosystem, and the rising tide would lift our Cash games even further. Then he writes, The Launch. We launched Sit and Go Select to rave reviews, as we hope people love them. This is such a weird thing to go on and on about in this blog. So he's saying that he's closing the poker site on January 3rd. That's what this blog's about. And he's going on and on about the Sit and Go Select that did not make the traffic really go up at all. That didn't have the impact they were hoping for. Why is he ranting about Sit and Go Select? It's It's almost like he wants a final pat on the back about this before he shuts it down. We are such a design and product-focused company that it really gets us pumped when people see and appreciate all of the thought and effort that goes into creating the user experience that we'd want as players. We were thrilled. I remember, despite being extremely busy with Run It Once work and poker, pulling up Twitch to watch our streamers play, and they were playing Sit and Go Select almost every day. It's funny for rooting. To, it's funny rooting for people to win a big jackpot when it essentially comes out of your own pocket. But that's what I was doing. Players were having fun, and the feedback was great. That said, the games didn't pick up as much as I'd hoped, and new signups weren't at all what I expected. Well, you should have talked to me. I could have told you what to expect. <laughs> I knew exactly what we would expect from Sit and Go Select launching there. Nothing. It was going to be a tiny blip on the radar there. Despite the fact that our growth began months before the pandemic, the ease of lockdown restrictions began to knock us back down. With few new signups, our sit-and-go traffic was underwhelming, and our cash game traffic levels began to, f- began to fall. By the way, as I said, it was never high, but he is correct, it was falling. With a break in the Galphon challenges and our sit-and-go select campaigns falling short, among other things, our player acquisition efforts weren't enough to outpace churn. Along with world, the world opening back up and the compounding level of liquidity on itself, the decline in traffic accelerated. We were right back to where we were, where we started in late 2019. A realization, he then writes, is the subject of this next passage. With traffic having dwindled below pre-pandemic levels after all of the progress we'd made. See, you didn't make progress. You, you got a little extra traffic due to the coronavirus that all sites got, and then you blew it and didn't keep it. That's what happened. It became clear to me that we weren't going to break through and reach the volume that we needed to that we needed to just by completing our platform and doing a bit more marketing. The hill was too steep. It was going to take a lot more. See, they should have realized this uh, a long time ago. The The world opened up a lot, a long time ago in this story. Like it, It's not like lockdowns just ended uh, a week ago. If we wanted Run It Once Poker to survive so that it could hopefully one day thrive, we needed to do something differently. I hear that in business. They call this a pivot, he writes with an exclamation point. I won't be getting into too much detail now, but I can tell you that we thoroughly explored a number of very different options over the past year plus. There were some exciting opportunities for growth and for our businesses that didn't pan out. Chasing these meant making sacrifices elsewhere. 
I don't quite know what that's supposed to mean. I don't necessarily have regrets here. Sometimes you call with the right pot odds and miss your draw, but this played a very big role in our continued traffic decline in 2021. No, it didn't. I'll tell you what it played the big role is that you you didn't do anything. You sat there and did nothing and let it dwindle. That's what happened. Like what was different after the people left the site following the world opening up again? What what did you do to bring the traffic back? I don't remember anything. So uh, to me, it, it sounds like you just let it happen. Though I will admit the ship pretty much sailed by that point. He goes on to write, it has been a, an all-consuming process, which is why other than finishing my challenge against Chance Cornuth at the start of the year and playing a very short one against Brandon Adams, you haven't seen me play any poker this year. I'm writing this to you today because after all that time, we finally settled on a direction. Looking ahead. As I mentioned above, I'm holding back some of the finer details for the time being. I'll have more to share in the next few months, but the bottom line is this. Run It Once Poker is now headed down a path to enter the legal and regulated U.S. market. This has been a dream of mine since well before we first launched. I didn't initially think it would be an option for us for another half decade, so I'm very excited to be on our way to achieving it. The very unexciting part of this news is that in order to head in that direction, we're shutting down our rest of the world operations and focusing fully on getting our platform complete and prepared to operate in the U.S. regulated environment. Okay, let me stop right here. Why? Why? That's not necessary. Uh, Poker Stars is in the U.S. regulated market. Did they shut down their rest of the world operations? What about Party? Did they? What about 888? Did they? So, so why did these other companies not shut down their operations abroad, and yet Run It Once is shutting down its operations abroad? Well, because they were turning a profit anyway. <laughs> yeah. So the real reason here is that, and I can't say for sure because I wasn't at the board meetings and I haven't gotten any kind of inside information on this. This is my guess, so I want to preface that. But my guess, but a very educated guess, is that they were burning money every month and they knew that the non-U.S. run-at-once poker as it stands today is going to be a money loser and they can't turn that around. So leaving it up is just going to burn money. It's going to do them no good. So they- I guess my question there, and that, that's a reasonable supposition, my question there would be how are they going to be able to scale it back so it's not burning as much money? You know what I'm saying? And well, I, I guess... <laughs> I would assume that their major expenses have to be staffing, right? I, I, I'm sure they, they have some server expenses and some other expenses like that, but for sure, their major expenses are going to be staffing. So does this mean they're going to lay a whole bunch of people off in the interim? Yeah, I think so. I think it'll be staffing, and I think it's also a payment processing, and neither they will have to do when uh, the site is not operating. So but I, does I, payment processing cost them money? Oh, yeah, yeah. They have to pay a pretty healthy percentage, I believe, to, to get these uh, payments processed. I don't know what it is in that market, but uh, this this is something that poker sites eat because mm-hmm. they're collecting so much in rake it, that it's fine. And okay, that's just, that makes sense then. So, yeah. But, but yeah. at the same time, they're not processing a lot of payments because it's a dead site. So that's also something to consider. But still, If every new player costs you money whenever they put money on your site, you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, right. I think that uh, that probably is some of the factor as well. So they just decided that this is just a money loser and that they can pretty much shut down. They can shut off that faucet that's leaking at, while they chase this new goal. So I actually agree with the decision. And they're not saying this is why they did it. And and uh, I'll get to what Phil claims of why they did it in a second. But 
that's why I believe they're doing it. And uh, I, I sort of disagree with the decision, and I disagree with it only from the perspective that I think it's something that should have been done a long time ago if they realized that their burn rate really was nasty and they weren't seeing any traction. I mean, I, I guess they received some false hope or some rays of, of light when COVID-19 lockdown came and they were hoping that maybe they would turn around. But it, it seems like, I don't know, it, it seems like a very reactionary deci- decision if they're going to shut it down. What was it, four days after they announced it? Well, no, I actually, if, see, that I don't disagree with either that they did because yeah. they see that it has no future immediate yeah, or so otherwise. Do it now. Right. So, so they just do it now. And now I agree with you. This should have happened a long time ago. I, I never yeah. understood why they just sit and let it languish and just lose, 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 lose money with no hope that it's going to stop losing money. So that was weird. And I, I can't explain that part of it uh, other yeah. than his claims that they were trying to do things behind the scenes, maybe some partnerships or whatever that didn't work out. But I, I think they probably just dragged their feet too and were somewhat I in think denial. I think they probably had an inkling that they needed to do this prior to the lockdown uh, and, and COVID coming in. And I think they got a little bit of a bump from everyone being locked up, and they said, "Oh, you know, maybe maybe we're onto something." You yeah. Know? So that, ironically, maybe their the little bump that they had kind of hurt them. Yeah, maybe know? the bump happened. And they're like, "Wait, this is because of sit and go select." Actually, no, sit and go select happened a little bit afterwards. But I, I, I think because they were working on sit and go select, they thought, "Okay, we got our bump. Now let's finish sit and go select. That'll be it. That'll be the X factor. Sit and go select is our future." I would love to sit in some of those meetings, even as like a ghost they can't uh, hear or see and just laugh. But Yeah, the- I mean, to build something like this, they really need three things. So they, they need to have good marketing. And, you know, they have some of that in uh, – they, they have experience doing it with Run It Once. They've got Phil Galfon. They've got all that kind of stuff. And you need a good product owner, basically someone who's going to craft what the thing's going to be. And you need a good tech team that then can go and implement it. And I think they had – Two out of the three, or at least, you know, some semblance of that. But, man, I mean, if you don't go, it, the startup market, especially in a space where you already have a whole bunch of other competitors, is so tough that if you don't have all three of those nailed, like, you are fucked. Yeah, <laughs> like, that, fucked. that's for sure. So, so, he, so he goes on to write, my goal when we started this was to become a major competitor in the markets we launched in and then work towards getting into the U.S., while we're on our way to half of that, it makes me sad that we didn't first achieve the other half. For many reasons, I wish that we could continue operating across the world as we worked our way towards the U.S., but for many reasons, it's also clearly not the path forward. We'll be sending out emails to our players with the relevant information, but here's some of the key details. Gameplay will stop on January 3rd, 2022. You will be able to withdraw your account balances from the client anytime from now until April 3rd, 2022. So they're giving three months. Three months. If for some reason you're unable to log in or withdraw, please email support and the team will help you resolve it. So, okay, I, I don't think they're trying to run off with the money. I, I think everyone's going to get paid. I don't think there'll be an issue with that. We have had a very loyal player base, many who've grown our brand by streaming, who've helped us improve the product by offering detailed feedback and ideas. Yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> I, I can't believe he's even writing that because this was a major mistake on his part to not listen to detailed feedback and ideas and stubbornly stay the course, which we'll get into. And even though many got back more rake than they paid, helped grow our business by getting and keeping games running. From the bottom of my and our hearts, thank you. We worked very hard to make it an enjoyable experience for you, and I hope very much that it was. Then this looking back section. 
And this is where he should have been introspective and, of course, wasn't. Looking back on the past several years, I feel a mix of disappointment and pride. There shouldn't be any pride here. Like, especially when you've succeeded at pretty much everything you've done your whole life, and then you have this turd that just flops badly, you should have zero pride. You should have nothing but regret. You can have pride in everything else that you have accomplished and all of your other success and your good reputation. But if I were him there, I would say, I have pride in everything else. This is my one mistake. This is my one screw-up. But he's claiming he has disappointment and pride. I'm impressed with what we've been able to accomplish. What? Failing? (laughs) But at the same time, I've made a lot of mistakes. Okay, let's hear about the mistakes. Our initial tech leadership, which I put into place, came nowhere remotely close to their targets. Part of that was on them, but part of it was on us too. Not communicating early and clearly enough that we weren't looking to launch a cookie-cutter poker site. Well, hold on a second. Uh, maybe you should have wanted to launch a cookie-cutter poker site because a cookie-cutter poker site has multi-table tournaments, has resizable tables. It has the basic features that everybody wants. So I think maybe you should have instructed them to do a cookie-cutter poker site first with the ability to, as Cal Watt says, scale up to be more than that. But yeah. going on. And I see this all the time, Druff, is that it's sort of like building a house, you know, when you're building something with software and you, you, let's say you come to someone who's, all right, I want to build this house and halfway through it, you're like, all right, I want a pool on the second floor, right? Well, you can't just put a pool up there, right? Because you have to have all of the infrastructure to be able to sort support all of that weight and everything else that goes along with it. So if you don't have the scope nailed down before you start on this endeavor, you're pretty much fucked. Um, but in addition to that, He's not, maybe he'll get to it later on, but he's not exactly getting to the real problem is that they, they didn't have anyone there who knew enough to hire the right people to build something that is scalable. It it sounds like, it really sounds like they had these web developers trying to build this thing and they were, they bid something and they were out of their league and then it took forever and it, and it still was not able to do what they wanted it to do. But with that house analogy, what they did here it kind of reminds me of building this fancy house with uh, a number yeah. of features that that have uh, that, that are in homes that uh, usually don't have them but then there's no bathrooms and they're like oh yeah we didn't get to building bathrooms yet we have this outhouse outside you can go use that and be, what uh, your house has no bath you've got to go go outside and use an outhouse oh yeah but but look at the cool stuff in this house like don't you want to live here no. It's like the Homer Simpson car. Do you remember that thing where they they let him design a car and it was had all these absolutely ridiculous things that there only were of interest to him and it was just a complete fucking nightmare it's like it's kind of like that it is yeah. kind of like that so yeah. he, he said we wanted to innovate at every turn okay big mistake right there see he doesn't say like we shouldn't have he's actually just acting like uh the, the first team didn't have that vision along with him we planned around their estimates including hiring operational staff long before we were able to launch costing us money that we could have used to increase our marketing efforts post launch <laughs> Now, that's that's pretty amazing if that's happened. Uh, Yeah, they hired the wrong people to do it. They gave them dates, and they couldn't make the dates because they were out of their depth. And probably, uh, in all fairness, probably it sounds like the scope was changing if they're saying we should have communicated it better. So the dates slipped, as we saw, and they apparently hired a whole bunch of people. In anticipation of those dates actually being accurate, oh, like you, you got to be real careful before you hire people that the at least the dates that you think the startup's going to happen that it's going to be at least kind of close to that. If it's going to be way off or even a chance to be way off, uh, don't hire the people yet, or at least hire them yeah. uh, w- 
with the understanding and the agreement that uh, they may not actually start on that date. You don't hire someone to waste money on them. To, you don't have operational staff there twiddling their thumbs and getting paid because you're not ready for a long period of time. If they did that... Yeah, that what the a, fuck does the support staff do if the thing hasn't even launched? <laughs> that's, you know? that's a tremendous mistake. I don't know how much money it really cost them, but if they wasted a lot of money on this, that was a boneheaded move. Okay, yeah, so and Any company, almost always, your largest expense is your salary, your personnel, so that's... Yeah, yeah you, you don't good. do that. And, and a lot of companies have this challenge where they're, where they're building whatever they need to get the company going, and sometimes there can be slippage in dates. But you don't see it very often where they've hired staff that just doesn't do anything because they're not ready, and if it is, it's not very long. So that was just complete mismanagement to allow that to happen. Uh, yeah, going you on, need at least an MVP before you can even consider doing something like that. Yeah. So, so he goes on to write, even when we put the right team into place, because he did switch teams at some point, they just... Uh, I, don't, I, don't mean, I don't mean he became gay. I mean, he, uh, he, he switched... Uh, <laughs> tech teams and uh he put the uh, quote right team into place so he said yeah they we found put- people other than web developers <laughs> to actually work on this product is what it is i guarantee it i guarantee it even when we put the right team into place later on we'd been set back so far that competing completing our platform was no easy task i also vastly underestimated just how sticky players would be when it came to playing on new sites especially with low liquidity now they th- this upcoming paragraph is completely not getting it of course, I knew we'd be fighting an uphill battle here, but I was very surprised at how few future Run at Once players, people who were excited about Run at Once poker and eager to play once games picked up, wanted to play now. Pl- playing on new software, dealing with the requisite know-your-customer hurdles, splitting funds across multiple poker sites, along with a number of other factors, clearly made poker players want to be sure that moving decent playing volume over before making the jump. Okay, False. Totally false, or mostly false. I I shouldn't say that none of this is correct, but this is not the reason they failed. And this is totally not getting it. This is saying it's the market, not us. I have a counter to that. I have a one-word counter to that. GG Poker. GG Poker started from the ground up in 2017. But you may not have heard of GG Poker in 2017. They didn't really blow up until... 2019, the same time that Run It Once was trying to blow up. So they had the same opportunity as GG Poker. Now, where does GG Poker stand today? Are they about to shut down? No. GG Poker, in fact, is virtually tied with Poker Stars as the number one poker site in the world. And Daniel Negranu is the main face of the site, and they're probably paying him a shitload of money for it. So that's a big success story. I have had issues with the way they've treated certain players, especially pro players, at times. I'm not saying that I think that everything about them is perfect, but did they do a great job starting a ground-up poker site in the late 2010s and growing to become tied with poker stars? Yes, they obviously did all of that right. They did exactly what Galfon was hoping to do, except Galfon's site completely failed and never even got close to success. And GG Poker was a rousing success. So how come these sticky players went to GG? These same issues existed. These same issues about not wanting to play on multiple poker sites and not wanting to split money around uh, poker sites and going through Know Your Customer process, playing on new software. Well, wait a minute. They had to do that with GG. So how is GG doing so well when they came up in the same era as you did? 
Same era, same market. How come GG worked and you didn't? So you can't blame this on sticky players. Now, people always are sticky to whatever they're used to doing to some extent. I'll agree with that. That's why it's also hard to start a new forum. That's why it is hard to start a uh, new website of any kind that is going to try to attract people where there's already people going for whatever niche you're trying to fit into. That's why it's sometimes hard to get traffic on a new YouTube channel if there's existing channels that already do something similar. So, yes, people are creatures of habit. They go to what they like. They go to what they're used to. And you've got to find some way to either share their attention or get their attention. And it's not a trivial matter to make this occur. I understand that. But GG Poker did it. So don't say the players are sticky and you just underestimated how that is. You just were unable to excite them to come to your site, and it's very clear why. You were missing... Yeah, you're 100% right. Players are sticky, but you have to do something to bring them over, and, and you nailed it. I mean, they obviously didn't get the fundamentals right that people needed to be incentivized to come over. You know, it's basics. It's not uh, sit-and-go-select or whatever kind of weird shit that they had on that site, you know? Well, they, yeah. they, then they have all sorts of weird... Um, Weren't they doing something with emojis yes, or yeah, expressions and, and, yeah. but or we'll, shit we'll, like that? We'll get to that here. I'm, re- I'm reading his blog, and then we'll get to some analysis of what was what failed and some of these ah, okay. weird features. All right, all right. Needless to say, he writes, I have learned a lot, and I've done a number of things. I would have done a number of things differently if I had to do it over. This is something I'm particularly excited about, getting the chance to start over in a way with all the experience we've gained. Okay, but what? He doesn't say. That's, that's what's weird. Is he doesn't say... Okay, I, I learned, like, here would be something he could write without even making himself look bad that would show a lot of humility and a lot of getting it. And that would be, it was a huge mistake to launch without multi-table tournaments. And he could get to go on and explain you know, the first uh, software team was not good and they were very slow and they made a lot of mistakes and, and uh, they decided to launch without it because it had already been so far past the launch date they initially uh, told everybody and that was a mistake. And that he's learned that poker sites revolve around tournaments these days and have for a long time. So he should have launched with tournaments and next time they're not, they're not going to make this mistake. He could write that and people go, yes, Phil, you get it. At least you get part of it. Instead, he just says, oh, I, I would have done some things differently if I had to do it over. But what? It looks like he isn't getting it when he's talking about sticky players, when he's talking about uh, uh, it, it's the fault of the first software team. He, he's missing a lot of what really occurred. And I even saw that in some of his previous writings, which we've discussed on this show in the past, where he was actually blaming the player base for not liking his site where some of these features, he was saying, well, I thought you guys would be excited by this, but it looks like today's poker pros, they just want to grind what they're used to, and they, they don't want to try new things like we did in the 2000s. And I go, no, you, you can't look down upon the player base and blame them for not liking your site. It's You have to know the market and adjust to it. The market doesn't adjust to you. So I still think he's kind of got this in his head, but let, let's finish off the blog. He wrote, in spite of my missteps... Run It Once Poker has accomplished some truly incredible things. Really? I'm really trying to think of one. What, what have they accomplished? With a team of designers and developers dwarfed by many of our competitors, we've created a platform that, in my humble opinion, is the most beautiful in the online poker industry and is at the top of the list in user experience. I, mean, I haven't used it, so I can't comment on that, but let's go on. Pound for pound, nobody has come remotely close to us when it comes to innovation with creations like Splash the Pot, which is basically where every so often 
they put a bunch of extra money in the pot, which comes from a piece of the rake that had been paid on the site, and then uh, and then whoever wins the pot gets all that money. Dynamic avatars, which I'll expl- explain shortly, sit and go select. There they go, sit and go select again, along with. Smaller features and policies that we firmly believe improve the quality and longevity of the online poker games. And those innovations didn't just stick to our platform. Several poker sites have implemented ideas that we came up with, which means that our impact on the industry was much larger than the size we grew to. We launched the Galfon Challenge, providing entertainment to so many during worldwide lockdowns and reinvigorating high-stakes heads-up battles. I hope to continue playing these in the coming years. I'm also extremely proud of the way we treated our players through our policies, promotions, and community, as well as through our excellent customer support team. (laughs) Okay. I'll tell you the reason for the laughter. First of all, they did not take any advice the community was battering Phil over the head with. Like, everybody. Like, they just were deaf to it on purpose. And then the excellent customer support team, if you remember... At one point when they're struggling, they're, they're, I mean, the whole way they're struggling, but they're struggling to catch on, struggling to keep traffic, and one of their most active players was banned from the site for calling a customer support rep an imbecile. <laughs> and not even directly to him. He didn't even write, hey, you imbecile. He wrote to that person's supervisor that the last imbecile he spoke to uh, wasn't understanding him or something along those lines. Like, I was a little bit rude, but Okay. It's not like he threatened someone. It's not like he wrote anything vulgar. He said basically the last imbecile wasn't getting it or something like along those lines. They banned like the most active player on the site. Can you imagine? Even if a, a huge site did that, it's a big mistake. But can you imagine a site trying to build traffic bans one of their most active players for using the word imbecile about a third party in a support email? Is that excellent customer support? Or is that customer support run by idiots? By the way, the one who did the ban was the head of customer support. It was just clueless as all around. Well, and they had all that time to to train them leading up to the uh, actual <laughs> launch, too. It's kind of surprising. Right. They should have been training them during that time. Say, okay, now if someone calls you an imbecile or calls one of your coworkers an imbecile in an email to you, you don't ban them. You make sure to keep them on the site and try to de-escalate and calm them down and apologize. You don't... You know, Druff, I feel like you could be kind of the the crash test dummy for them. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like you, you could go in there and you could be the the person that goes in there and is the customer that complains about this, that, or the other thing, and and kind of tests their right. support to see right. if they can handle it. Yeah, you know? they they clearly couldn't. And of course, on two plus two, they just got killed when when they banned that guy with the imbecile thing. Like, and and I, that eventually got reversed, and Phil Galfon himself reversed it. But boy, was that a dumb mistake. Yeah, not good. So then he writes, these, along with the design and progression of our platform and the overall operation of the business, are mostly things I can't take any credit for. The Run It Once poker team is truly fantastic. Yeah, that's why we failed. Fantastic team of imbeciles. Had I not made the mistakes I did, perhaps we'd have been able to grow large enough to stay in the rest of the world markets and head towards the U.S. I'll never know. Well, I'll know. Yes, you would. (laughs) You could be where GG Poker is right now, and you're not. I do have some regrets. But more than anything, now that I can add our experience to everything we did well, I'm feeling very optimistic about what we'll be able to accomplish this time around. I'm not, but okay. We've poured our hearts, minds, and souls into Run It Once Poker. We didn't accomplish everything that we set out to, but we're far from finished. Long live poker. That's been their slogan. Phil Gelfon. That's it. So, okay, now time to do some analysis of this whole thing. There's obviously a lot to say that we still haven't... uh, touched on yet 
there's a lot of different reasons why this thing failed. We've already talked about some of them. They brought a lot of features there that they spent time, money, and energy on that they shouldn't have, at least not at the beginning. The beginning, the goal should have been build a basic, and I hate to use the word because Phil's going to get mad, but cookie-cutter poker site that has all the basic features that one would expect of a late 2010s poker site. And that's what you have to get done first, and the innovations need to come second. Now, you have to have the ability to add these innovations on top of what you've already built, but you need the basics in place, and they didn't have it. So no multi-table tournaments, no resizable tables were the two big things that were missing. And those were huge things they were missing. It, in 20-whatever-it-was, as long as it's in the 2000s, the idea that you have windows that aren't resizable is just ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Like it, it, <laughs> I don't even get it. So actually, when I, when I used to work a software job, I was a software developer myself in the early 2000s. And I remember, I, I think it was around like 2000, where I was instructed to take previous software that was written in the 90s and change it so the windows can be resizable. And I did. It wasn't very fun. You poor but, bastard. Yeah, <laughs> but as I said, it wasn't fun, but I did it. So yeah, that, that's this was not uh, in 2021 or 2020 when this was happened. This is in 2000. So yeah, it's crazy. I mean, like PokerStars had this either at the very beginning or shortly after the very beginning, and this we're talking about near 20 years ago. So and, and this gets back to what I was saying about you have to have those three things. You need marketing, product owner, and tech team to do it. It reminds me of that. God, I don't remember his name. Who was that cube douchebag? That guy that was building the cube and had oh, the cube tournament. Crap. No, I'm oh, forgetting his name now, too. I forget his name, but he was someone that I actually potentially was going to do uh, some, some work for. And his kind of rationale was that, ah, you know, the tech implementation doesn't make a difference. You know, all he was focused on was getting investor money coming in. He's like, ah, the rest will take care of itself. Well, no, when you're building something that is primarily a tech platform, it actually does make a fucking difference. You know, you really do need to get that shit right. Yeah, it, w- it was Alex Dreyfus, by the way, the global poker That's league. right. Yeah. That's right. There's some. He, he apparently borrowed money at the World Series one year and didn't pay it back. And a lot, lot of different uh, drama with him. But well, he one thing he did do though, and I hope that Phil did this as well is he used other people's money for everything that he did. And I'm sure Phil invested some of his own, but I hope a lot of it was other people's money. I think it was, but I don't have any info confirming that. Anyway, they put the cart before the horse with a lot of stuff they did with this poker site. So they didn't have the multi-table tournaments or resizable windows, which are essentials, and they didn't have them. But what did they have? They had these anonymous tables where nobody had a screen name and it would uh i think it would assign you some fictitious screen name and then it would have a and it would change like every day whatever if screen name it assigns you and then you would have these avatars that would change faces you couldn't change their faces like on full tilt you could change your face here it would change on its own based upon the way you're playing so if you seem to be playing wild you'll get kind of this like wild-eyed uh deranged look to your avatar if you're playing tight you'll have some kind of look indicating that you're tight or or make you look sleepy um if you look kind of like confused then you're just playing a very random style without any kind of rhyme or reason so 
the reason they do this is because they made it to where you couldn't do any kind of data harvesting of players at the table because you can't see who they are. They're anonymous tables. All the players are anonymous. So in order to get an idea of the styles of who you're playing against, they said, oh, wouldn't it be perfect if we just had the avatars showing emotions that are representative of how they're playing? This way you can sit down and immediately know the type of player that's at the table. So this doesn't target anyone. You can't do what's known as bum hunting where you only sit with fish. And you, and you target certain people you want to play against. But when you sit down, even without having played yet, you get an idea how these anonymous players are already playing before I sit down. And, and I yeah, guess that's the, what we need, Ruff. We don't need resizable windows yeah. or tournaments or anything like that. We need to be able to see this uh, emotions on the, the face of the avatar. Yeah, yeah, so there were all kinds of problems with this. And in addition to just being kind of stupid, uh, you can't see your own emotions. Only people can see you. But there is a chat room so people can type to each other about what they see. And the last thing you want is a poker site that is telling you the way you're playing and insulting your style of play. So if someone in the chat mocks you after you bad beat them, oh, look at you. Yeah, of course you only play. Of course you had aces. That's all you play. Your avatar even shows that. What a freaking nit. Or, or uh, hey, look, look, the site's showing a confused avatar for you. Even the site knows you're a fish. Like, who wants to hear that? You think fish want the site showing other players that they're a fish? You think they want the, you think it actually wants the software telling people like the, this is incredibly insulting to fish. Fish do not want the site describing them anyway. And also pros shouldn't want this because when people learn the way their avatar is being seen, which uh, as I said they can either find in the chat room or have someone else look and tell them, uh, they can adjust. If they say, "Oh, wait a minute. Why why is this site showing that I'm sleepy? Well, I must be playing too tight." Okay, so I better adjust. Oh, why is it why is it showing that I'm uh looking like I'm I'm steamed? I, I must be on tilt. I better adjust. So these these are things that shouldn't be happening. If people's play should speak for itself. You shouldn't have the site putting labels on you based on analyzing your play. That's a terrible idea anyway. Now, the site never got big enough or active enough for this type of stuff to happen where the feedback affected traffic. But I'm saying if it did become big, this would have been a big problem. So it was a dumb idea to begin with. And why did Giving everyone a lobotomized HUD is essentially (laughs) what it is. It is, yes. It's a lobotomized heads-up display. Exactly. So so that is why they put this in place was because uh, you can't use these heads-up displays when you can't see who's who. And you can't do the bum hunting when you can't see who's who. So Phil thought, you know what's a genius thing? What if we give people an idea of who they're playing, of like the styles of players they're playing against, but we don't allow data mining? Ah, it's a perfect middle ground. Ah, perfect. Perfect for Rex and pros. Exactly what like a poker site should be. Yeah, but nobody wants it. It's dumb. It's it's, it, it's like our, our hypothetical um, buffet, right? doing something like having lots of different napkins with stupid shit printed on them that people can pick from and not having entrees. You know yeah. what I mean? It, it is that trivial and pointless. Yeah. And and like I saw just about nobody even praising this feature. There are a few people who are kind of indifferent to it, but the, I saw bashing of this feature. I had some people, I saw some people going, well, yeah, maybe it's okay. No one was excited about this. They spent time, money, and effort on developing this when they should have been developing multi-table tournaments and resizable windows. Why they spent time on this... That's the key right there, Drew. The key is that it's not that this necessarily... I I do agree with you that there there are bad and downsides to this, but it's not like it's the most 
atrocious thing in the world, but it's the garnish. You know, it's what yeah. should be done after all the basics are, yeah. are there in place. Yeah. So th- this was a, a central piece of the site. Uh, the splash the pot thing, as I already described, that was another uh, central part of the site. Well, Phil was so insulted. I saw this in previous blogs. He was so insulted that people were not that excited about splash the pot. Now, I will say that splash the pot in some ways is kind of a cool idea. In what that, is it? I don't remember. That's where uh, a certain percentage of the rake, at the time it was 51% of the rake collected, would go towards Splash the Pot, which every so often a random table would have a bunch of money dumped in the center that was adding right, so to the pot. So it's rake back that goes in the middle. All yes, right, that goes okay. in the middle, and whoever wins the hand gets it all. So, all right. so um, okay, that's uh, that's not a bad idea. I can see where recreational players would get excited by it. But here, here's they even messed that up. How'd they mess this up? Because they called it 51% rakeback. And that's not what rakeback is. Rakeback means that you're going to get a certain percentage back of either the rake you paid or the average rake paid at the table while you were there. There's two different ways of calculating it, but it's not really important. But roughly, you're going to get back an agreed-upon percentage of whatever rake is either paid or that you paid uh, while you're at the table. And that at the end of the month, you're going to get such a payment, and that's going to help offset any losses or increase your profits, or some people are break-even players, and they, they end up uh, profitable thanks to Rakeback. And this has been the model since the mid-2000s, and a lot of sites have done it. So he says 51% Rakeback. Well, that sounds cool. That's, that's a lot better than most other sites give. But this isn't Rakeback. What this really is, it's a jackpot. It's a yeah. jackpot that uh, is not given out all at once. It's a jackpot that's given out in pieces, randomly to certain tables and uh that's all it really is it, it would be like commerce when they're dropping that dollar for the jackpot calling it rake back every time they hand out a jackpot to somebody because there's a uh two very big hands that that, that are at the table at the same time so a straight flush beats again, quads and they oh here's your rake back people would laugh at them yeah again this feature i actually i don't have too much bad to say about what i, I agree with you i do think it's a probably a better feature than the uh whatever that stupid emoticon thing was for their avatars but again it's a garnish feature you know what i mean it's something that you add on top after you have the basics nailed yeah and and so and so what happened here with this and the reason i'm talking about why it's not rakeback what got phil angry is that a lot of these grinders were not interested in coming over for this quote 51 percent rakeback because these grinders what they really wanted was real rake back that was fairly predictable. I, I put in this volume yeah. every month. I'm going to get roughly this much back. They don't want to have to get lucky and have it appear at their table and then have to win the pot. It just it, it's too much variance. So they they don't want to deal with it. People just wanted real rake back. Now, if they want to have this additionally as some kind of promotion, that's great. I don't think this is a bad idea. But this is not something in place of rake back. Nor should you call it rake back. But that's what they did. So Phil was really angry about this, and in fact, in a blog. He actually wrote that in the 2000s when he came up, everybody was looking for different edges they could get, and they were willing to try any new thing in order to get these edges. And pros today are just so stuck on old ideas that they don't see what a tremendous opportunity it is. Because if you're a better player, you're going to win the splash the pot more often. And uh, he's, he's telling all these reasons why this is actually going to go more into the hands of pros than rec- recreational players. So it's actually better than 51% rakeback. Why don't they realize this? Blah, blah, blah. Like, Phil, if you say 51% rakeback, and then you're really not giving 51% rakeback, if you're doing it in the form of a jackpot type thing, there's going to be players who are not interested if they're grinders. And you have to understand the market. You can't be saying, well, how come you're not adventurous like I was? No, they, this is... I wrote in the thread 
before. I wrote it just recently, and I'll say it now. This is like opening up a restaurant in small town Montana with avant-garde cuisine that's very expensive, and then nobody wants to come to your restaurant. They're just looking for a good steak in the pota- steak and potatoes place. And then when nobody comes and your restaurant fails, you go, what's the problem with this community? Why, why are these people so gauche? Why don't, why don't they want to try avant-garde cuisine like this? What's the problem with people here? Well, you opened up in small town Montana. What did you expect? So, so you, you can't just decide, Phil, because you would have liked this feature that everybody is going to like this feature or that grinders should like this feature. You don't know why they're playing poker. Maybe they want a predictable uh, income stream from the rake back that you're not giving. It's not up to you to decide that. That's why you do market research. That's why you try to figure out what the people want and you try to build around that. You don't have to do exactly what everybody wants and you can try to innovate around that, but you can't just completely oppose what the market wants and then get mad when it doesn't succeed. Or, or scratch your head and say, I don't know what's wrong here. So that's what was happening. Now, this didn't all happen in a flash where he tried this, it failed, and then that was that. There was plenty of time to change this and turn it around, and he resisted. And this was one of the biggest problems. They had time. Remember, they launched almost three years ago. And there was a lot of negative feedback once they launched. Prior to launching, there was a ton of positive feedback, even about some of these questionable ideas like Splash the Pot being raked back and these stupid avatars. Even with that, it was mostly positive on 2 Plus 2. People were excited. But once they saw the actual product and everything it lacked, people started to post what they didn't like. And while Phil was polite, he was in the thread, and he was polite to people, but he was very dismissive. He was politely dismissive. He didn't fight with people or argue with people or call anyone names or call anyone stupid or even call anyone wrong. But he made it very clear that he wasn't changing these things. He made it very clear that they're staying the course. So he didn't only lack market research. He had free market research on 2 Plus 2 who yeah, are constantly giving him... He's not listening him, to his customers. Yeah, they're giving him yeah. feedback. I mean, how perfect is this? You usually have to spend a lot of money on market research to get the answers of what the market wants. Here, the market is sitting right here saying, hey, Phil... For free, here's what we want. And you have so many different people participating in that thread. And you can see from the posting history, these aren't trolls. These aren't people looking just to pick on you or bash your site for fun. There were a few of those too, but there were a lot of people who wanted this to succeed that were all basically saying the same thing. We don't like this for X and Y reason. And they were mostly in agreement. And Phil's like, nah, nah, you know, we're, we're going to stay the course. We're, we're still going to do it this way. Thank you for the su- suggestion, but we're, we're, we're going to be... Uh, keeping this way and just but wait coming up are some great new features that, that's what he kept saying to everybody so mm. of course nothing changed how can you have this from your own customer base the ones that are actually playing not even people like me who can't play because i'm in the u.s people in europe and elsewhere that could actually play were saying phil i'm playing on the site here's why it's not good here's what you need to change Nah, I don't agree. Nah, you know, like, like uh, we're not going to do that. I'm sorry. You know, thank you for your feedback. But like, no, if if you're doing great, sure. But if if people don't want to play there, if there's no activity, you got to look at yourself and say, hmm, why is this not working? So let's see. People aren't coming here, and people are coming to GG Poker, which is relatively new. But people are not coming to my site, and we have people, who, well-meaning people on Two Plus Two, are telling me what's wrong, and they're mostly in agreement with one another. Hmm. Maybe we should change course? No, no, no. Let's, let's, let's keep doing the same. They, they just don't know 
what's good for them. And that, that's what was happening. So, and and Dref, to your point about the rake back, I mean, I, I can see how that would be disconcerting to some grinders because you got to remember that there are a decent number of people that they're rake back pros. Like literally, they they probably are break even players unless they get the rake. So for them, if it, they really would need it, an actual dependable rake in order to for it to be viable for them to play there, not this random thing that's dropped in the middle. You know. Yeah, and. When I say they put the cart before the horse, they were solving problems that don't exist for new sites. These are problems which only start when the site becomes successful. Things like well, Jeff, you've had a, you've heard of uh, fancy poker play, like fancy poker syndrome. Yes, you know, this is basically fancy product syndrome. Yeah, it you is. I mean? <laughs> they were solving products. They were solving yeah. problems which didn't exist yet, like bum hunting, like heads up display usage. Uh, they were solving these things that couldn't be a problem until they become successful. So why not just put up, I hate to say it again, a cookie cutter poker site with some innovations on top of it. And if you start to see problems with uh, bum hunting and heads up displays, then you can start innovating to solve these problems. But is this uh, not literally what GG Poker did? That is exactly what they do. Yes, <laughs> GG Poker. I was going to say they did you have know? innovations. They, in fact, Negreanu was promoting this when they hired him, and he was making videos about GG Poker. He was emphasizing that GG Poker wasn't just a, another poker site; that they also had a lot of cool innovations, which they did, and they did it right. They presented a site that people. But they had resizable windows and yeah, tournaments. Yeah, first. it was a site that people right. liked in yeah. general, and then yeah. they added things on top of it that thought people may enjoy, and and that's how you do it. You don't, you don't uh, solve problems before they even exist, and spend all your resources on those non-existent problems, and and leave out the basics. And and for him to not see that was the main reason it failed, is crazy. And 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 the fact that he couldn't see that for three years. And the fact that it looks like he still can't see it as they're going to move to the U.S. market is crazy. But let's move to the U.S. market thing because I think we've uh, touched I mean, on the this. The only other thing I would, would add to that, Druff, is that maybe they were somewhat hamstrung and that some of these quote-unquote basic features were just beyond the scope or beyond the ability of the, the team that they hired. But still, man, I, I agree with you, him not being able to see and diagnose that the what really went wrong is kind of worrying. If I was an investor, I would be worried about that more than anything else. Yeah, and it's important for people to know that just because you're a nice guy and someone who isn't rattled easily and you have a positive demeanor, that doesn't mean that you're necessarily humble or open to new ideas. And to be successful in business, you need to be these things sometimes. And if yep. you lack that ability, then unless you came up with such a great idea from the start that it's going to kick ass, kind of like Steve Jobs did with the iPhone, then you're going to fail. So if if you've started something that needs work and you can't accept it, then it's going to fail. And that's the problem is Phil Galfon, for as nice as he is, he also wasn't humble. He also wasn't uh, willing right. to believe that maybe his vision wasn't correct and that maybe these grinders were right. Maybe these aren't just uh, people who are who just don't know what's good for them. Maybe... You didn't know what the market really wants, and that's yeah. When you, when you're doing a post mortem in terms of trying to figure out what went wrong, you have to be radically honest, and you have to put your ego aside. And it does not seem like he's able to do either. Yeah, and it's funny because in poker, maybe because he's always successful in poker whenever he played. 
because I found myself many times having to have a serious talk with myself about uh, the strategies yep. I'm using and say, okay, why am I going through this losing streak? Has it just been two months of bad luck? Or is it that uh, the game has changed some and the way I was winning before isn't working anymore? And if I've determined that what I'm doing isn't working anymore, then I will adjust the strategy and I might even change where I'm playing or what I'm playing so so I can uh, turn this around. I'm not going to just keep beating my head into the wall saying, no, this this worked last year. It must still work now. Like if I did that, I'd be broke. Yeah. So that's a, that's a really good analogy because I think in order to be a successful poker player, you have to be brutally honest with yourself. And if you're not, as you said, you, you're going to have a really hard time. And it's the same in business when you're doing this. And that that is somewhat surprising to me that he was able to be so successful in poker and you know at least from what i remember of him doing poker videos very very honest with himself in terms of his plays and things he did right and things that he did wrong i'm surprised that he's not able to carry that over into the the business aspect yeah, of things yeah I, I was i was surprised too so let's yeah. let's talk about the move to the us now that that's the second part of this whole thing so first of all I understand why they're doing it. I, I had some people saying, this this is insane. Why would he even try this? It's it's obviously going to fail, and they're just going to waste more money, and this is moronic. Well, I actually somewhat understand what they're doing here. Because if you take a look at it, building the software, while it's still not complete, and that's a problem, but building the software is a very big expense of which uh, there's been a lot of money put in already. And there is a product that exists. It's not, they don't have to start from scratch again. They just have to continue development of it and, and finish it off. But there is an existing product. And they have a general structure of, of the business and, and the way they've set everything up. There's a lot of time, money, and effort that has gone into this that if they don't try something else is wasted. It has very little value beyond continued operation. They could sell the software for maybe a little bit of money, but nowhere near what they put into it or what they put into the company. So the the value of the company is almost zero if they just shut down. It's not, it's not like one of these things where, uh, let, let's say you own a restaurant that failed, but you can sell it to another restaurant that's going to take over all your equipment, which is very expensive to start off. Uh, so you can at least get that yeah. money out the door. Here... They can't get that much selling this out the door, so I don't even know if there's a market for it. So, uh, probably if they had any software patents, which is unlikely, um, but if they did, that would be something they could sell. They could sell their customer database. Um, probably there's very little value in the poker software itself. So yeah, I don't I don't think that they'd be able to get a whole bunch of money for it. Yeah. So. Uh, their choices then are to either just liquidate this and not get very much or to try one final Hail Mary to not have this all go to waste. So while this is a good chance a fool's errand for we're going to get into why that's probably going to not work, what they want to do, I can understand with everything they've already put into it why they want to take this final shot now, you may think of the sunk cost fallacy, which, in fact, <laughs> when I discussed this with Calawatt before, with he was mentioning, yeah. and, I, and I agree, th- th- there's definitely a sunk cost fallacy to the, the whole thing. And, and why don't you tell everyone exactly what that is? So the sunk cost fallacy 
it's where a person is reluctant to abandon a course of action because they've already invested heavily in it. Yeah. Even if the idea is like I've spent so much money on this already, I can't give up on it now. Yeah. You know? Even if the 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 optimal decision is really just to give up and, and let the money go and let the effort go just just to give up on it is is the correct decision some people yep. can't just because of what they already put into it so that's that's sunk cost fallacy and that obviously you that sounds like it applies here and it sort of does apply here but at the same time i can understand if they can really accomplish this without a lot of additional money and without a lot of additional effort if they say look this is our last chance let's at least take it fine so I don't even think it's as dumb as an idea some people are saying. However, am I optimistic it's going to work? No. And we'll get into why here. I mean, you're right that given that the value that they have in their company is probably not a whole lot, that <laughs> they probably don't have a whole lot of choices. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So let's get to the U.S. market, the reasons I think it's not going to work. The U.S. market is not a good place for online poker. And it, it Is it still a wasteland? Yes. And uh, mm. here so here's the the big problem is that this is 2022. This is not 2013. And the reason there's a big difference is in 2013, it was an unknown how much interest there would be in legalized and regulated online poker at the state level. I had some suspicions that smaller and medium-sized states were just not going to have a very big player pool, but no one saw it in practice yet. So it was possible, especially since it wasn't that far from Black Friday, that if a site got going around like 2013, that it would do fairly well. Not like old poker stars, but it would do fairly well. I didn't think it would, but I, I thought it had a chance. Well, we've seen the results of all this. The first legalized and regulated U.S. poker site went up in the middle of 2013. That was Ultimate Poker, which no longer exists. And it no longer exists because it failed. We have seen in those more than eight and a half years since that legalized and regulated online poker at the state level just is not attracting a lot of people and never will unless they get bigger player pools feeding into the whole thing, meaning either very large population states such as California, New York, Texas, Florida, or more importantly, a combination of states, preferably some large ones, that all feed into the same player pool to where you can have 100 million plus potential population feeding into it. That, that's what you need. You, you can't have these, a state with 3 million people is not going to make a site that's successful. A state with 10 million people isn't going to do it. A state with 20 million or even uh, with 20 million combined from a few states isn't going to do it. They'll have a viable site that can generate some money, but but not very much. So this has been a fail. And not only that, poker is slowly dying. Po you may not notice it from the World Series because they do a good job marketing, but poker really is slowly dying every year. And that's just making it harder and harder to succeed. Now, I'll tell you what's not dying. I'll tell you what uh, is rapidly showing up throughout the country and which is growing at a very rapid rate, sports betting. Because sports betting was legalized in the U.S. to be in places other than Nevada, where before it was restricted only to Nevada, now that it's at the state level that it can be decided whether to have legalized sports betting, and many states have gotten on board now, sports betting has exploded. And people have a very big appetite for sports betting, and the leagues 
have embraced it. Whereas before, sports betting was something that would just happen on the side and the leagues hated it. Now, sports betting is ingrained in American sports culture. So it's become something very acceptable to do. And that is where there's a lot of excitement on the part of these casinos to have sports betting, both brick and mortar and online. So the sports betting market is huge. And it's expanding into a lot of different states. Every few months, another state pops up with uh, legalized sports betting. California doesn't have it yet, but we'll get to that towards the end of the show. But a lot of states do. That is where the excitement is. That's where the effort's going to be. That's where the marketing is going to be. Online poker, while once considered a cash cow because they were looking at sites like Poker Stars and Full Tilt and seeing how well they were doing, at least we thought how well Full Tilt was doing, those days are over. It is seen now that legalized and regulated online poker just uh, either loses money or at best like breaks even. It's just not really that coveted. So why would casinos want to put a lot of time, money, and effort into it or into even promoting it? Now, I'm not saying it won't expand some because it may ride along in some of these places with sports betting legislation. Because a lot of times when sports betting is legalized, so are online casino games and so is online poker. So I'm not saying it won't expand. I'm saying it's never going to be a priority. Poker is now relegated to being the redheaded stepchild of the legalized online gambling world, whereas sports betting is the prodigal son. And that's the way it's going to stay. Yep. So this is a big hurdle because it's not like Phil can just find some partner, which isn't simple either, but it's not like he just finds some partner casino to, to use their license in the U.S. and slap run at once on there and just print money. The, these poker sites are not even making money in a number of these places. It's, it's failing big time in some places. Now, how do I know that? Well, because there's a site called Poker Scout, which tracks these things, which isn't perfect, but it's, it's decent. And, and you get a fairly good picture of what's going on. Now, if you'd like to see the U.S. poker market, go to pokerscout.com slash U.S., all lowercase, pokerscout.com slash U.S., If you'd like to see the world market, then just go to PokerScout.com, and you can compare the two. Now, scrolling down, I'm on the U.S. version right now, and PokerScout is a a site that keeps track of the traffic on all these sites, both uh, uh, an average over seven days, present, and uh, peak over the last 24 hours. So... Wow, WSOP is number one? Well, WSOP is number one because there's not that much competition, and also they are now a combined pool between Nevada, New Jersey, and Delaware. But even with that, even with that combined pool, which is like in the, like, what, like maybe 15 million population total, 14, 15 million, their seven day average is only 300 cash players on the whole site, which is not very much. And their peak is usually like a little under 600. And that's the best one. That's the second best one, actually. The best one is uh, um, PokerStars Pennsylvania. Oh, I, I thought this was games. I'm like, that's not that bad, but no, it's individual it's player, players. It's players, yes. Oh, and then, and then okay. PokerStars Pennsylvania, which is Pennsylvania only, they have a, a peak of about 700 and an average of around the same of WSOP. So basically what you're looking at, though, the seven-day average, the 24-hour average over seven days is about 300 on the two best sites, 
which is WSOP, which is a combination of uh, New Jersey, Delaware, and Nevada, and Poker Stars Pennsylvania, which I think they're both looking at about the same population because Pennsylvania is a bigger state than those other three. So I think those three combined is about equal to Pennsylvania. So that's not a lot of players, and that's not going to make money. And and th- those are the good ones. Now here's some other ones right now. It still shocks me, Druff, that after all this time, I haven't really been paying attention to the online poker in the U.S. at all. It really shocks me that all this time has passed and they haven't got combined player pools for these sites. Yeah, and, and the problem is they're just losing enthusiasm to do it because it's just not making much money and they're just not seeing dollar signs by putting the effort to do it. So Poker Stars New Jersey <sighs> only averages 120 players. Party Poker New Jersey averages 90 players. Poker Stars Michigan, which is one of only two sites in all of Michigan, averages 190 players. BetMGM Michigan averages only 80 players. That's a fail. And BetMGM Pennsylvania is a real fail. Only 40 players average. And that's it. That's the entire U.S. regulated market. That's bleak. Very bleak. And, and it's, it's not like it's improving. These are, uh, like People are excited. Oh, Poker Stars Pennsylvania is going to be big. Well, okay, it's, it's, it's about doing what WSOP is doing in those uh, three states combined. But it has nowhere to go. It's been stuck around these traffic numbers since it started. Same with uh, Michigan. So this is what you're going to see. So let's say California got one. Would it be better than these numbers? Yes, because California has a, a very large population of like one-ninth of the U.S. population, so like about uh, 40 million. So yeah, that's, uh, but, but that's still about the population of Pennsylvania and New Jersey, Delaware, Nevada combined. Maybe a little bit more, but kind of fairly close to that. So what are they going to get? 600 players? A thousand at best, yeah. I and mean, it's still not going to do it. Now, you say, well, what would be a successful site then? What are they looking for? Well, let's look at the world version, which world, of course, is minus the U.S., which is a big minus. But let's take a look at the non-U.S. sites. Poker Stars, which is non-U.S. Poker Stars I'm talking about, 5,800 is their average. 5,800 yeah. compared to 300 for the best site in the U.S. Factor of almost 20. GG Poker, 5,600, as I mentioned before, doing very well. Oh, Phil must look at that number <laughs> for GG Poker and just go, what the fuck? So that's what they've got to get to. Are they even listed to. on here anywhere? I Let's think see. if you go way to the bottom. <laughs> 16. <laughs> They're averaging 16 oh, players. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. They're number 62, and I have not heard of any of these fucking sites that are around there. Cubia and Ac- Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so that is bleak. The U.S. market, and, and keep in mind these brands aren't no-name brands. We're talking about Poker Stars, Party Poker, 888. These are big brands, and they're yeah. still not doing very well. So and, and they can boost, like, even if, I'm assuming that they're making some money from this, but even if they're not, a lot of these bigger brands, are they can be buoyed by their worldwide market. You know what I mean? They can play the long game, whereas if... If Phil is putting his, all his eggs in this one basket, he can't. Right, you know? right. Uh, poker stars can say, hey, we can afford to wait because we're kicking ass so much in the rest of the world. So we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll lose money or break even here. And maybe at some point, uh, California, Florida, New York, Texas will join in and we can, right. they can all combine right. pools and we'll, we'll have a nice, uh, a, a nice site going. Which, which That's the only possibility. Now, you can say, well, maybe Phil's just got to wait for that. Well, yeah, if it, I would say if the forecast was going to be that by the end of 2022, we were going to have California, Texas, New York, and Florida with online poker, all combining player pools. 
then yes, Phil Galfon would be smart to try to get in on that. But this but could he be. He would a ver- also be competing with a whole lot of established players. Well, right. You know? so that's the other problem. Yeah. Is that so? Number one, who knows how long it's going to be until there's a, a significant population that's going to feed into these sites. And number two. What about the existing sites that already have very big brand names that are going to attract people? And you may say, well, what about Phil? He can attract people. Well, not really. <laughs> Phil Galfond is very well known by pro and semi-pro and, uh, shall I say, uh, active recreational players. But for people who just kind of know about poker but don't play very much or don't play at all, nobody knows who yeah. he is. Yeah, they think he's the wizard from Lord of the Rings, you know. <laughs> yeah. They don't know who the fuck he is. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah, so so you'll you'll have people who kind of sort of pay attention to poker and you'll say name some poker players you know. They go um Doyle Brunson, uh Daniel Negreanu, Phil Helmuth. Like those are the big names in poker that you think of if you're like a very casual fan. None of them are going to say Phil Galfond. If you pay a lot of attention to poker, then you'll know Phil Galfond, but he's not a well-known player from a marketing standpoint that's going to drive in a lot of recreational players just because of his name. And that's not going to be enough. I will say that this is something that obviously isn't specific to Phil Galfond. So poker stars failing in the U.S. is not Phil Galfond's fault. Party poker failing in the U.S., like the New Jersey party poker being a fail site, that's not Phil Galfond's fault. It's just the market's fault. The market just isn't there right now. And Phil Galfond walking into that, even if he does do everything right, would fail just because the market isn't there. But then compounding that is that, number one, there has to be some reason people are going to want to join one run at once instead of these other very established and well-liked brands. And number two, they, they have to fix these issues. You think the anonymous tables are going to fly when people can play on poker stars without anonymous tables? No, no one's going to want that. So, yeah, but they get the you know the funny faces. Yeah, they get a funny table. face. That's true. If you like yeah. funny faces, that's uh, it's super. They can't market to children. Children might like funny faces. <laughs> Look at that person. He's mad. He's mad. He just lost the pot. He's mad. <laughs> like that's. I guess. I guess if you could market to like Benjamin's age, you might do well. But no, that's that's, that's not going to work with the crowd you're trying to market to. So this is already not a good plan just from the market itself, and I don't think he's learned very much. I really don't think he's learned a thing for, for the, like from the real reasons it failed. Sure, he can look at the, the software team he had in place first, and I'm sure that contributed to it. And Yes, he, he can see that, but he can't see going forward what he needs to do differently. Or if he has, he's not revealing it there in that blog. Now, one other thing I want to say, because I did get some inside information. Most of this was just observation on my part. Everything I've said up till now was just me looking and drawing conclusions, but nothing that was told to me in confidence. But there was one thing told to me in confidence, and I will reveal this to you guys. We need the dun-dun-dun. Yeah, I, I, I was given permission to say it. I was told by someone who was involved with the project that they were completely perplexed that the site had a marketing budget of Zero point zero. That's what I was told. Wow. Someone told me the marketing budget was actually zero and that they couldn't understand it. And by the way, this person was not a hater. 
as I said, they were actually involved with the project. They believed in the project. They were actually much more bullish on the project than I ever was. And this was the one thing that they were just so bothered by because they knew they were watching a train crash in slow motion and they knew it, that there was actually a marketing budget of zero, this person told me. And they knew that it would fail without any kind of marketing plan or budget. They didn't have a marketing plan, according to this person. They just basically felt like it would take care of itself. And this person said to me, I really don't think they appreciated the the competitiveness of the industry they were in. That was a direct quote. Remember, from I told you you needed three things, yeah. and I gave them credit that they had the marketing. That that is, that is absolutely tragic. This is field of dream shit. I guess <laughs> Phil thinks he'll just build it and they'll come. Yes, like, that was exactly fuck? what happened. That's exactly what he thought. Uh, greatest idea in the world doesn't mean shit if you can't build it. Doesn't mean shit if you can build the thing if you can't let anyone know about it. I mean. Yeah, no, he, he actually, uh, this person actually snuck in a recording of one of the business meetings for potentially marketing run at once. If you build it, you will come. <laughs> All right, Drew, this is driving me crazy because these are, are two absolutely classic rookie mistakes of people trying to enter the tech sector to build something is people thinking that the idea is all that matters and that the tech implementation is, you know, it doesn't matter. We can get anyone to do it. And number two, that if we build this thing, it's going to be so awesome that we don't need to mar- have a marketing budget. That is complete nonsense. Both of those are just rookie, rookie mistakes. Yeah. I, I was surprised to hear it was that extreme. I knew that the marketing budget was very low. And it's funny because he mentions in the blog, oh, we wasted money on that first dev team that we could have used for marketing. Well, yes, but that doesn't mean they just say, okay, we'll just take it for marketing. We'll have zero for marketing. But according to the person who told me this, it wasn't like Phil said, well, we were going to market, but we wasted so much on the last dev team, we can't afford it now. They were basically saying, we don't need to do it. It's just something that's going to happen on its own. And I kind of yeah. got that feeling a long time ago reading their plans because they had this thing called Streamer, which is spelled S-T-R-E-A-M-R with a capital R, lowercase stream, capital R. Streamer by itself wasn't a bad idea, and that was where they are compensating people who are going to stream their poker play on run at once. And depending on how much they stream and how many viewers they get, that they'll give them more and more rake back. Okay, that's not a bad idea. But that can't be your entire marketing plan. That's got to be a small piece. Yeah, that's using other people to market. You know what, Druff, I bet you that he was lulled into believing that it wasn't necessary because probably run it once the training site he didn't really need a whole lot of marketing to get that up and running yeah but that's a, that's an entirely different thing because then he does have people that he directly knows who would be interested in in that product right everyone who is a, a pro or an aspiring pro be like oh phil goflin i'd love to be able to play like him yeah right. I'm definitely going to sign up for his site you know what i mean yeah that sells itself right all he has to do is put on his twitter poker yeah. site you're trying to reach a completely different demographic of people, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. Like marketing a, tra- a training site, you just have to be a very successful player and put it out on yep. your Twitter and word gets yep. around. Oh, I want to learn how to play like Phil Galfon. I want to learn how to play like Doug Polk. That's why yep. guys running these these uh, sites do well. Look, even even look at Bart Hansen. He's, uh, he was a well-known uh, commentator on uh, Live at the Bike yep. all this time and, and known to be a good player and to be, people like 
Bart's analysis, and they say, okay, well, what what if we could learn uh, how to play poker from him? So that's that does well as well. It's just you you have to. So that's a totally different thing than a, attracting players to a poker site. People don't care if Phil Galfon's good at poker when you yep. play on his poker site. It doesn't matter. If and he's this good is the same in a number of different spheres. So I see it in the tech business too, where you have people that are very well known or very successful. They're able to then leverage that to make you know, training videos to show you how you too can do what I did. And it's called domain expertise. And it makes sense that he would be able to uh, parlay his notoriety and his success in poker to a training site. And maybe that lulled him into a false sense of him not needing it for this stuff. Yeah, it, pr- it probably was something like that. But I, I know this yeah. person was exasperated. And as I said, this was a person who believed in the project. This person didn't even have some of the same concerns and criticisms I did. But the marketing thing drove them crazy because they knew when they heard about this that this was the situation there. They're like, oh, no, no matter what else we do right, this is going to fail. And that person was just so frustrated to see that. And they they told me this. And they told me they were very uh, sad to see this. And that that was someone on the inside who told me this. So I have a large chunk of most businesses is a marketing budget. Yeah. I mean, that's that's incredible. Now, I I will put the asterisk here that I don't have any proof that what the person told me is correct, but the person well, who told me this... what ads have we seen? Yeah, have we, we have, seen right. We, have, we haven't seen... Advertisements on right. poker sites and poker publications. Right, and, it adds up. Yeah. And, and second, yeah. uh, the person who told me has never lied to me before, and so I, it wasn't just like a random who came out of the blue. I don't want to give too many clues as to who it is, but... Um, well, I, I think just empirically we can look around and say, well, you know, if they do have a marketing budget, where the fuck do they spend it? Yeah. You know? So that's that's uh, was not a good situation, and that also was a huge contributor to what happened. So anyway, I, I'd i be shocked if this ends up succeeding in the U.S. market. Even if Phil listens to this show and says, oh, my God, I can't believe it. Dandruff was right. Calwatt was right. What a fool I've been all this time. Okay, guys, from now on, we're going to put all the focus into quickly developing an MTT offering. We've already got a resizable tables now, and uh, we're going to listen to the community. All these mistakes we made before, I figured it all out, guys. I'm not going to make these same mistakes now. I'd say, great, but how are you going to succeed in the U.S. market when poker stars and party and 888 can't? You know, this reminds me of something that I see all the time in the product business is that people will hit on a product that, for whatever reason, ends up being successful. And what they make of the tragic mistake of thinking that they are then geniuses that can just create arbitrary products that are going to do well, you know, when really what they should be doing is doubling down on the thing that does well, you know. And it sounds like he just, you know, he, he thought he could parlay his success with a run at one training site, a run at once training site into, into a poker site. And they really are, they may seem similar, but they're really entirely different beasts with entirely different markets. I mean, wow, man, Druff, uh, the, the free roll, we're down to three people. Oh so my, we're, we're deep into the money. I watched, I was rooting for Kit Kat because I saw, I think it's a her, right? It is a her. It's, it's a female listener we have. Yes. Yeah. So she took, some of the absolute most brutal beats at the final table. I mean, just absolutely monstrous. Like she, she opens, and I'm not going to use the give the name of the person who did it. But and then someone shoves on her, and it's ace queen versus her queens, and she loses. Right? 
And then also uh, Ace, Ace Queen against Ace Jack. She lost and all in. All, just was getting pummeled. She still did good. Came in like fourth or fifth. But man, <laughs> it was just brutal to watch. Well, brutal. Yeah, her, uh, Shout out to Kit Kat. You played good. Her boyfriend listens to the show also. And yeah. uh, it's probably going to be a tough night for him there with her after after those beats. The well, one, the one big free roll we she, have. Uh, she, she, walks she, made, the, she made money, you know. Well, I mean. She got like 80 bucks, though. It's not as good as the uh, well, yeah. The, the big 350. So, all right. Yeah. Well, uh, we have a few people left, so I guess we'll have a conclusion soon. Thank you for that update. I, I guess it's it's time to move on. I guess I just I don't see it. I, I I'd be shocked if this thing ends up viable in the U.S. market. But that I, one, I already thought that it was unlikely to succeed based on the decision making that I had seen gone on there over the years. You know, just kind of tangentially looking in on it and talking with you about it. But then looking at the Poker Scout numbers, I mean, they're <laughs> fucked. They are just fucked. They're beyond fucked. Yeah, I, I can't. I can't fathom it. It actually working. Oh, out. I've seen this for a long time. I, I I knew this for a long time, and I knew this was. I just didn't understand why they stayed up. But uh, okay, they can take their shot of the U.S. market. But and what's funny, by the way, I saw in the uh, Twitter because he announced this on Twitter, and there were so many people who were well-meaning but kind of delusional. Like Phil, I'm so excited for you. Good luck. I know it's going to work. And all, all these people who were giving him so much encouragement, and not just to be nice, probably also to be nice, but I could tell some of them are really believing. It. Like, wow, Phil's entering the U.S. market. Awesome. And they're like, no, guys. <laughs> so finally, Doug Polk spoke up, and he's basically saying the same stuff I am. And mm. he he spoke up and and wrote out a tweet quoting what Phil Galfon wrote and explaining why this was an epic failure. And then I yeah, you don't see Polk starting up no poker side. Yeah. He's he's going <laughs> he's going with for the influencer thing now. It seems like you know he's probably smarter. Yeah, but that was the first person I saw finally speak up and and say no, th- this actually was a failure, and it, I can't see it working in the U.S. market. Like everybody else, is like yeah, Phil, go Phil. And I'm like oh guys, well. Just looking at the Poker Scout, uh, you know, slash U.S., the U.S. market is fucking bleak as yeah. hell. And even, you know, then you go to the global market and you look at their number 62 and you look at the established players and you're like, good fucking luck. Yeah. Good luck. And and the U.S. And market said, is... poker is also, I'm sorry, but it's true. It's been declining in interest for the past decade. Yeah. You know? And it's it's not a, it's not anything that is going to be saved by some buoyed interest in it. I agree with you. I yeah, think sports it, betting it, is going to It doesn't have anywhere over. to go. As I said, at best, they, they get enough states that combine, and we have kind of an okay-ish network that, that a few established players uh, manage to run and, and turn out some profit. But it, it's it's not what they were hoping it would be by any stretch of the imagination, and to pin your hopes to that and only that before we're well, listen, ca- if, if California, there. New York, Texas, and Florida all open up, I can fucking guarantee you that Party Poker, Poker Stars, GG Poker are going to have multi-million dollar advertising budgets. And and Galfon apparently is going to have nothing. I mean, it's not going <laughs> to no, work. He's going to have Streamer, though. Don't forget Streamer. Well, I mean, that is <laughs> that's something that could work in addition to right. a, an actual marketing budget. But it's not. it can't be your only thing. Yeah. You know? And and uh, I just yeah I mean I, again, if the best case scenario happens, and let's say the whole U.S. opens up, right? And you got all these new people, and maybe there's enough for them to feed on. But as you said, the the value of a poker site really is in how many people are are playing on there. 
And I guarantee you that these established players are going to dump millions advertising their sites. Yeah, if they and, if and they're they see going to get can, buried. Yeah, if they see it can make money, they definitely will. Yeah, so there's yeah. A, there's there's this is such a, a hail mary. You guys don't even know. We might even have a, a return of the party poker inflatable uh, love doll. Remember her? <laughs> that was a great ad. I love that. Ad. I still remember that ad. I don't think we'd see that anymore. Shout out to Pooh, who thinks I'm a pervert for bringing it up. Yeah, that's true. You got to watch out what you say here. If you make any kind of sexual comment, Pooh gets very disgusted and turns it off. I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, I want to talk about Dan Bilzerian's appearance on uh, Doug Polk's show. Since we were just mentioning Polk, let's uh, jump to that. And that was interesting. That would have been our top story if it wasn't for the Galfon thing. Druff, I tried to watch it. I watched maybe half of it through the bickering part of it, and it really just seemed to be like a Twitter argument that happened to be videotaped. Like it was just, I don't know. Yeah, maybe I missed of, something, but I just, I, I could, couldn't take it. Yeah, a lot of people thought that too. A lot of people had a hard time getting through it. A lot of people were irritated by it. There were, there had, it actually got a lot of bad feedback. It wasn't overwhelmingly bad, but it was, there was a lot of bad feedback. And it was on both ends. There were a lot of people who had criticism for Bilzerian, a lot who had criticism for Polk, and a lot of them had criticism for both. <laughs> the whole thing was but just it, great. It doesn't matter because I, I guarantee you, I haven't looked at the video, but I'm sure they're he's not, getting tons of views what on I it said. just because Bilzerian was there. So Polk wins no matter what. You know, I mean, it's good for him. Yeah. So I will say that if you want to watch this whole thing, it's, uh, would you believe, two hours and 20 minutes, which I shouldn't be laughing at. I'm not going to play the laughing because i got to laugh at myself because two hours and 20 minutes is like how long we take to get through our agenda here. So when our shows are like eight hours, I can't say, oh, my God, who listens to two hours, 20 minutes? But I will say that for this one subject, just two of them talking, two hours, 20 minutes was a little bit excessive. And I couldn't even get through the whole thing. I- I'll be honest. I did not watch all two hours, 20 minutes. I watched about the first half and then kind of skimmed the rest and just didn't find it that interesting and stopped it. So I'm going to be playing the parts in the first half that I found to be interesting, and then uh, we'll stop and talk about them. And if you want to watch the whole two hours, 20, you can. If you want to start watching where the real fireworks start between them, then start around the 20-minute mark. That's what I've been suggesting. Some people are like, oh, man, this was so tedious. I couldn't stand it. I turned it off at the five-minute mark. I go, okay, fair. But go to 20 if you want to see them really arguing. Yeah, and, that's where I started. You're doing everyone a huge favor by playing <laughs> the interesting clips. And then and then it dies down, and then it gets boring again. So uh, this could have been done better for sure. And uh, not to say it didn't have some interesting parts, but uh, th- this could have been done better. And Polk usually does a pretty good job with these things, but somehow this whole thing just didn't come off that well on either side. So I'm It was p- just like bickering. You know, you said this, and no, I didn't really say that. And it was a joke, and... I don't know. The most interesting thing I got out of it was Dan Bilzerian's got tons of money, but has a fucking terrible hairstyle. Right, uh, he had this weird was. hairstyle there. It's, it's like he, it's like he has this this curly hair that's that's sticking up, and then he shaved the sides of his head, so it looks it's really a mullet weird. muffin. It's yeah. a mullet muffin. Yeah, he looks like Toad from Mario Brothers. <laughs> he does look like Toad from Mario, and he didn't look like that before. I don't know why he has that hairstyle now. Mm. And then uh, Doug Polk has his usual spiked hairstyle, a la Vanessa Selps. And yeah, he looked fine with his uh, what is it called a, a faux hawk? The faux hawk, yeah. And yeah. I don't. I've gotten used to him this way, but it's because of that faux hawk. Because that is so common for short guys to do to give themselves a few extra inches. That mm. I was shocked when I met Doug Polk in person. He's the same height as me. 
I, I could not believe it when Doug Polk wa- walked by me at the World Series. I go, what the hell? Joe, Doug Polk the same height as me? I was sure I was going to see him. He'd be like five foot six. I, I was sure of it. But nope. Maybe he's a pansexual lesbian. We don't know. <laughs> Doug Polk actually got married recently. I didn't bother to mention it here, but yeah, he got married recently. Anyway, uh, I'm going to play from the 18 minute four second mark. As I said, up till there, don't bother. It's not that interesting, but I got to be honest. Doug Polk has always come off as relatively likable and uh, pretty rational in the things that he says. And and when he says things that are, you know, outrageous, he's obviously baiting people or trolling people. You know, so I don't know. Yeah, I expected more out of this interview. Let's right, that's what that a lot of people said because I I feel the yeah. same way. When I watch Doug Polk, he does come off as rational. I do usually agree with him for the most part. And and so when he says things which. Uh, kind of surprises me or doesn't do a good job with, with an interview or something. It's kind of like disappointing. I expected better. So Yeah, even if you disagree with him, you're just like, all right, we disagree. You don't come away from it like he's a fucking idiot. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. I'm going to play this uh, 1804 mark, and this part is about the game that Bilzerian says he had with uh, super rich guy Alec Gores and also with Andy Beal, remember him, and how he won uh, $70 million in these games combined. You saying that, you know, you don't think that it's possible that I made all my money from poker, which is bullshit because I did. Um, and I can actually pretty much prove all that. So, you know, we could also talk about that. I mean, I can show you I didn't cash in my trust fund till you know, 2019. And my trust fund was not a significant amount of money. It was like a couple million dollars at the time. So and I bought my jet in 2014, you know, paid cash. So it's like, I had made a shitload of money and you can also talk to, you know, Andrew Roble. He had 5% of every time that I played um, Alec Gores and it was around $40 million I beat him out of. And Andrew Roble can show you that. Cause I, like I said, for coaching me, I gave him 5% of my win. So he knows exactly what I won and lost. And just, just that alone, that's more money than you've made in poker. So like one guy I did in one year, I made more money than you've made How in much- your poker career. And most poker players what- too, by the way. What percentage of that did you have yourself? Um, it varied. Because you said you I, sold five, but how much did you actually have for yourself? I gave Rick 10% and then he made me, I don't know, Rick probably made me like 30 million back off Not, of Andy Beal. So it was kind of like an even swap there. So let me explain what he's talking about here. Rick Solomon, who plays in these really big games, he's claiming that he had sold off 10% of himself in these games to Rick Solomon. I think 5% was given to Andrew Roble for coaching him, but that uh, he won this $40 million off of Alec Gore, gave uh, $4 million then to Rick, who had bought that 10% piece of him, and then Rick went on to take that $4 million to play Andy Beal, that really rich banker guy, and uh, and then won $30 million, and somehow that went back to Dan Blizzard. I don't exactly understand how he got all $30 million, but he's claiming from all this combined that he got $70 million. He made you 30 off Andy Beal? Yeah, I made uh, – no, I got I got like 10 and a half. He beat him for $42 million in one session. I had 25% of that. And then he beat him on a few other occasions. Maybe it was around like $20 million. <laughs> I think it's just like uh, $20 million, $30 million. Like, wait a minute. You don't, you don't forget that. If it's a, a $10 million difference, unless you're a billionaire, that, that's a pretty significant difference. You're not going to forget. Oh, wait, wait. Was it 20 or was it 30? I forgot how many million I won on that one. That's how long ago was it? I don't know. 
I, yeah, I guess, you're right. You still probably wouldn't forget. Yeah, that. you wouldn't forget that. It's such a huge amount of money. But I mean, listen, dude. Just between those two guys, like I made seventy million dollars. Like, I I don't think that you know. And 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 sorry. And Sam, I beat him for like over ten. So I'm just those three guys. That's like seventy million fucking dollars. And I don't know a lot of poker players that have made seventy million dollars. So, you know, you guys saying that you don't think that I've made a lot of money in poker. Well, I can point to three guys. That's more than, you know, you and probably your whole poker crew has made in your whole career. And I did that in a year. So, I mean, you know, and you're saying that I got it from my trust fund. Like I said, I can disprove that as well because I didn't cash my trust fund until 2019. Okay, let me stop there. He said this a few times already by this point in the video, about 20 minutes in we're at right now, where it's really about to start getting going with the fighting. And what Dan was saying was that I'm not a trust fund kid. I'm not just someone who got a big trust fund and then came into poker with a giant seed of money. I'm someone who ran up the money in poker and only a short time ago did I get my trust fund and there was only a few million bucks, which was which paled in comparison to what I had. I think he said he got the trust fund two years ago or something. So he claims that uh, he had massive money long before that trust fund, which by the time that came in was nothing compared to what he had made himself. And he keeps repeating over and over I just got my trust fund recently. Well, that does not mean that he didn't get money from his dad in other ways. Now, some of you may not know this, but his dad's name is uh, Paul Bilzerian, and uh, he got in trouble in the 80s. He was convicted of financial crimes in the 1980s, Paul Bilzerian. And there Corporate have, raider, Paul Bilzerian. Right. And there's been long rumors that Dan's money was somehow funneled over to him from his dad secretly and that uh, either Dan is just washing this money or yep. Dan or just this is the only way that no one can get to it and and to have uh, the money be explainable. So that's been long alleged and Bilzerian has been fighting this perception of him the entire way he's been claiming the whole way that he ran this up himself and that's what a lot of this video is about is the two arguing about that and and i will say and you'll hear as we play other clips that a lot of dan's stories are fairly ridiculous so just because he got his trust fund in 2019 which i believe i I, he keeps repeating this over and over probably because it's true that does not mean that there wasn't other money coming in from his dad uh at, at other times and so to me, that really yeah, means nothing. I mean, you look at this and you have, I just, I have no proof other than I have such a hard time believing that this is anything but him laundering money in some way or, you know, money acquired in some way other than the trust fund from his dad. I, it, nothing else makes any sense, you know? Yeah. And by the way, I do believe he played in these high stakes private games sure. against against some very rich guys who weren't yeah. very good and that he had the bankroll to play in them and that therefore was able to make a lot of money that the rest of us don't have the opportunity to make, or even yep. if we did have the opportunity, we're not rolled enough to play. I, I couldn't go sit down with Alec Gores and play the stakes he wants. Even if Alec Gores was like the worst player ever, I, I just wouldn't have the bankroll to sit with him. And, and oh, most he could people, bust you. <laughs> yeah, no, most people listening to this show, probably everybody listening to this show uh, couldn't do that either. So, yeah. I, I'm, so you do have to have a huge bankroll to sit in these games and also That's the... Right there has to be a willingness to invite you to them. So the, I, I do believe that Bill Zarian got access to these games much in the same way that uh, Toby McGuire did 
uh, and and that uh, he probably did make money through these games. You don't have to be the greatest poker player to, to right. beat but some the of these seed guys. Money came from somewhere. Is right. the point that right? Yeah. You, that's that's the big problem. Is that uh, right. it's not just getting invited. Like the, they could all invite me to their game right now, and a, a, a lot of these games I couldn't play in due to the bankroll requirement. And well, it's two things. It's money and access, right? Yeah. So first, the money had to come from somewhere. And then also he had to have access, very likely because his dad knew lots of rich people. No, I actually think I actually think he may have kind of created his own access, but uh, and I'll get to that eventually. But but, but initially, the, I wonder how he got in there, though. You know? Yeah. Well, we're gonna we're gonna play now the arguing that occurs. Can between I ask you them. a question, Druff? Yeah. Before we get into the arguing here, why the fuck does Dan Bilzerian care? Like, forget about how much money or how he got his money or whatever. The guy's got shit tons of money. He's living, even if his Instagram lifestyle is bullshit, he's still living an amazing lifestyle. Why the fuck does he care that people doubt where, you know, whether he won this at poker or not? Why? Why the fuck does he care? He has some ego attached to it, and for some reason it just bothers him that that people didn't Clearly. just eat up the narrative that he's one of the greatest poker players ever. What, what he wants, he doesn't necessarily want to be seen as the most skilled poker player ever. He wants to be seen as the most successful poker player ever who r- first ran it up and then got himself access to these games after he ran it up to where he had both the access and money and made huge and then can even look down on guys like Doug Polk who were also incredibly successful in poker but much less than him for what he claims because he did it the perfect way. That he made the most. That's what he wants you to look at, and he gets really yes. irritated when people look at him and go, "No, no, you just got a bunch of money that was made illegally by your dad, and then he slipped to you, and and then you got yourself into those games." You know, the people that I know that have made tons of money, they don't go on no YouTube trying to justify how they made it. You know what I mean? They're too busy enjoying it. You know, yeah, it just it blows my mind. Yeah, he does know. seem to care a lot what uh, yeah. people think about this. So, okay, I'm gonna. Continue. I guess he paid like a million dollars to be in a movie. He so did. Maybe he he did. just he paid a million really dollars to be in a movie, and they seen. and they they actually had to give him a certain amount of screen time. And yeah. then when they didn't, he sued them and won. I actually agreed with them on that one because a contract's a contract. If they take his million bucks in exchange for putting him in, and then the director cuts most of it out, he he should get the money back. I mean, that's uh, well, maybe if you inherit a whole bunch of money from your dad, maybe you have a, tri- a chip on your shoulder where you. Uh, Really feel the need to try and justify your existence. Yeah, it might be. Okay, so I'm going to play this argument coming up. And by the way, this argument coming up, I actually think Dan has somewhat of a point. The trust documents and the wires. You you, you constantly misquote me. And we, we had the same argument on Twitter in 2018 where we went back and forth. And you're just misquoting me on things. I didn't say that. I've never said there's. it's impossible that he made money in poker. It's impossible he's won money in poker. I've not said that at all. I've I've had lots of caveats, and I've even said I think that it is likely you've won in a lot of the games that you play in because those stakes are very soft. So why are you misquoting me? And you're you're misquoting me back. You're accusing me of deleting videos. You're accusing me of all this shit I didn't do. And well, then I mean, I, I mean here's your quote. I, I don't remember what exactly it was. You you said. Um, so what he's doing? The reason you hear the stuff in the background as he's talking with Doug Polk in this interview. It's a video interview. He's scrolling through some Doug Polk video on his phone and finding a segment that was made that was mocking him and cutting up his words to make him say things he didn't. And he's about to actually play it onto the show using his cell phone and then confronting Doug about it. This is the part that I mean, I agree with you that he made a good point here. But this is where I started to look at it and be like, Dan, what are you doing? Why are you? Why are you? Oh, God. (laughs) 
Anyway, here it is. They're they're right there. You said, and my parents gave me all my money. You just cut to what I said. And I said, a lot of people think that my parents gave me all my money. And in your video, you said, you just cut to where I said, my parents gave me all my money. Cutting out where I said, people think that my parents give me all my money. So once again, you're misquoting me. But hold on. Dan Bolsarian. Here we go. All his money. Parents gave me all my money. So Paul... It's a joke, Dan. That is clearly humor. Then, then you say, hold on. It's clearly a joke. It's, I mean, it's not clearly a joke. It is clearly a joke. I Google and read a name and then put a one second clip of you saying my parents gave me all my money. I mean, it's just one more example of a misrepresentation. I said people think that my parents gave me all my money and you, you cut to where I said, my parents gave me all my money. That that's another okay. clear egregious misrepresentation of what I said. That's like me saying I did not kill this person, and you fucking cut to I killed this person. I mean, it, it cutting out the not. I mean, it, that's exactly what you did, and it's fucking total bullshit. Do, do you think that? Let, let me get your take on comedy and jokes in general. Are jokes okay, or they misrepresent people? It depends on what it's talking about. You know, I mean, if it's talking about like something that's serious and that's going to negatively affect somebody's representation, you know, their, their reputation and you're misrepresenting what they said, I would say that's not a joke. If you're if you're just, you know, talking shit, then that's a totally different story. But when you're using my quotes and you're chopping up what I said to fit your narrative, that's not a joke. That's you misconstruing, you know, what's been said. OK, I actually agree with him there now. I will say that Dan Bilzerian, who makes himself into this Instagram personality and uh, stages all these scenes about how great his life is, and he's very, very public about everything. He wants you to look at his life and admire him. So he opens himself up to a lot of scrutiny and insults and criticism. So he has to expect that. This isn't just a private guy who Doug is picking on. So you do have to understand that, that uh, the more you put yourself out there, the more you're going to be ripe for parody. However, I can understand why he's irritated with this because Doug has a well-viewed channel and some people may not get it. And because this actually is a narrative that a lot of people are pushing about Dan, that when they see it on Doug Paul's channel, where Dan is saying, my parents gave me all my money, people can really believe that he said this at some point, that, that they found some interview where he admitted his parents gave him all his money. Some will realize it's a joke. Some won't. But I can see why he's irritated that some people will watch this on Doug Polk's channel and come away with the belief that he really said that. And that you can't just say, oh, it's a joke. It's a joke. Because... They they purposely edited it to look like he said that, and I think it's not obvious to everybody. It's it would be obvious to some. I would know that that he probably didn't say that, and was probably cut and and put in there out of context. But uh, some people watch this and go, oh, "Wow, you know, I, there was some interview that uh, with Joe Rogan where Bilderian said his parents gave him all his money. Wow, he's finally admitting it. Like I, I can totally see a lot of people being confused by that, and why Dan would be frustrated to see that." is being put out there and, and Doug just say, well, it's a joke. Don't you understand? It's a joke. <laughs> it's a joke. Come on, man. I'm joking. I'm joking. That I, I never like the joking excuse when you're misquoting someone and trying to make it look like they said something they didn't. That's not, that's not a joke unless it's really, really, really clear that the person's joking. Uh, but, uh, that I, you're joking. I agree with you from a perception point of view, but I still think that I, I have it in my head 
that Seriously Serious and Doug Polk were just laughing their fucking asses off when they were editing it. Like, of course they were. <laughs> of course they were. But <laughs> but, but, but still. I, part of me wants me to think that it was Thomas that did this. And he was just laughing his face off while he was doing it. I hope it was. I'm sure they were laughing. I'm sure. I'm sure they thought this is hilarious. And wait till Dan sees this, and he's going to blow his top. I'm sure. Like I'm sure that they were uh, believing that uh, this is going to get a reaction, and it did. I mean, you see the reaction that uh, that, that Bilzerian was furious about. It. And as you notice, they did argue on Twitter back in 2018, uh, as, as was referred to in this video. So I, I'm sure that uh, they enjoyed the reaction that he gave because this is someone they already had uh, somewhat of a problem with. So uh, this is still, I, I can understand why Bilzerian's irritated by it. That because, Especially yeah, because sure. this is something that's already being said about him. If this is something that's so ridiculous that you'd never believe about him, then okay, fine. But uh, like, let's say they had him saying he's gay. Like nobody would believe Dan Bilzerian's gay. So if you have him on there going, I'm gay. Like they, no one's going to go, oh, wow, you know what? I just learned Dan Bilzerian's gay. Like I can see why he wouldn't, that he could see being more like a joke rather than uh, this, which is something that a lot of people are already saying about him. And it makes Again, it I like agree with you in terms of the, the editing, right? But I, I still, I also think the reason it's funny is that it's him saying what, Pretty much everyone thinks actually happened anyway. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Or at least the official money, you know? Well, that, that's why they did it, obviously, is they were... Of course. Yeah. Of course. And I, I also think that, you know, both Thomas and Polk are master trolls, and I think they know that anything related to Dan Bilzerian will get them tons of attention and views and all that stuff, and I think they're they're playing that. I well, yeah, and this, them, this definitely you know? did get views. And yes, you do see Doug saying and doing things a lot that uh, in oh, order yeah. to get people... Looking, in fact, someone said about his Galfond comments. Well, I think Doug really does believe what he said about this. I think he put it out there, uh, which is contrary to what everybody else was saying, which is so positive towards Phil uh, in that Twitter thread. I think that Doug responded, hoping that will get attention, and maybe Phil will say, "What? I, I got to go on Doug's show now and clear the air." So I think that's probably why Doug put that out there, is hoping that welcome Phil to social media. I mean, this is how you get attention and views. You know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it's ironic in some ways because Dan Bilzerian got a whole lot of attention by doing outrageous uh, things, a lot of which was staged. You know, with uh, throwing people off roofs and shit like this. You know, so you would think that he would be like, "Yeah, okay, I see what you're doing." You know. Yeah, yeah, it is true. He does have a bit of a thin skin about this stuff. In fact, so this will get brought up by Doug uh, shortly. So let's continue. All right. So let me just get the facts straight here. You've won how many dollars roughly in poker? A hundred million, seventy million, whatever it is, right? Millions I mean, and millions of dollars. Like I said, those those three people. That's seventy okay. million. Okay, seventy million dollars. And you're sitting on seventy million dollars in poker winnings, and you're getting upset that a YouTuber that is far more poor and unsuccessful than you. Is making a joke about where you really got your money, and you're upset about that. That doesn't it's even make not, sense. It's not me. about that. It's about you questioning my integrity, and you basically making me out to you know be a liar. And you, like I said, chopping up things that I've said. It's not about how much money I've made. Look, my whole poker career, I've laughed at people like you that you know, oh Dan sucks, blah blah blah. And then I'm fucking sitting there playing with a bunch of fucking you know super rich dudes beating them for fucking tens of millions of dollars while you idiots are grinding out online for fucking scraps. I mean, it's funny to me. Like, you know, I laugh at that shit, but what I don't laugh at is when you mischaracterize what I said and you accuse me of being a liar and, and call, you know, call me a fraud or whatever the fuck it is. Like that stuff to me, 
is a lot different than when you're, you know, like saying that I, I don't care if you say that I suck at poker. I've never professed to be the best poker player. Back when I was playing, I was like one of the best players. And because and and by one of the best players, I was winning the most money and I got people to play bad against me. It's not always about making the exact right move in a situation. It's about whether or not you can exploit somebody and make the most amount of money off of them. So sometimes you have to give up some EV. Sometimes you have to do bad things. If in the future they're going to stack off for fucking, you know, whatever, 1200 fucking big blinds, the top pair, because they don't believe you. I mean, there's like a lot of things in there. There's meta. It's not just about, you know, doing things technically correct. And you always like, you know, you pointed to that session that I played in a fucking 1020, which is like, you know, I, I flipped a quarter for $3.6 million before that game. Like you, you think that I'm going to take a 1020 game seriously. We're obviously fucking around. I'm like trying to put people to test all the time. And so, it's- okay, let me stop right there because he's getting into the ten twenty game that Doug analyzed at one point pretty uh, critically, where Bolzarian was in a ten twenty no limit, and Doug felt he didn't play well. But uh, he, he was going on mocking the rest of the poker world for quote playing for scraps. Even even the high stakes players that compared to what he makes, he's saying are scraps. He's not talking about uh, one two players, but he say, oh, these people like you, Doug, you're playing for scraps. And you're mocking me while I'm getting into the best games against these super rich guys and winning tens of millions of dollars. So, you know, who's really the, the smart one here? That's, that's basically what he's saying. It didn't come off well, though, because it made it look like he's looking down on everybody. Because Doug Polk, who's and, and other guys like him who made so much money playing poker, he's classifying that as scraps. So what about the rest of us <laughs> who are making less than... Uh, Guys like Polk. I mean, that's uh, so that's really looking down on the entire poker community, and that that doesn't come off well. I, I don't know why he said it like that, but uh, he's he's very rattled. And then he went on to complain about the ten twenty criticism, which obviously got to him as well. See what Dan wants. He doesn't want everybody to think that he's the very best poker player to ever played, but a very good poker player who also gets himself in the places where he can make the most and then uses his very good but not super elite poker skill to crush everybody. He doesn't like being seen as kind of a fish but less of a fish than the rich guys he plays against that he only has the money to play against because his dad slipped him the money. That's that's what he doesn't want to be seen as. So that's that's why he's so irritated here. He, he wants the narrative that he is a good player and that he skillfully gets himself into these games. And, and then also, while he's in these games, creates an environment to where these players want to splash around with him. And uh, he's saying people don't understand all the skill that goes into that that isn't just raw poker skill. So uh, while I agree there is there are other elements to the game that do allow you to be in those positions, I even remember, I've talked about this game before, one of the best 100, 200 limit games I was ever in was with a massive fish who had a ton of money who uh, I, I made sure to make his experience there very pleasant. We, we talked. We were very friendly. We were uh, like uh, I always made sure that he didn't feel stupid. Like he wouldn't understand when the board counterfeited. So he'd have like ace six on an ace king king six board and I'd have ace nine and I'd beat him and he'd go, oh, I get that one. I go, no, no, it's it's you see the two pair. Oh, yeah, I forgot that, man. Like I, I make sure that that you know that I, I don't ever give off the impression that like I think he's a fish, or I can't believe he doesn't know this is under two hundred game. Like I, and, and you know we, I made sure he had the best time there while he was losing the money, so he would stay and keep chunking it off. Uh, it's, it's, so, 
and, and you also you, you can't play like a nit. That was the other thing. I played a lot of hands. He played a lot of hands. So I, I wasn't waiting to play aces and, a, and ace king and queens. I, I was I was playing a lot of hands with him, and uh, and I never acted irritated when I lost hands. I actually went on a 14k downswing in that game at one point. Uh, which I got well, back. You're doing it right, Druff. I can't tell you how many poker pros I've seen who are just like, oh, yeah, I sat with this really rich guy. He's such a fucking idiot. I'm like, dude, <laughs> this guy is living a life you would love to be living. You know, just because he's not good at this one particular game does not mean he's an idiot. And you can't treat him like that. You know, yeah. you got you to make it a, a good, enjoyable time for him. And remember that just because you can beat the pants off someone in the long run at a game, doesn't mean that they're an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't mean that at all. Yeah. So, so, I, so I made it. I was sitting right next to the guy. made the whole experience yeah. very pleasant for him even while he's losing. And, uh, and and I played a lot of hands. And I, you know, I, I made it look like I was a gambler just like him. And, uh, and, and even when I was on a, on a downswing and, and chunked off most of what I won, which fortunately I got back, I, I never acted pissed off, never got frustrated when I took a beat. I, like inside, I'm like, oh, I, can't, I can't believe you got me there. But I, I would right. smile and pretend it was all fine. And, and go, oh, man, I can't believe you. Like, oh, wow, you got me there. Wow, that's, uh, I didn't expect that. Okay, well, nice hand. So like I, I never looked pissed off. And, and so that there is somewhat of a skill to that. And that I believe Bilzerian – in these games, probably does that, and that's good, and that's uh, yep. that's the right move. But uh, and, and he he should, if if he really has made a lot of money in these very high stakes games against these very rich guys, then then great, and that is some credit to him, and I won't take that away. But you, you also can't look down on those who don't have that access and never had that seed money to get in and say, oh, you're just playing for scraps. You know, that, that's not the way to look at people. But let's. Let's well, go and to- part of this too, Druff, is probably Doug Polk is someone that I remember. You know, he was on two plus two, and he was playing. He he built it up from nothing. Yeah, he basically. did. And you know, probably from his perspective, he's like, you know what? I I actually know what I'm doing. I'm very skilled at this. I built it up from nothing. And here's this dickhead that he probably got a bunch of money from his dad, and then he got access and. You know what I mean? It, it probably bothers him to, to some small extent, in addition to him playing it to try to get attention to himself. You yeah, know? yeah. So okay, let's let's play the remainder of this segment here. It's like, whatever, man. I don't care. Like, if you want to point to that and be like, oh, Dan sucks at poker because of this You do session. care. You do no, care, I, obviously. No, you I obviously don't care about that. I care about you saying that I'm a liar. That's what I care about. And about you misrepresenting what I'm saying to make me look like a liar. That's what I care Dude. about. That video you're talking about, the 1020 thing, where you're saying, again, this I'm rich, don't care, it's for lots of money or less money or whatever it is. We, I understand that you've made a lot of money in poker or you're rich or whatever, your family's rich, whatever, whatever the situation is. That video took me 60 minutes that I made one day where I analyzed your play while you were playing poker. And I had that, pre, that precursor that I quoted earlier. So that video was not only 100% fair, 100% fair. I'm willing to bet on that video specifically. If you I want have to no bet. issue with that video. Uh, That's fine. Okay. I'm just, I, it's just an example. Well, you just did have an issue with it. You just did have an issue with it. You said to me that I'm analyzing this video like you fucking care. Well, guess what? When you play poker and people can watch you and we have not gotten to see you and then you're out there claiming to have made infinite piles of money playing, then yes, it is going to reflect on you if you play terrible. And there were a bunch of bad plays in that session. And just because the money doesn't matter to you, it still will reflect back on your poker ability. I, I don't know what, what do you want from me to what, what do you want from me there? What what, Nobody, what that that, that okay. one's fine. It's whatever you're you're interpreting my my play at low stakes. It's fine. I mean, I, I don't. That, I'm not bringing that up as being an egregious thing. The like I said, the mischaracterization of what I've said is the egregious piece. That 
That is what I have issue with. Um, I, I don't care if you guys think that I'm a bad player. I've never, like I said, professed to be this great player. But what I've been good at is getting in good spots. And that's one of the things that like the poker community just like cannot seem to wrap their fucking hands around is that the biggest piece of poker is figuring out how to win the most amount of money in the games. And the best way to win the most amount of money is to play against the worst fucking players that guys like you are not going to be able to play against because you've built, you know, this reputation of being a great fucking poker player, which is cool. It's great. You can do training videos, but you can't win big money. So you chose to go down that route. That's fine. Nope. No problem. I chose to go down the route of winning the most amount of money I could possibly win in the shortest period of time. And you know, you know, whatever it's, it is what it is, but you know, that's not what I have issue with. Like I said, I have issue with the mischaracterization. of. Okay. So he's kind of repeating himself here. We'll jump to another segment in a second, but you can see he's bothered by, he is bothered by Doug criticizing his 10, 20 play, because as I said, oh, yeah. he, he wants to be seen as a very good player. He, he doesn't need Doug to say, you know what, Bilzerian, I think you're about on the same level as me. He doesn't need that. He needs, he wants Doug to say, you know what? I think that you're a very good player. I saw some mistakes, but yeah, I, I thought you're very good, and I'm sure you're crushing those games. He doesn't like, oh, you know, Bilzerian's making egregious mistakes and playing hands super bad, and yeah, I guess he can beat super soft competition. That's not the way he wants to be seen. So that's that's why it's bothering him so much. Okay, so uh, moving to the next uh, segment here, this this part kind of bugged me the most from Dan, just because I know it not to be true, because it was a world that I came from, and that is the online poker world. Now, without getting into a whole story about me, because this segment is not about me, I go way, way, way back in online poker. I first played online poker in February of 2001, now almost 21 years ago, and it was a very different world back then. In fact, this is before the poker boom. Nobody knew the name Chris Moneymaker at that point. Chris Moneymaker barely knew his own name at that point. I was playing in the very, very early stages of online poker, and I watched it evolve. And as a result, I got to notice all the big names along the way who was doing well, who was doing well for some time but fell off. I got to see everything. And I remember most of it. So Doug Polk, being somewhat younger than I am, came later as did many people who are around today in poker. So a lot of them can't correct Dan Bilzerian on this just because they weren't around then. But I was. I'm a good deal older than both of these guys. And I can tell you that they that this story that Dan's about to say just simply isn't true. But uh, I'm going to play it to you. Poker. Um, I just didn't do it the traditional way. Well, apparently there's not a shitload of ways to make money because we, you've insulted all the online people who, who came up in those streets. I and came up online. That's how I started. Yeah. Playing. I was playing on Party Poker, Bodog, all that shit. I mean, you it, did well. Did you win on those sites? Yes, I did. I was, I think, the biggest winner in Bodog's history. I won 400000 in one month playing Bodog at 1020, where the max buy-in was $2,000 and you could only play three tables. I won 400000 in one month on that site. And this was like back in fucking 2007 or eight. Did you win money on party poker? Um, I don't remember if I was a net. I, I, I didn't think I played much party poker. I played more on Bodog because they had a sports book and people would wander in there from the sports book and just fucking blow their money in the poker room. Like I was always looking for the angle. I wasn't trying to play against the best players all the time. So that's, that's, 
that's fine. But right now we're talking about 400K, which is only 200 buy-ins online. That's really not that many buy-ins. So I'm trying to figure out where the rest of these online winnings came from. One month of only playing three tables with a max buy-in is $2,000. Winning 400K is a lot. Yeah, but dude, we're talking about 400K. That's not how you built... That's not how you got to where you were today. That's not crushing I mean, online. That's, that's one month. It, that's one month. So I mean, if you extrapolate that out, that actually is a lot of fucking money in in the for a ten twenty player to be winning five million a year on average. That's a lot of fucking money. You can show me a ten twenty player. That's five million. <laughs> He says he he says he won four hundred k in one month. He just extrapolates it to a year. I won four hundred k in one month. So I won five million a year. Guess four hundred k times twelve is four point eight million, which is almost five million. So I won. That's five million a year, guys. What? I didn't know you could just multiply any good month you have by twelve and say you made that for a year. That he seems to think that, and uh, Doug laughs at that shortly after this. But let, let's stop here because I've got to call bullshit on this. Because guess where I put in a lot of action around that time, a little bit later. But around that time, Bodog. I was an active player on Bodog in 2010. Did you win 300K in a month, Jeff? 400K, but no. I did not win either 300 or 400 a month. And you see, there was a site, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was called PokerTableRatings.com. And PokerTableRatings.com could be used to look up anyone's results, rough results. It had made some mistakes, but it was never way, way off. You can look at anyone's rough results on any of the sites they tracked, which was all the majors. So it was very useful to, number one, see if a lot of these online pros were the success stories they claimed to be. And number two, if you saw someone at your table you didn't know, you didn't recognize the name, you could go see how they've done. And sometimes you'll notice, oh, wow, this person is losing uh, eight big blinds per hundred. Yep, I'm happy to have them in my game. Or sometimes you'll see that they've been winning, you just haven't run into them before and you're, you're not happy to have them there so it was a very useful site and and everybody you know what i saw it. people do draft that was, i thought it was horrible i would i saw people there that were there to make money that they would look someone up they would see they're a losing player and they would you know put their results in the chat and stuff like that it's like oh yeah this happened all the time on, on, on uh, I, I always saw these pissing contests of uh you're a fish you're awful yeah well look at my poker table ratings look at yours who's better huh uh, <laughs> I saw that all no, the time. No, no, okay. So, it's so you know, if a uh, one pro is doing it to another, it's it's bad. But it's the worst was when I saw like an obvious long term losing fish that was made aware. Yes, that their losing was tracked. And well, was you know what I did I, when I saw that happening. I would I would actually period it out of the chat. Period meaning I hit period enter period enter period enter. I call that perioding yep. the chat where I just flood the chat out where people can't see. <laughs> so you flooded the chat with your period. Yes. All right. Good, I good would period that whenever I see that shit go, I did not want that. Yeah, I'd see people take a bad beat to a fish and go, oh, no wonder you're down 13 big blinds per 100. I go, oh, shit, yeah, why are you saying worst. that? <laughs> it's, the wor- it's worse than uh, avatars that are showing people how they're playing. Yes. You know, it's way worse. So yeah. I played on Bodog very actively in 2010. I, I had played it actively in 05, and then I kind of took a break. I always won there. So it wasn't that I, I got beat there. I just... Uh, lost interest in playing because there were sites with bigger games. They never spread bigger than 3060 limit or 1020 no limit. So um, in 2010, I decided to return there because the games were pretty soft. And I thought even though it's 3060 limit, which was lower than I was playing like on PokerStars at the time, that I could make a, a pretty steady stream of money by just playing that 3060 game. 
So I used poker table table ratings all the time then, as did everybody who was a regular there. And you had screen names then, uh, Modern Day Bovada and Ignition, which are the same as Bodog was, and in fact still is in the international market. Uh, They're now anonymous tables, so you can't do that anymore. And poker table ratings is also gone. But yeah, I actually had an account there. You had to, if one way I remember, you had a certain number of free searches, and after that, you had to have a, an account there and be paying for it or something. No, I, no, I found it no. I, I, that I, I was paying for it. I think that you're talking about Shark Scope. That one, you had the free oh, searches. Oh, maybe it was yeah. Shark Scope. Maybe, I don't remember yeah. paying for poker table ratings, but I was uh, using it all the time there, as was everybody else. And if you didn't, you were at a disadvantage. And, and exactly. it was also it, it yeah. was also interesting because they would show what's quote, your best friend and your biggest enemy. Your best friend is who you're winning the most against. The biggest <laughs> enemy is who you're losing against. And it, yeah. the problem was it started to get in my head because I, I would kind of perceive that certain people would give me a hard time as far as like winning and losing against them. And then yeah. I would see it verified on there that I was getting crushed by certain dudes. And then uh. I'd be so nervous in every hand against them, I'm going to get bad beat. So it was <laughs> like when they went to anonymous tables, that was one nice thing is that that got out of my head. I didn't have to yeah. always think I'm going to get fucked by these people because there were just some people I always ran bad against. And then there was and Jeff, like, it's OK to admit that they were bum hunting you. It's OK. <laughs> Sorry. So anyway, um, I was very curious on poker stable ratings of how other pros were doing compared to me. So I was always checking it, not just to check on how good certain people were and how well they were doing, but also just overall, how am I doing against other pros who play the same stakes as I do? So I also took a look at other games that I didn't play very often, like the No Limit Cash, and to see how they were comparing to limit players like me. So this is what I found in 2010. And remember, Bilzerian said he did this in 07 or 08. So these are the same era. It was pre-Black Friday, probably with similar traffic, similar competition, and same site, the biggest winner on all of Bodog in 2010 was a 1020 no limit player who won around 450,000 for the entire year. Not month, year. Mm. The second biggest, maybe around 400, third biggest, three something. Nobody had a month. Like four hundred thousand, nobody. And as is it he possible even said, that he had a four hundred k month and then <laughs> had losing months the rest no, of the year? No, I don't believe it. Oh. I, I think now oh. he did accurately say that you could only run three tables at once and that you could only buy in for two k at the ten twenty. That was true. So I believe he played on there, and uh, he'll say shortly in the segment that his name was Blitzforce on there, which it was. But I will tell you that. When Bilzerian blew up and people got to know who he was and people started becoming curious about him in poker, a lot of people in those days were around on Bodog in the No Limit games in 07 and 08. And Blitzforce was his name on 2 plus 2. He used to post on 2 plus 2, Bilzerian, sometimes. So do you think when Bilzerian blew up that there would not have been these people who used to play with him who would remember how much he was crushing that site back just a few years prior? And of would say, course Wait they minute. would. I mean, look at look at people that followed uh, Eric one two three and yeah. followed. Oh my God, Clay Aiken and Durr and yeah, Isildur. I mean, there would have been a huge 
fan following. Yeah. yeah, especially once he blew up for other reasons because of Instagram yeah. following. They would said, "Oh yeah, that was the guy who was killing Bodog in 07 and 08 and won yep. like like 400k in one month like none of us ever have." And and wow, so that's you know, he probably made it that way. I, I could imagine what he was doing elsewhere. No one said that. And nobody ever said they witnessed him crushing online poker and that would have been super memorable. Remember, this is a site that just 2 years later, the top winner on the entire site won 450k for the year and he's saying he did it in a month and somehow nobody remembers this even though he was under a name that was very well associated with him he's not saying now 15 years later oh um i was blitzforce then you guys just didn't know that till now everybody knows he was blitzforce who was watching who was interacting with him back then so believe me this would have come out a long time ago and i just don't believe it think of a, a game that you can only buy in for 2k and that like, how do you run that up to 400k over a month? You're just not going to get enough deep stacks at the table to do it to them. And of course, you're going to have days you lose in there. Think of what you have to average at that game. You have to average uh, 6.5 buy-ins a day, and every time you lose, that really drags that down. So you you have a day where uh, you even break you break even. Then now now you've got to make up for that. So it, it's an impossible win rate to achieve and that's why nobody achieved it there that's why i watched yeah. nobody had months like that on there it's almost like the money came from somewhere else <laughs> i mean now do i believe he played on bodog in 07 or 08 and had a yeah. good month yes he's not just inventing this he know he knows this the 2k max buy-in he knows about the three table limit at the time like he, he clearly played on there i wish i could bring up poker table ratings and look this up now but he must have had some good month and is inflating this number by many times. And also, notice he doesn't say, I cashed out then and didn't play again, or I won but not as much in the subsequent months. Just He talks about this 400K month and that doesn't say what happened after that. So to me, what it seems like is that he uh, had some good month he remembered and then either has exaggerated in his own head, kind of like the old fish story that you, you catch a 10-pound uh, a fish and you tell people eventually you caught a 100-pound fish. Uh, either he exaggerated in his own head or he's just outright lying knowing it wasn't true. And it's a good chance he may have uh, run up more than a lot of people would run up in a month who's a pro there because he was playing some sort of wild play style that wasn't sustainable long-term, got super lucky for a month, not one four hundred k but maybe he did quite well. And then uh, and then chunked it all off. Maybe, maybe he won like 80K in a month, just running ridiculously well. And then the next month he lost 80K, <laughs> and then he quit. It, so it, it could have been something like that. But, but there's no way that he built his role online. And then he goes on further about his online prowess. ...a year. Okay, but you didn't win $5 million a year. You won 400K. I'm just saying that was one month. I had, I had, I had weeks where I would win, you know, $80,000 playing 510 heads up. So, I mean, like, I, I had big fucking wins on that site, like, in, for small stakes because they didn't have big stakes at the time. So, I came up online. Like, you didn't that, come up online. You had one month on Bovada. That's... No, I, I played for years online. Okay, where... fact, that's primarily <laughs> where, the other where I fucking played. Where else did you play? What screen names? How much did you win? Let's get some kind of facts going here. I mean, Blitzforce was my screen name on um, on Bodog, and I fucking won money on that site for sure. Okay, four hundred k. But you're saying you played for years. That was one won- month. I'm just saying that was that was like my biggest month on there was four hundred k, and that's like when I dropped out of college, and then I was playing more live at Bellagio. But I like during my college, I was playing a shitload on party poker. I was playing on Poker Stars. I was playing on Bodog. I was playing on all the sites. So like, 
that was in college primarily where you had to play. I'm not trying to nitpick here, but I think it's important for the sake of this discussion. When you say you played for years online and you reference one month on one site as we won 400K, that is a good month, obviously, for those stakes on that site. But we have to look at month. We have to look at the entire. Anybody won more than that on Bodog? For one month, it's totally possible. I don't know what the records are for Bovada, but we have to look at the entirety of your work online. When you were saying that you you played online, you won online. Did you win on any other sites over that time period? How much money did you win online over what period of time? Give me some estimates here. You're asking me what I won in 2005. That's that's almost 20 fucking years ago. Like I don't remember exactly what my stats were. 20. I mean, what what were you doing 20 years ago? Like, can you? Like, I mean, I was in high school. I was a freshman in high school. I just moved from Las Vegas to North Carolina. Yeah, I mean, so like, but could you have told me like, you know, what you fucking ate for lunch? On you know what I mean? Like, I don't remember. I'm not asking what you ate for lunch. I'm asking for estimates on how long you played online. And how much you won. That's not that hard. I, I played online from 2003 until probably 2008-ish. Yeah. Okay, so, so five years online. And how much did yeah. you win over that time? I don't remember what the wins were over that period of time. But it was, you know, because it, it, I was playing live. I was playing online. I was, I was flying into like, you know, when they had the PCA, I was playing in the Bahamas, we were playing on a yacht, I was playing Eddie Ting's game. I, you know, I got into um, Nick Cassavetti's game. So I was like bouncing around and I don't remember exactly what I was winning, you know, on each thing. I mean, like I said, it's 20 fucking years ago. I remember like ballparks of like what I would win per year, but I don't remember, you know, how much of it was on this site, how much was it at Nick's you- game. I mean, it, and it would ebb and flow. I would have, you know, winning and losing months. So you can't ballpark online. All you remember is your one month you had in Bovada. Everything else, we it's just don't Bovada. know. It's, it's Bodog. It's the I same. Mean, Bodog is Bovada. It changed names. But it, okay. Bodog then, yeah. It's the same. Yeah, thing. I mean, look, all, all, all I'm saying is that I had the fucking biggest month in, I think, Bodog's history at the time. And I remember sitting at tables with like 40 fucking $50,000 at a 2K buy-in and everybody was like, what the fuck? And people would play bad against me. I remember people had like, I, I would see their like notes on me. And so people would just play really bad. I would get, you know. A- you can't see notes on you. That's another false thing. You, you could put notes then, but you couldn't see them. You couldn't see other people's notes on you. So that's, uh, uh, it would save the notes. So like if I put notes on someone and then uh, they come back a week later and they sit at the table, even if I don't remember playing against them, yeah, I, I'll, the, I could pull up the note right there. It has like an N next to their name and I could click on it and see what I wrote. But he couldn't see people's notes on him. They, they could say yeah, I wrote that, a note that would on. Make the notes kind of useless. Yes, could see that. But you know, he, they could have told him, "I have a note on you that you're a big fish." He probably has a memory, a legitimate memory of playing very wild and running super well, and people not knowing exactly how to handle him, and feeling like, "How's this guy always getting there?" And and maybe one day just having some ridiculous amount at the table for forty thousand dollars one day from the two K buy, and maybe that happened, but. He was not consistently doing this, and he's so stuck on that one month, it really sounds like the sort of thing, like someone who is not going to be a long-term winner, who ran really well one particular month, and then the wheels fell off. And that's why he can't tell you any kind of ballpark from 03 to 08, supposedly, when he was playing, of how much he won. But I can tell you, I was around in those days, and while I didn't play much No Limit Cash... I was aware of the big winners online, and Blitzforce was not someone known 
to be a big winner online. I hadn't heard of him because he was not crushing online. And that's why he doesn't even have an estimate. He doesn't say, well, I, I'd say between those years I ran up about $6 million. Like he's not, he's not even saying that because uh, he doesn't want to go into too much detail and have no one remember it. So he keeps sticking to this one month that must be stuck in his head where he really did have some run-up and people were kind of perplexed what's going on and, and then won't go away from that. So he, he was not someone who ran it online. A bunch of fucking action. And, you know, it was a little bit swingy, but at the time people weren't playing loose aggressive. So, you know, it was, um, it was, you know, it was more of a roller coaster, but I think it was probably the most profitable strategy. And now that's pretty much what people are doing. There's an issue though, with the way that you're saying this, because as an example, I played online poker for, I don't know, a decade, eight years, whatever it was. And I had a month where I won 700K. So I could say 700K in a month, that's like winning 8.5 million a year. But I didn't. I won 700K in one month. What stakes was that at? Probably mainly 200, 400, 300, 600. It was a lot of Lahasa battles, Isildur, that kind of stuff. So that's literally 100 fucking X what I was playing or 10 X or whatever. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're talking about almost winning the same amount at 10 X the stakes. Right, but you're the one saying that it'd be like winning five million in a year, but it's not like that. It's like one month. It's cherry picked, right? So, the reason I think this is important is you're trying to build, and I think where we're kind of driving with this conversation in general is your background. You're saying is you made all your money from poker, right? Yeah. And so, and so because of that, this story is important, and those facts matter. And it, and when you have a story like you do with your dad, where your dad is very rich and successful, and you're his son, then we're going to have to have a, some very credible facts as to the way you made your money, where you played, how you won. And if you're saying you play online and you won, then th- that stuff's easy to prove. We can, we can actually go in and get the party poker hand histories almost certainly. Um, Good. Go, like, go, on, go on Bodog. Get, get the hand histories. I, I played poker for a living for 14 years. It's not like these are like small sample sizes. Like I said, you've got guys like Andrew Robel who literally played private games with me for 10 years straight, had pieces of me. I had pieces of him. Like he watched me play. You know, you got guys like Rick Solomon. Okay, I'll stop that. He's going to rant about these guys again. We'll, we'll move to the next segment uh, of this interview. And after I just comment here, you, you can see he doesn't want to really give a very – substantive accounting of where he built the money he wants you to just kind of think he crushed online and won live also and somehow turn that into access to these bigger games and then won there and just ran up huge money that, that's just that's just what he wants you to think and he doesn't want you to think too hard about it or, or get exact numbers or even rough numbers that you could follow a trail of a guy who is self-made and he's doug's not going to get it out of him and doug is trying here but um it's not going to go anywhere. So they this just got stuck here. And then he just started going on about these other games. You see how he jumps to this whole thing about Ask Andrew Robel. Well, that's not, Andrew Robel wasn't watching him play online in 2004. Andrew Robel was coaching him for these very, very big private games he was playing against guys like Alec Gores later for a piece of it. Okay, it's very possible that happened. It's very possible that it was very profitable for uh, him, Andrew, Andrew Robel. And it's possible if you asked Andrew Robel, he'd say, yes, that happened. But that has nothing to do with how he ran it up in the 2000s online or live to, to even get here. And and we're not going to get that answer. So now I'm going to move now to the uh, 4550 mark, 45 minutes, 50 seconds mark of this. And... This is where he's talking about being a uh, a poker pioneer. <laughs> you actually think he's a poker pioneer, which is... He's like Lewis and Clark, man. 
Yeah, he's the uh, modern coming of Doyle Brunson. You don't even know. I, didn't, the, I did not average 400k a month. I, I'm not I know. Saying. I didn't say that. I'm saying you made 400k in a month. Yep. But you're saying you pioneered the. Look at this. They're still arguing about the 400k a month. Like 10 minutes later into this whole thing. That's why. I yeah. Skipped this it. is where a little bit of too much bickering. Hybrid back and forth, of these you two know? Yeah. Things. No, you no, no. Be- I did not say. I, I, I was saying I'm one of the pioneers of poker. I came in when poker was becoming well known, and I made more money than anybody else that I know of. During that time, during the time that I played, I made more money than any other poker player that I know of other than, you know, Rick Solomon. But when you said you said hybrid online and live, right? You just said that a few minutes ago. Yeah, that's where I learned how to play poker was online. Okay, so but when you say you're you're a pioneer of the hybrid, what you really mean is of just the live poker, right? Because the online there's not there's not records there, really. And you there are records. You said you could find them. Go look up Blitz Force on Bodog. Okay, we have this one site where you won 400k but what well, i'm saying it wasn't, is to it wasn't be up, just 400k to, like i said I, I had weeks where i won 87,000 playing 510 heads up like by the way you cannot look this up uh, he may know this too you cannot look up your records or especially somebody else's records from 2010 on bodog it's absolutely not possible so he may even be aware of this and he may be telling this story because there's no way to look it up i don't know if he knows or doesn't know or maybe he has deluded himself into believing he really won this much. But uh, there's no way to look this up. And I, I don't know about Party Poker and the others, but I know for sure you can't look this up on uh, 2010 Bodog or 2008 Bodog. I mean, I was playing heads up on there. I was playing, you know, I did the sit and goes on Party Poker. I mean, I was playing a lot online. I mean, that's, I, I initially went broke in the first like year and a half playing online. I was like playing high stakes. I wasn't very good. And then, I mean, I talk, like I said, that's why I wanted you to read the book is because I specifically line out exactly what I did, when, who I won money from, exactly the time periods. You know, I, I started playing poker and I wasn't great, obviously, in the beginning. I went broke and then I bought a one-way ticket to Vegas after playing on a gambling boat and I won 187000 at the Bellagio after three weeks. Like I took that money, I went back and I like had a new gained, you know, um, self-control because I would play too aggressive. I would fucking bluff too much. But people at the time weren't really playing like that. So once I was able to like rein it in, people would play really fucking terrible against me. And I would actually play more conservative. I would open a lot of pots and play loose aggressive. But then I would get paid off in spots that other guys would not get paid off in. Okay, let me stop this whole rant about his play style. This isn't adding up with my personal experience with him. You may ask what personal experience with him. But yes, I have a little bit of personal experience with Dan Bilzerian from 15 years ago, from January 2007. And this doesn't add up. So this story seems to be saying that he ran it up somewhat on a boat. I don't know what game on a boat, but probably one of these boat casinos, like what Jamie Gold was promoting for a while. And uh, <laughs> he took the money, he went on that boat, and then went to Bellagio, ran it up to 186 k and he was off to the races. Okay, so first of all, what happened to all the money he's making online since 03? Like, where, where does that figure into this? It's like, it's like that's just forgotten now. That's not part of the story anymore. But, but second, that's not the order in which things happened from my own personal experience. The Wall Street Journal in 2014 published an article about Dan Bilzerian, and one of the people who was quoted in the article was none other than poker pro Todd Wittellis. Why was I quoted? Well, because I had one of the first known live poker experiences with Dan Bilzerian when he was an unknown. I was in Lake Tahoe at the beginning of January in 2007. 
after skiing for the day, I went over to the poker room to see what was going there. It's not the biggest poker room, so there was definitely no limit hold'em. I had to play whatever uh, no limit was going, I think like a 2-5. So I'm playing there for a little bit, and someone says, hey, I wonder when the suitcase guy is going to show up. And I said, what suitcase guy? They go, oh, this weird guy is like walking in here with a suitcase, and he opens it up and shows us that there's 100K in the suitcase. And he really has 100K in there, and he walks around with it wherever he goes. He's just always walking around with that suitcase. I said, what's his name? I don't know. We just know him as the suitcase guy. How long has he been here? He just showed up this weekend. So nobody knew about the suitcase guy, but that was Dan Bilzerian. He was the suitcase guy. Well, sure enough, after I'd played for maybe two hours there, the suitcase guy showed up. It was Dan Bilzerian, and he had the suitcase. And he said, let's get a game going. I don't want to play 2-5. It's too low. I said, okay, yeah, let's get a game going. So I said, let's play 100-200 limit hold'em. He says, what? 100-200 limit? I'm not playing that. I'm going to play 100-200 no limit. Well, number one, I was by no means a no limit heads-up specialist. I, I just didn't have much experience in no limit heads up. Second, I didn't know what this guy's deal was. I didn't know if he was good or bad, and I, I wouldn't want to commit to a 100-200 no limit uh, heads up match. That's huge. And third, I wasn't rolled for it in Lake Tahoe. I only brought about 10K with me on that trip. So uh, that, that could be gone super fast at 100-200. So I said, well, I don't have that roll with me right now on this trip, but uh, let's play 100-200 limit. He said, ah, I'll think about it. So then there were some talks. Hey, some Druff, talks. Druff, when you looked it up on poker table ratings, true or false? Your biggest enemy was Blitz Force. Is that true? <laughs> no. No? No. It'd be cool if it was, though. Anyway, after a lot of negotiating with other players there about what we're going to play, it was finally decided we're going to start a 510 game. So a number of us moved over to play 510 from the 2-5. The problem was that the game was tighter than a frog's ass. It was just fold, 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 and Bilzerian was getting really annoyed that uh, everyone was tight, and in turn, he was tight. So it's not even like he was splashing around. He didn't want to loosen up until everybody else loosened up. I think some of the problem was people just weren't being dealt good cards. Like, I was just being dealt trash every time. I kind of wanted to play with the guy. I kind of wanted to see, like, if this guy was just a big fish willing to splash around. But I kept being dealt, like, Jack-4 offsuit and uh, just total trash hands where I wasn't willing to, to commit a lot of money. So, I don't know, maybe just the whole table wasn't getting hands. But it was so tight, that game, and he started complaining. What the hell? You guys are pussies. Why aren't you playing? Why, why does nobody want to play hands here? And, it, and I, said, I even said at one point, it, it doesn't look like you're playing a lot of hands either. He said, well, fuck no. I'm not going to just dump my money to you guys when you guys only play aces. And I said, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just not getting any hands. I'm getting like total trash. I don't know about the rest of these guys. But uh, anyway, the game didn't last long. He finally just quit and left because he said everybody was too tight and then the game broke. So I remembered this, but I didn't think that much about it until Bilzerian became a known person in poker and all of his Instagram antics and all that. And I'm like, that's the freaking suitcase guy. I remember him. And I asked around, and nobody had any memory of playing against him live prior to my encounter with him in January 07. So this wasn't him taking money from a boat over to the Bellagio. Maybe he went to the Bellagio next after in Tahoe nobody wanted to give him action. But uh, he went to Tahoe, and... They interviewed Bilzerian after interviewing me, and they said, hey, this guy Todd Wattellis told this story about you, and that was the first time you were ever seen in a live card room, to his knowledge. Uh, what is your reaction to that? And he said, 
Well, I don't really remember, but yeah, that sound that probably sounds correct. See, he actually told the reporter that my describe my description of the Tahoe situation being the first time that he was in live poker sounds about correct. So okay, that's what it sounds like to me. So where did the hundred thousand come from that was in the suitcase? I don't think it came from online. <laughs> I don't. So because that doesn't sound like anything you know, nefarious is going on that a, a guy is walking around with a hundred K in his suitcase. Yeah. Like uh, here's somebody, <laughs> I, I I know he walks around all the time with hundred K suitcases. Trader Ruski. That, that's like someone that sees, uh, sorry, go, go ahead, Drew. Trader Ruski walks around with a hundred K. I do not, but I just pictured him coming with the suitcase and then Druff going into his fanny pack and pulling out the 10 k <laughs> You know what that seems to me is, is it some kid that grew up watching, you know, action movies where they're, they're drug dealers or whatever walking around with a hundred K in the suitcase or something. He's like, all right, I'm just going to do that. You know? Yeah. And I think poker news. Yeah. I think poker news did, they did an article about this too, after the, the Washington, not the Washington, the wall street journal article. And they basically, he said the same thing. He said that this sounds about right. So I think I got it. I think I was one of the first, or maybe the first, to ever encounter him in a live poker game, aside from maybe this boat he's talking about. But he didn't mention the boat until now. We've never heard about this boat before, as far as I know. Maybe it's in his book that he released. But I don't. he says, I'll read my book. I, nobody has come forward who's read the book who goes, oh, you know, Dan Bilzerian really laid out the, his exact pathway to all the money he has. I don't think he did. I think he probably goes on ranting about these big games and kind of leaves out the smaller stuff other than, oh, I, I, I won a bunch on a boat. I went to Bellagio, ran up 186K there, and I was just off to the races. I, it was probably along those lines in the book, if, if I had to guess, and nothing that anyone can really verify or even remember. So even just from my experience of him being the suitcase guy and him agreeing that was probably his first foray into live poker, it just doesn't match with all of this. I, I don't believe any of it. We're going to jump to uh, a more detailed account of that Alec Gores game where he won a bunch of money. Then we have one more Bilzerian segment after that. Then if you want to listen to the rest, you can go to Doug Polk's channel, where you will find it. So here is his uh, story about Alec Gores. Whole story of how I got in there. I mean, I however much well, you want to tell, man. So I was playing in um, uh, Gila Liberté's game um, in Ibiza, and or I guess to get into that game, I had lost big at the Aria, um, and then I went over there and I actually lost in his game as well, and then. Um, Alec had heard about my loss and I was playing with him at the Aria when I lost. So I was like, you know, really firing and we were playing pretty big. We were playing 501 K. Um, and so I, I think it was, or maybe it was one K two K. I don't know. It's pretty big, um, for a ring game. Anyways. Um, I lost there. I got into the Biza game. I lost a little bit in Ibiza, And then as soon as I returned, Alec had heard about that and challenged me to a heads up match. And that was kind of the start of it. So sometimes, like I said, I would play, you know, I'd fire. I mean, I wasn't like playing terribly. I wasn't just like lighting money on fire, but I'd play super high variance. I'd make big bluffs, whatever. Um, and, you know, know that there was always some, like, I mean, that was kind of like the silver lining of losses is you knew that you like gained some EV and like people thinking that you sucked or being able to get into other games or like the longevity of you playing in games. And so I, I was not afraid to, you know, do that. And, you know, like I said, it led to this this match with uh, with Alec, 
and he had just taken off Andy for a big number and he was feeling, you know, froggy and that was the start of it. Okay, I mean, not much to say about that. That might be true, might be partially true, I don't know, but thought it was interesting to play you guys. The last segment, we're going to go and play him talking about the Vanessa Cade situation. Now, if you remember, Vanessa Cade was pretty unknown until Dan Bilzerian responded to her on Twitter when she when it was announced that he was uh, signed as a GG Poker site pro in some sort of uh, sponsorship deal. And she complained that he was a misogynist. And then he responded back, shut up, ho, H-O-E. Nobody knows who you are. And that kicked off a big shitstorm. And most people took Vanessa's side. And uh, she came off very well at the whole thing. She kind of both got attention from it, but at the same time was taking it in good humor. But then she overdid it. And people started to get put off. And then she did some other things on social media to put off people. And then she got back in everyone's good graces because she won a big tournament on PokerStars for like $1.2 million, So everyone was very impressed by that. And uh, it, there's been a lot of drama surrounding her over the past uh, year or so. But the beginning of it was with this. Doug Polk, despite previous issues with Bilzerian, I will say was on Bilzerian's side about this from the very beginning. So even though a lot of people were bashing Bilzerian really hard for saying shut up ho to Vanessa, who in his defense did start up with him, but still he was kind of punching down. He was the very well-known person, and she was just a woman who wasn't very known at the time in poker, and he's calling her a ho. You know, that, that, that didn't sit well, especially in today's day and age. So I understood why people were put off by it, but uh, Polk actually stood up in his defense and said that, uh, number one, this isn't a huge deal, and, and number two, she's, she's basically doing this for attention and, and, and uh, acting like this is such a big deal so everyone will, uh, will notice her. And uh, so Polk was one of his defenders there. In fact, that was one of the first times that Polk and Negranu agreed, because Negranu, who, by the way, did have an interest in defending Bilzerian because they were both associated with GG Poker, uh, Negranu was another one who was saying that uh, Vanessa was basically doing this for an attention, this is no big deal. So I will say that while Polk could have taken that opportunity to bash Dan, instead he defended Dan there, one of the rare times he did. But he did ask Bilzerian about this whole thing with Vanessa Cade, and uh, this is what Dan had to say about it. It, it, Like I said, it wasn't an an intended viral video, it just happened to be. Okay, I gotcha. Going back to the Vanessa Cade thing, though, when Gigi did decide to hire you as an ambassador for the site, um, she voiced her concerns, and voiced her concerns. That's that's one way to put it. Uh, well, did she not voice her concerns? Uh, no, I think she was just talking shit, and you know she was being um, super abrasive, and you know saying you know extremely rude things. And my response to her was, you know, quiet ho, nobody knows who you are which is funny because, you know, she like hitched her fucking wagon to that tweet and like her PR team went out and like they did everything in their fucking power to like attach her name to me because nobody gave a fuck about who she was. And then because of that, they started to actually like learn who she was. So it's a bit ironic, but I would say, you know, she is just an opportunist that, um, like I said, tries to exploit my name much like you did um, back in the day <laughs> and, uh, nice. and much like many others do. Um, what? Why call her a hoe, though? What's um, the hoe part? I don't know. I think she called me about 15 different fucking names. So, um, so just hoe. Yeah. 
Well, so that's not totally accurate. She said he was a misogynist and Gigi Poker. Why Why are they hiring misogynists to represent them? Blah, blah, blah. She, that, that's where she was keeping it. And then he said, shut up, ho. Nobody knows who you are. So she wasn't calling him a million vulgar names. The, the vulgarity started with him. However, he does have a good point that she, as he said, hitched her wagon to that and really tried to exploit this for attention. And uh, a number of people noticed that a lot of thought that went into that okay, i mean it so wasn't it was even just, a tweet it was a response was it would you say it was like a garden variety hoe that's what she characterized it as so. oh, okay damn it that joke was taken i guess <laughs> yeah well um, so i mean she she did she did jump on that tweet fairly aggressively and and i thought some of some of the things that she did were pretty clearly opportunist opportunistic and i i i i did find it very funny when gg let her go and they said how could you do this just the day after International Women, Women's Day, which I thought was which was quite funny. But I do think when you... When yeah, so Doug mocked that at the time. Uh, this was when her popularity was, was starting to sink again. This is before her big win on Poker Stars, which made everyone forget all this. When Gigi Poker stopped her affiliate payments, nobody knew she was a Gigi Poker affiliate during all this whole thing. So here she's bashing, bashing, bashing Gigi Poker. And in the meantime, she's getting like 2K a month from residual affiliate pay- payments from guys she signed up years ago that were still playing. So she's bashing them, but then also getting paid uh, affiliate money from them. And then they got tired of being bashed and they fired her and said, you're not getting any more affiliate payments. And then she complained about that and then said that this is a day after International Women's Day. How could they? So Polk laughed at that, and rightfully so. That was a ridiculous thing to say. I mean, who cares if it was an International Women's Day? Just just because you're a woman and you're not happy with their decision? <laughs> uh, and, and people were mad that she didn't disclose before that she was drawing money from them for long time ago affiliate signups while bashing them. And I, I explained at the time that's not fair. Part of being an affiliate means that you don't bash the site. You're a promoter for the site. So even if you have negative opinion to the site, you, you've got to keep your mouth shut or otherwise they may terminate you. That's the way being an affiliate works. And uh, if you don't like that, then don't be an affiliate. I'm, I'm not an affiliate for anyone, so I can bash whatever site I want. But if I was, I would have to worry about that, that maybe they're going to drop me. If, uh, if I bash them, because usually the affiliate agreement is that you're going to uh, either speak positively of them or, or at least speak, not criticize them. You can't speak negatively of them. So uh, they had every right to do that. And uh, I thought it was incredibly unrealistic for her to expect that they'd keep paying her while she's bashing them. That they, uh, and it doesn't matter if it's International Women's Day or the day after International Women's Day. So Polk thought this was ridiculous and, and laughed at her about it. So as I said, he was mostly on Dan's side about this, and that's that's what they're referring to. They don't really describe it, but uh, that that was uh, that kind of all left people's minds once she that and some other things that had happened. This is about a year ago when she won that big score on on Poker Stars, and then her popularity really took off. And all people remember now was that Dan Bilzerian called her a hoe. And then she won a huge score, and and like a week before the huge score, she became an ACR pro. So that's that's what people remembered, and they uh, some of the negative stuff is forgotten by a lot of people, which is fortunate for her. And so the funny thing is, these two actually kind of agree on this whole thing, but uh, Doug is kind of only lightly expressing it, partially because Bulzarian's still insulting him, saying that Vanessa Cade used him to get noticed and said, much like you, Doug. <laughs> so Doug kind of smiled and laughed as he said that. 
when you call someone a hoe, when you call a girl a hoe like that, it's it, it's a lot stronger coming from you. Do you recognize that because your name is built so much and because of who you are, when you call a woman something like that, that it is it has more of a punch than if someone else does it? I don't think so because when I did it, it was in direct response to her attacking me, and it was and it was sent directly to her. So the only people that could have even seen that were people that follow me and follow her. And I would assume that most of my followers obviously don't know who the fuck she is, so none of them would see it. What? 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 Does he really not know how Twitter works? Anything he writes, people are going to see, and he has a massive following. So if he had sent her a DM, that's true. Or if it was just her comment to him and he didn't respond, that's true. If she has a small following, people are generally not going to see. I mean, they could search for it, but generally they're not going to see if she just tweets something at him. If she only has a small following, only her followers are going to see it, not his followers. So, like, if I pick some celebrity and tweet at them, very few people are going to see it. Unless they're searching for that and go through all the search results and find my tweet. Whereas, if that celebrity then responds to me then a ton of people are going to see it. So that's what happened here. So he really should have just ignored it. I mean, he's right that she jumped on it and used this for a lot of attention, but this was somewhat his fault to give her the opportunity because all he had to do was just ignore it and then uh, this would have never been seen. But to say, oh, well, when I responded, I didn't expect anyone would see it. Either he doesn't know what Twitter, like how it works, or he's lying. It was really like, you know, when when you do a response tweet, unless you guys both have big followings, Usually hardly anybody sees it. And you can see that because, you know, the likes and the and the retweets and whatever are usually non-existent. So it wasn't really something that I put a lot of thought in, like I said, because I didn't think very many people were going to see it. Um, and not that I would give a shit. I mean, she said a bunch of, you know, extremely fucking, you know, uh, ridiculous things to me. I mean, calling me, I don't remember exactly what she said, but it was much worse than than what I said to her. And then she basically like, oh my, it's like, it's like if a, it's like if a guy goes and like, you know, punches somebody in the face 15 times and then the guy bitch slaps and then they fall on the ground like a fucking soccer player and, you know, act like their fucking jaws broken, you know, when they started the fight and they did much worse. Um, I mean, I think it's just like kind of a fucking joke how it was, you know, taken out of context. But. So I don't totally agree with that. Uh, she didn't do much worse. She didn't come at him 15 times. She did start the whole thing. She did start up with him and she did say a lot of negative things about him in that tweet and said that Gigi Poker shouldn't sign someone like that. Blah, he's a misogynist, blah, blah, blah. But what he did was punching down because she was the unknown. He was the very well-known one. So what you do is just ignore it. And it was the way in which he responded, calling her a hoe, as Doug was saying, that doesn't really fit in to any context here of why you'd say that. She hadn't done anything to be considered a hoe. Uh, even the criticism she got later for other things weren't along those lines. She was never seen as a hoe other than people joking about what Dan said. So he just said something vulgar back to her because he was pissed that she was writing this about him. And that's why he got this negative attention. She wasn't like relentlessly coming at him to where he finally had to say something. She, she wasn't doing that. She, she did start it. But, Maybe uh, it's a compliment, Drop. I mean, uh, Dan kind of paints a picture of he lives his life surrounded by hoes, right? Yeah, <laughs> maybe. I mean, literally, because he yeah, hires them. That's true. But yeah, like I, I agree with some of these things being said about her here and, and her reaction to it and, and the exploitative way she handled some of this. But I, I will say that his response to her at that point was not warranted to use such language or call her that name. 
And really the smartest thing for him to do is just say nothing. And in fact, I have to do that sometimes, even though I'm a much smaller name in poker and in life than Dan Bilzerian. Uh, I will have like these trolls on Twitter who have three followers that tweet something really nasty to me. And I don't respond because the truth is, if I don't respond, nobody sees it. <laughs> um, that's the way Twitter works. I, I, if I respond, then people will click on this. So what, what's Todd answering here? Oh, look, and then, you know, my 3,000 whatever followers will see this. If I don't answer, then almost nobody's going to see it. So that I say, okay, well, the smart thing to do is not to answer because compared to that person, I am a much bigger person on Twitter. So that's the way Bilzerian should handle that. And you think someone who is so experienced in social media would have realized that. And uh, you also have to be careful. Even if you're Bilzerian who has kind of this whole alpha male thing going on and you're never politically correct and all that, you still have to realize that, uh, that this was in uh, 2020, the end of 2020. You know, in, in today's day and age, you can't just call a woman who doesn't like you a hoe. It's going to really get people pissed off, especially if she has like criticized you but hasn't called you anything vulgar. So that, he made a mistake there, and uh, uh, it, it wasn't to the degree some people made it out to be. It wasn't uh, something horrendous he did that he must uh, repent for for the rest of time. But, uh, yeah, he handled it wrong for sure. Anyway, that, that's uh, the whole thing that I'm going to play to you guys. It's not the whole thing of the of the interview by any means. I played a small percentage of it, but if you want to hear the whole thing uninterrupted by our commentary, you can... Uh, do that uh, now i was getting don't uh, do it don't was, do it just don't 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 waste your time <laughs> yeah i'm telling you it Druff played you all the highlights everything else it, just don't don't waste your time do it, Fridoruski, did you waste your time watching this whole thing i i i kind of did what you did it sounds like cow I, I was in about five minutes i couldn't take it anymore yeah it seems like I, that's that's what everybody's I mean, saying surpri- you know i'm surprised right and i'm surprised like bill's hearing gives a shit again he's like so I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's funny. They just got right under his skin. He went right with it. Yeah, it was just there's too much repetition and and too much just arguing. It it just kind of got grating to listen to. That's what a lot of people said. So we're gonna call somebody here who has a uh, a question. He's been trying to hammer us with phone calls, and I was uh, not taking them because uh, I didn't want to have our flow interrupted. But our flow has stopped, much like uh, a woman who's about uh, 55 years old going through that oh change. Uh, yeah, Trader Ruski, I actually made it for a good half hour or more into it, and I listened to it. It's starting at the 20-minute mark and just, yeah, Druff played you the highlights. Okay, so uh, Got it. we have Desert Runner on the phone. Hello. Hey there. I, I had to chime in on something. Uh, over You kind of brought... Todd, you brought me into the poker world. I've always been kind of in the poker thing. You brought me into the poker world a little bit. I've been in the gun industry and the gun side and the California side and the nation side like the last 30 years. So I know the whole gun tribal side. And then I'm watching over here. I'm watching the veterans, all the veterans of the armed forces and their tribal side over here. My comment or my point is my observation is it's funny that Dan Bazarian is equally hated on all three sides of these tribal communities from poker to the gun community to the veteran side. Oh, really? I, see, I didn't he, know that. Yeah. He, if you go to any gun in the gun forums, you 
Google his lookup is his name. He is not liked. So, so why is he not liked? With, with, why are the gun people not like him? He, I think he. We're trying to preserve stuff and make things happen, and we're trying to make things look good. And that's just what I was just going to say. And he does dumb stuff. I mean, he posts pictures of women. Yeah, they're naked and stuff, but he does things with firearms, and he makes the whole uh, community, he degrades the community a little bit. And one of the stunts he pulled, remember the Route 91 shooting and, and two cents? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When he, when, he, when he ran into the whole line of fire there and tried to get involved with what the cops were doing, and they're trying to tell him to stand down. Yeah. Well, what you do is you go up to a Las Vegas Metro officer who's behind a concrete barrier with a rifle, and you say, I'm showing you my creds. Let me show you my credentials. And he's like, I don't know you, and you don't have any credentials. Now you just pissed off law enforcement, veterans, and we're like, dude, you just can't ask a cop for a, a, a firearm like that. And he just, <laughs> I like Dan. He's okay, but he's like, he's a, I don't, I don't know as well as you guys do, but he's kind of like his own worst enemy. But he, he's pissed off equally all three communities on a national level. He's good at it. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. That even even though he's so pro gun and always shooting guns off in the desert, that that maybe the gun community sees him as kind of creating a circus of the whole thing when they they want to be seen as a responsible community, and and he's making them look irresponsible. And it's, but it's not everything he does. But he's done some things. Like remember, I talked about FPS Russia. When he's out in Vegas with that actor guy, and he's with the women. And guys like the women, but everyone calls him a douche. If you look like on the California gun community he's just not respected or liked everyone just calls me and then i i hear you talk about him i see some of the things you brought in and everything's mirroring each other and i just i had to comment on that because it just it's it's funny when you stand back and see it's like a triangle that's all i wanted to say okay that is interesting that the communities that he kind of associates with about being a military veteran uh being a, a gun fanatic and, and being uh, a poker pro that uh, these there's a lot of vitriol for him in all three communities, uh, and that's that's an interesting yeah. point. I wouldn't say that they don't hate him in poker, but there's a lot of people they just think he's kind of full of crap and they think he's uh, a self promoter. I think he got popped in L.A. He's doing something. You know, we have real strict gun laws in California, and he did something. He crossed the line, did some illegal stuff, made something automatic. Every time you do something like that, it's like you hurt all of us. When you get popped for doing something stupid that you should have known better. It hurts all of us because then the state legislators want to add more rules and more laws. And so, like, one person's kind of ruining it for all of us. We try to, we try to keep each other in line and, and be low profile. And then he does something, and then he's got naked chicks out on top of that, and he's making headlines. He's, and he's, it, it doesn't help him. It probably doesn't help the poker community at all. And I know the veterans aren't happy with him because he talks about, he says he's a Navy SEAL, but he's really what Navy SEAL are. Oh. Or, he failed out of yeah, well, okay, I, I, so, can, I can see the criticism, yeah. Well, I, that's, that's a useful piece yeah. of information. I didn't know that, but it uh, makes sense. Yeah. All right, take care, buddy. Okay, thanks. All right, all right. So Desert Runner. I, I bet people on the forum who, who hated Desert Runner would, like, expect different things from these phone calls. Like, the, they wouldn't expect someone to, like, reasonable to call in like this and, and make a good point. Though he, he did make a good flashlight threat, I'll say that. Calwatt, how much more time, if any, do you have here, given that it's uh, 2.42 in the morning? I don't know. Depends on what the next topic is. <laughs> okay, no, the reason I was going to ask is I, I have a personal story that I had slotted in here, but I could make it the, the I could skip it and, and do this other topic next that's more of a general topic. Um, 
so the, the next topic on the agenda was going to be about uh, my story from 1990 with Fidelity changing their phone number because of me. Uh, or we could talk about Nick Palma accusing Tim Riley of using a fake vaccine card for the World Series of Poker. So which, which one would you rather do with your remaining hey, time? Do your show, man. Whatever you want to do. You got Trader Ruski here. No, no big do deal. Fake vaccine because I. I'm, I've got limited time too. Okay, okay. Well, we'll I want to hear the fidelity story. Okay, you know. I, I kind of thought that like because one way conversation, right? Because because my story, you got you know. The, well, I like your reactions. Uh, you know, you guys can't tell my story from 1990. Only I can. But uh, but all this, we can do is make fun of you when you yeah, tell it. So, well, that, that's yeah. be the good thing. You guys hanging up, and I, I won't have as many people <laughs> laughing at me. Let's jump past that for the moment and go to the Tim Riley story, which has blown up in the last few days, and. An unlikely person brought it. Nick Palma, or Nicholas Palma, he is definitely somebody who does not have a clean reputation in poker. This is somebody who has been subject to a lot of criticism. And I would never have expected that he would have started kind of a a viral subject in the poker community that isn't based upon anything that he was doing i would always thought if nick palma got into poker twitter drama it would be about his follies of which there are many in june 2018 tim riley who is a poker pro called out nick palma for stiffing him on paying back stakes and using stakes from other players for tournaments to pay back old debts, basically calling him a scammer. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but in this June 3rd, 2018 tweet, Tim Riley wrote, This post is long overdue. It's time we take a stand against people that hurt our community. Do the right thing and get the word out. Well, this started a big shitstorm of people who were uh, speaking out against Nick Palma. Even Ustake, a staking site, took action and said, action taken today by Ustake. Thank you to the community for speaking out. We do our best to vet all the players, blah, blah, blah. And uh, they said, uh, Palma used our site one time for one tournament three days ago. He played the event and did not cash. Based on today's new information from the community, we'll be prompting refunding all investors that bought pieces of his event on our site. We didn't know of any shady past dealings, but have now excluded him from the site. So they actually paid back people who bought a piece of him when he didn't cash because there was a belief that uh, he wasn't actually going to pay up and that there was a lot of shadiness, so even Ustake took action and then banned him. A woman named Stephanie Hubbard, H-U-B-B-A-R-D, wrote that she was sexually assaulted by him and robbed in 2012. She wrote, I was probably the first victim back in 2012, except I got hit, sexually assaulted, and robbed as well. I made my case known way back when this happened and basically was ignored by the poker community. Glad the truth is finally coming out. So I don't know if this is true or not. This is her word against his, but this was a claim by uh, Stephanie Hubbard, who is a real person. At the very least, I know this is not like a, a fake account. And other pros back then came out and called him out. Someone named Michael Wang said, Nick has owed me money for a while, but in my case, it was a loan he couldn't repay after going broke. Didn't think he was doing this kind of stuff until recently. Hope he makes some steps to do the right thing by everybody he owes. And... uh then Nick Palma responded, I'll comment on this one real quick and the rest later. 
I owed Mikey, referring to Michael Wang, like 25 to 30K, not sure. And now I owe him a little over 10K and will continue to pay until it's at zero. I'm sorry, Mikey. You've always treated me the same. You're a great friend. I'm really sorry this happened. So even Nick Palma is admitting that he owed money and that uh, some people have been screwed over and he felt bad about this, this Mike Wang guy that he thought had always been nice to him. So obviously Nick Palma was doing some things that weren't very good back then. And the one who started this whole shitstorm was Tim Riley. If you criticized Nick Palma on Twitter, he would block you. So there's a tremendous number of people who were blocked on Twitter, including me, because of anything, even one comment that was negative about Nick Palma, even if you were right, (laughs) even if you're just voicing a mild opinion about it, he'd block you. So it became a running joke that just everyone's blocked by Nick Palma. And it'd be funny, once in a while, someone would share one of his tweets, and like you'd have like a ton of people responding, I can't see it, I'm blocked. I can't see it, I'm blocked. Oh, me too, yeah, me too, me too, me too. Like, he probably blocked the most people of anyone in poker. I made a joke that like 80% of the poker world is, is blocked by him, and it's probably not that far off. So he's blocked a ton of people. But this has been the case for a long time, and whatever. Like That, that was kind of the impression I had of Nick Palma. Stephanie Hubbard even showed up on this site briefly and made like one post. Again, she made an allegation against Nick Palma publicly. Uh, It has never been proven in a court of law. This is her allegation, and uh, he has uh, denied it. So take that for what it is. Bottom line is Nick Palma does not have a very good reputation. A lot of people in poker hate him. However, Nick Palma, somehow despite all this, was able to get revenge three and a half years later against Tim Riley because he heard something about Tim Riley and put it out there, and it caught fire. And because it had nothing to do with money, people gave it more credibility. I think if Nick Palma was accusing Tim Riley of being a scammer or something, no one would have bought it because of who it's coming from. But because this was non-monetary, I think people believed it more and were more willing to look into it. So he still held a grudge against Tim Riley, and also I guess Tim Riley has still been popping off about him on uh, Twitter for the past three and a half years. I don't know how often, but Palma hated him and was really looking for the opportunity to uh, get back at him. So he found it. I don't know where he heard this, but on December 30th, 2021, just uh, two days ago, Palma tweeted this. Did you start the investigation already for Tim Riley using a fake Vax card to play the World Series of Poker this year? We'll take just a few minutes for you to verify it's fake. And who is this being directed at? WSOP, Poker News, Chad Holloway, who's a reporter for Poker News, and FBI. (laughs) No, it is actually a a, a crime, so that's why you put FBI there, though I doubt the FBI is going to be investigating. And then he made sure that Riley understood why he was doing this. He said, by the way, if Timmy didn't keep mentioning my name, none of this would have happened. I'm the one who put it all together, got the screenshots, and exposed this lying coward. He wanted the attention. He got it. So I guess that is uh, a risk you take when you uh, call out other people that they may want to get back at you and call you out. So he admitted this was a vindictive move and not because he was so concerned about someone who was unvaxxed playing with a fake vax card. 
It's interesting that he wasn't even posturing like, I've just got to say something because it's wrong. He's like, no, I wouldn't have said anything if you hadn't been calling me out a bunch and mentioning my name a bunch. So I'm I'm tired of you. So now I'm going to put out your dirty laundry. That's basically what Nikki Palma was saying. The reason this got a lot of attention was that Tim Riley was an anti-vaxxer and he was pretty vocal against the vaccine. And then yet he was playing the World Series of Poker. And I had wondered about this. I had wondered about the people who were very vocal against the vaccine, what they were going to do come World Series time, because you can't just fly under the radar. You can't bash the vaccine. I'm not taking it. It's terrible. It's awful. I'm not, not doing it. And then, oh, yeah, and I'm at the World Series. We have to be vaccinated. Like, uh, Well, I know, Druff. They're going to be decent human beings and decide just not to show up. <laughs> so I, I wondered. And so I, I knew Alex Foxen and Kristen Bicknell with a couple who were very, very anti-vax and have really hitched their identity to it recently. I knew they were not going to show up, but some of the lesser people who weren't quite as aggressive on the subject as they were and weren't as well-known as they were, uh, I had wondered if any of them were going to play and not realize that this was going to be brought out. Well, one of them apparently was Tim Riley. So Tim Riley had definitely expressed some anti-vax sentiments. Now, keep in mind, you can express anti-vax sentiments and then reluctantly take it anyway because playing poker is important enough to you. So you can still say, well, I had to choose the lesser of two evils. It's so important for me to play the World Series that I took it, but I took it really under protest. I, I, I hate the fact that I have to, but I, I, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to take the chance, but this sucks and I hate it. So you, you could take that position. I'm not saying that being anti-vax means you absolutely can't play the World Series or that if you do that you're, you're faking it. I'm not saying that. But – you are definitely going to bring up suspicion. And if your card is fake, then you're really risking getting caught. Now, if you're a nobody that doesn't ever tweet about it and, and just you quietly make a fake Vax card, uh, you'll probably never get caught because who's going to suspect anything. But the more you say on Twitter against the Vax and the, you show up to the World Series where you have to be Vaxed, that's going to make people ask some questions. So someone must have told Nikki Palma about this, who they knew hated Tim Riley, and then he collected all the evidence he could. And then uh, I don't know why he cho- chose uh, December 30th to expose him. Maybe Tim had made some comments to piss him off. Whatever it was, uh, Nikki Palma decided that was the time he's going to drop all this. Remember, the World Series has been over for uh, about a month and a half now. But uh, he chose to expose it now. Probably would have been more effective to expose it during the World Series, but maybe he didn't know then. So then Alex Jacob jumped into it. And he posted a tweet with pictures of uh, Tim Riley's vaccine card, which showed on September 12th that Riley had uh, received a single dose of of Johnson & Johnson, which does make you fully vaxxed by World Series rules once two weeks have passed. So as of late September, he was fully vaxxed if that was a legitimate card. And... uh, I think that Riley had sent this to Alex Jacob at some point. I'm not sure where it came from, but it it was uh, believed to be a legitimate picture that Riley voluntarily provided of him holding his Vax card, showing this vaccine that he got. And uh, then Jacob also posted a screenshot of a DM he received from a, quote, anonymous person, or at least someone who wanted to remain anonymous if this was shared, that claimed that... Riley was part of some group of people that had an in with a certain employee at a drugstore who for $100 would take a real card and write it up as if they got the shot, but just didn't give them the shot. 
So that was the allegation from this anonymous person. And there was no verification that this was true. And Alex Jacob did not say who it came from, nor did he say that he had verified their claims. Just simply he posted the claim. Now, you can't see this tweet anymore because it's been deleted. And I have a feeling that maybe Alex deleted it because he realized he was putting up a serious allegation there without any kind of proof and just an anonymous DM or even a DM from someone he knows that wants to stay anonymous is not going to be enough to make that sort of allegation. So whatever, he he removed the tweet. I, I saw it, but it's gone now. However, a lot of people did get to see it and got to analyze from there. A Twitter user named Abby Q claims that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine shown on the card simply doesn't exist because they wrote a code on there. And she wrote, I just checked. There is never a vaccine lot that this matches. And she actually went to a website and and shared it with everybody. Vaxcheck, V-A-X-C-H-E-C-K dot J-N-J slash search. Now, I can't tell you what to search anymore because that copy of his card is gone. The only one I saw posted was uh, Alex Jacob. But uh, she claimed she searched it and that uh, it didn't show up so that uh, this wasn't even a real lot of the vaccine, which is strange because that doesn't quite match with the first story. If she if he really had some corrupt employee of a drugstore that was willing to do everything but actually put the shot in his arm, but write it up the exact same way as if they would, then this should match. And and it would be hard to uh, verify whether he got this or not, to be honest, if this was done through this uh, employee there. It would be hard to go back and verify this was fake unless either the employee admitted to it or if there are witnesses who are credible that saw this or if uh, they could prove it in some way scientifically, but that would require a lot of investigation to do and they'd need a warrant to do whatever they did. I I still don't even know if you could... uh, with any kind of test, see if somebody was vaccinated. I know you could check for antibodies, but, uh, you know, would that, would that hold up in court? And obviously they're not going to do a big investigation over this, over one guy faking uh, his vax card to play the World Series. Anyway, there was a lot of drama here that sprung from it, but the one who really got a lot of attention to this was uh, Daniel Negranu. So Daniel Negranu decided that he's going to jump on this, and he's going to offer... 10K to Tim Riley if he is willing to prove it. And this is what he wrote. I'll go on record for funsies. Free $10,000 if Tim Riley can pay a lie detector test or can pass a lie detector test that he actually got the vaccine rather than use a fake vax card to play the WSOP. No strings attached. $10,000 free money. I'm not worried. (laughs) So that's a pretty big offer. So he's not betting him. He's not saying, I'll make a bet with Tim Riley that he could pass the lie detector test. He's just saying, take a lie detector test. I don't know who would pay for the test. Presumably Negreanu would. But take a lie detector test. And then if you pass it, I'll just give you 10K. And if you fail it, then you don't have to pay me anything. So it's a $10,000 free roll. The only way it's not a free roll is it, it could look bad for Tim Riley and maybe getting banned from the World Series. But again, lie detectors are not accepted in court as evidence either way. They're, they're considered not completely reliable. Some people can learn how to beat them. Uh, there's been some criticism that someone could be nervous and fail one when, when they're really telling the truth. So 
this would, I don't know, I don't think this could really be used against him other than for his reputation. Now, I will say this. Let's say the rumor went around that I faked getting the vaccine and that Negreanu was offering me $10,000 if I could pass a lie detector test that I actually got the vaccine. I would snap accept that. Say, okay. I, I might have missed something, Drew, but why doesn't he just show his, his vaccine card? Well, because of this rumor that it's a real card, he just never got the shot. I see. Well, it still would be, there, there would still have to be some way to verify it, right? I don't know scientifically if this could be done. That's, that's what I'm I saying. See. So that's why he's offering the lie detector. And, yeah, uh, sorry, I was away for part of it. I was going to say, like, I would snap take the 10K. Yeah, I would too. I would, I would say, all right, well, uh, you know, I, may, I guess there's a small chance that I'll get nervous during the lie detector and, and, and fail it, even though I really got the vax. But I, I think there's a very high chance that if I took a lie detector test about getting the vaccine, I would pass it with flying colors because I know very well I took the vaccine. I know very well I got sick for uh, three days from the second and third shots. So, and, and, and that's very much oh, in you're, my mind. You're so. a lock, Druff. It's documented. Like, <laughs> Unless I was really to. making up a lot of well, stories, yeah. It would be a long con for you to... <laughs> but, well, I, said, I thought that afterwards. I said, shit, I should have come out and been like super anti-vax and then showed up at the World Series and waited for people to go after me and then wait for someone to demand to bet me about it and then... Clean yeah, up. Make some money. Why not? Clean up. Just, just wait for the bets to roll in and then say, okay, done. Let's do it. And they go, fuck. And then I'd pass with flying colors and the money would flow in. And I'd say, ah, you guys are stupid. You guys are stupid. You fell for the, this is the planned all along. You walked right That would have been a master stroke. That would have been a total master stroke. That, that would have been. But anyway, Tim Riley did not respond to this. And he's been tweeting since then. He's just like tweeting about other stuff. But he is absolutely not answering Daniel Negreanu's challenge, which which obviously doesn't look very good because any rational person would take this money because it's it's so easy to win. And it's not even a bet. It's not even like Riley has to be nervous that if he fails it, that he'll lose 10K. This is a 10K free roll, which is highly likely to go his way if he really took it and could pass it on the lie detector test. So based upon all this, if someone asked me, which way do you believe at the moment? Do you think Tim Riley really got the vaccine, or do you think this is probably fake in some way? I would say, well, from everything I see, especially this $10,000 offer that he is not responding to, I would say, yes, it's probably fake. Now, how do I feel about this? I don't really care. Why don't I care? Well, a lot of dealers at the World Series of Poker were not vaccinated. This is not a requirement. They try to give them some incentives, but some probably felt very strongly about it and didn't want to do it. So dealers, there were plenty that were not vaccinated. Waiters and waitresses, same things. The ones that bring the cocktails around, they also didn't have to be vaccinated. Spectators especially didn't have to be vaccinated because they had no incentive to be vaccinated. If they were just guys or girls that just didn't believe in the vaccine, yet they wanted to watch the World Series or just play cash, there was no mechanism to make sure they were vaccinated. The only mechanism was to register for World Series events. Then you have to show some sort of proof. But if you're just there to play cash or just to watch, you didn't have to be vaccinated and there was nobody checking. So there were probably a number of spectators there who were not vaccinated. So how many people do you really think were there like Tim Riley out of the massive number of people that were there? It's probably not many at all. And I I get from a statistical point of view it's a drop in the bucket and and who gives a fuck but wouldn't wouldn't you want uh 
the dickery to be exposed if this guy really was going to the extent of doing this? Well, okay, so that th- let me tell you how I feel about that. So, All right. since I feel there were enough people who were allowed to be there unvaxxed, like the, the groups I mentioned, and that I feel the number of people faking the vax, whether it was Tim Riley or not, the, the number of people that were allowed to be there unvaxxed was probably a lot more than those who were faking their vaccination. I feel that it doesn't really matter very much in, in the grand scheme of things. It, it just the bottom line is it didn't really matter, and I, I don't think it really hurt very much. And the truth is that just being there unvaxed doesn't put everybody in danger. You have to be there unvaxed and have COVID to put anybody in danger. And uh, just because you're there without a vaccine doesn't mean that you're there transmitting COVID or that you have COVID. So it's very yeah, possible. You might be more li- likely to pick it up from somebody. You know, you go out to a nightclub later and you might pick it up and spread it to people because well, you're going to be sitting in close proximity to them. I mean, I realize it's not, like you said, in the grand scheme of things, it's a drop in the bucket, but, you know, yeah. now, I mean, that's, I, the, that's the whole reason they're doing it, right? Well, so I'm not against this being exposed if this is what happened i'm not saying he deserves secrecy or privacy here so if uh, if he really did this and someone got wind of it and then exposed it if he's being falsely accused that's uh it's kind of messed up but then you'd think he'd collect on the ten thousand dollars <laughs> from this uh, false accusation the fact that he's not kind of looks like uh the accusation's not wrong but i will say that while i understand why it's being brought up while i'm not criticizing anyone for bringing this out I'm just saying that I don't think it's a huge deal. And the number of people at the World Series who were there that did much worse things that should be bothersome to see them there, like like people who were playing because they scammed the money from other poker players or, or people who uh, took stakes that uh, they never intend to pay if they win or people who uh, have sold more than 100% of themselves and are losing on purpose so they, they keep the excess money. Uh, we have that every year at the World Series. So that should be the much bigger source of outrage. And while that's not unique to 2021, that's unique. That's every year at the World Series and every tournament series. I'm saying that this to me is a minor issue that's being played up as a big issue because the people who are playing it up are the ones who hate the anti-vaxxers with such a passion that they want to humiliate them at every turn. So this becomes a huge issue. This to them is a much bigger issue than, than, than scammers playing with money they stole from other poker pros. I don't get that, Druff. I don't get that. Like, you know, I, I think the vaccines are a good thing. Why would you ever want to humiliate people that that don't? Because what you really, if, if you're caring about your own best interests and you believe it to be true, you know, you believe the world is round and you believe the vaccines are effective. You would want to try and convince these people. You don't do that by insulting them or ostracizing them. Or I don't understand. Well, that it doesn't that, make any sense. That's what's been happening a lot on Twitter. Like that's that's happening a whole lot. Ah, it's and, fucking Twitter. And uh, <laughs> well, that I mean that's why it's happening. It's like a lot of people are going after him here for this reason. Because you know, look at who's bringing this up: Nick Palma, who has a bad rep from, from all these dealings of his. Uh, uh, over the last several years, and a lot of people have independently come forward with with bad stories about him. One of which Nick Palma even responded to, "Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do owe that guy money. So I, I wish I hadn't done this to him. He's a good guy, but sorry, I'm working on paying it back." Like, like he's even validating some of the stories. And you so know he, what I'm saying? Like, you're you're not going to ever convince anyone to get a vaccine by humiliating them or insulting them. I don't 
I don't understand where they're coming from. Like, I don't understand what they expect to achieve by doing that. They, they just want to achieve uh, posturing and moral superiority. That, well, that's that, pathetic. Uh, it's stupid. not going to help anything. And that's why I've said before, I, I've, I've explained this to people before. I said, there's people who listen to this show that got the vaccine because of my coverage of COVID on this show and, and my explanation for why, as a conservative, as a political conservative, I took the vaccine every shot, all three shots, as soon as I could get them. And I explained why and explained why getting the vaccine doesn't mean that you're agreeing with everything the left has done and said regarding the virus, that you can still be very critical of the way the left has handled this whole thing and exploited this whole thing, but also at the same time say getting the vaccine is the correct thing to do. And some of them listen to this. That whole framing is crazy to me, though. It's crazy to me that you have to say, as a conservative... And and that the left wants this because this is not about left, right, political, liberal, whatever. This is a public health issue. And it, I think people on both sides are doing a terrible job by conver- by making it a political issue. Oh, yeah. And I, 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 I realize it that it has been politicized here or there. But again, as you've said before, if you want to convince someone to, to get this thing, you know, you don't do it by insulting them. You you do it by presenting them with the the facts and the evidence, and hopefully they'll they'll come around to it. Well, what's funny know? is I've even read some articles like like on CNN saying this is how you convince an anti-vaxxer to take the vaccine. Oh, let me let me read that. So I read it. And it's like you just got to understand that. Um, tell them they're not stupid. They were just misled by coverage on Fox News. And I go, no, you don't, no, you don't say that either. That's 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 still calling them stupid. Like you, you you've right. got like really you've you've got to say that. Not you're stupid. Let me explain why you were stupid, or let me explain why this this person or, or organization tricked you. But more say, yes, I understand your concerns and they're reasonable. But despite that, here's why it's the correct thing to do. And that's this that's, is as crazy to me as if someone had said, you know, I'm not going to get the vaccine because I'm a Yankees fan, and the Red Sox people are are saying to get the vaccine. You know, to me, it's as crazy as that. It's like no, it's nothing to do with it. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's and that's what I've tried to that's what I've tried to tell people, and that's that's why I, I said, listen to the show, listen to how much I criticize the left regarding COVID, and yet I got the vaccine. So that's there's, there's, you know you can do you can do both. You you don't have to give up anything. You, you, there isn't a, a rigid uh, playbook of behavior you have to have about COVID if you're on one side or the other. And I've seen I've seen people on the left, by the way, who are frustrated with their own side. That uh, obviously they're they're pro-vax. I don't mean it, I don't really don't know many uh, anti-vaxxers in the left, but I do know people on the left who are pro-vax and got the vax, but at the same time are very disgusted with the way their side is handled. Why, and, and why criticize is their that? Own side. Why would there not be? I don't understand. Like why why should there be more anti-vaxxers on the right than on the left? Well, like, it doesn't it's, make sense. To it, me. It's it's because of the way the coverage came down from each side, and each side had a narrative they wanted to push, and the right pushed the um, the freedom and everything's being exaggerated narrative, and, and the left put the uh, pushed the uh, panic. We need to do everything to uh, every little thing possible to give us a slightly better odds to to have fewer deaths, no matter uh, how burdensome it is. Side, and I guess uh, my only argument there would be kind of the your freedom ends where mine begins, you know, and it's more like. It's not freedom to get to choose your own religion. It's not freedom in that sense. It's more analogous to should be should you be allowed to go out drunk driving on the streets? And the answer is no, because you can be endangering other people. And it's a similar thing with with COVID. However you choose to handle it, whether it's 
isolating yourself or whether it's getting vaccinated or, you know, whatever. I don't – the whole thing just blows my mind that well, yeah, people are getting the, divided in this way. Well, and the whole thing – there is a lot of complexity to it because then sometimes – because if you take too many – countermeasures that are too burdensome for society then you start sure. causing harm the other way which can well exceed the harm for covid and that's been a lot of the criticism about like the way kids are being handled that that given their outcomes are very good that uh that do we want to subject these kids to these tremendous restrictions which which interferes with their development in childhood uh to, to save a, a tiny tiny percentage that are that are going to have uh, uh bad outcomes from this who might who probably get it anyway uh even despite these so so there i, I and i can totally understand and relate to all I, I that get that part but there are countries like new zealand for instance has a a zero covid policy and new, new zealand is you know kind of similar to us in a, a western democracy and they've done amazing and yes, you're right. You have to balance uh, people's lives. I, I fully believe people should be able to live their lives and, and do with whatever the fuck they want to do. But when you have a, a public health concern, you know, I mean, it's a, it is a big deal trying to keep people out of hospital beds so that you're actually able to handle, you know, none of the a lot of the measures that are taken are like restricting borders are done not because it's going to make a difference in terms of the spread it says it's going to slow it so that they can actually handle it yeah well i, I don't I even agree with that, that part I, I, I think they just what's yeah. that I, I, think, I don't even agree with the restricting borders that it has it's, it's never been proven to work it's it's failed every time because of the way covid transmit it's it, it right. too much pre-symptomatic transmission and by the time well, you even, discover even it, when they're doing it they say you know we know this isn't going to stop it from getting here the idea is to st- uh, hopefully slow it down to the the point where they can manage it in one way or another but in, in any event, I mean, the, the main point here is I, I agree that there's a tension between letting people live their lives and, and then also being able to, to handle it. But I, I don't see why it should be divided politically. Like, that amazes me. Oh, yeah. No, I, I've, and I've hated that. And that's the problem. And you know what's sad is that – and I don't want to get too much into COVID tangent here. But what's sad is that I can't even get any reliable U.S. news about COVID because everything is slanted to one side or the other. And uh, and I just everything I read, I, go, I don't know what to believe because uh, everything I know is coming with a certain bias, and right. uh, and then I I have to try to unravel that into what the truth really is. And I go, this is stupid. Why can't we just all be together on this one and say, you know, this is one time we're not going to politicize it. This is so important that we're all going to be honest with, and we may have different approaches, but we're going to be honest about this and we're going to try to all come together. And, and and do the best we can, rather than uh, we're too we're too tribal. No, know, way, way too tribal now. Yeah. So, yeah, but getting getting back to what you're talking about, like <laughs> how desperate do you have to be to play poker that you're going to go to the extent of going to a mass gathering and getting a fake COVID nineteen vaccine certificate just so you can go play poker? Right, and fuck? that's that's what pretty stupid. Fuck, that's man. and that's that's what you have to do if you, if you're that much hitched to the anti-vax train and you're just you just don't want to take it and you can be pissed off that the world series isn't, let, isn't letting you play but at that point you go okay well that's just part of what i have to do sit out of the world series because of my convictions here and while i wish their policy was different uh that's what i gotta do you get once you go as far as getting these fake cards especially if you've been vocal it's about not it. even a light it's not even something that the guy's life depends on you know yeah it's not even it's not that he's a 
you know, he's a, a first responder or an emergency worker that has to go out and do it. It's it's fucking poker. Really, well, it's the World Series. Like he can keep playing. He keep playing cash poker and other poker that without getting vaxxed. And uh, what the big mistake is, though, as I said before, is because he's been vocal against the vaccine before. If if he never said anything about it and said, okay, who's going to ask? Who's going to suspect anything? No one knows my views on on uh, COVID vaccine, so who's going to ever know? He'd be right. No one would ever catch it. No one, no one would ever catch it. But uh, if you've set, if you've spoken out against it, then you're seen playing. Then that's going to be a big problem. And I, I remember thinking that. I remember thinking like, I wonder if anyone's going to go play that was vocal against the vax. And uh, and, and I guess he was he was one of them. Now, as I said, he wasn't quite. He doesn't sound very clever, Drew. He, he wasn't quite to the level of uh, of Alex Fox and and Kristen Bicknell. But uh, but I, I was surprised that uh, that he did that. Now. I actually I don't know him very well, uh, but in my interactions with him on social media, uh, we've always gotten along, and I have no problem with the guy. And I think he was uh, correct to call out Nick Palma three and a half years ago, and uh, so I, I don't have any problem with him. And I think that there has been way more vitriol against him over this than he deserves. It's kind of a funny story. It's kind of an amusing story. I'm not saying that it shouldn't it's be sad. talked about. I think it's sad um, that, that he would go to this extent to do, assuming that he did it. I mean, that's my overall thing. I just would look at him and be like, really? You, you really had to go there that badly? I yeah. Mean, well, I, I, I agree with you there. But like overall, I just kind of see the thing as kind of an amusing story, but, but not like, did you hear? Did you hear what Tim Riley did? Right. Shame, like no, I, th- this is so minor compared to other transgressions that occur at poker, even at the World Series, that are talked about much, much less. This is just because it's unusual; uh, it's it's getting attention. I understand that, but there are some people on their moral high horse acting like uh, this is someone just you know he needs this intense shame for what he did, and and I'm not. I'm not a believer in that, and like there's some maybe who- maybe they're fr- maybe a group of people are frustrated because they're like you know what we don't like having to go get vaccinated we don't like having to wear masks we don't like having to do all this shit but we're doing it but it's- and this fucking prick is not doing it maybe that's their attitude. well it's funny you know. mention that because the people coming at him are not those that sat out because they uh, didn't get the vaccine and were pissed off that he got to play and not get the vaccine. Those people right. are actually supporting him and bashing those who are bashing him right now. So he's not even getting shit on that side. He's getting shit from the people who uh, were first in line to get the vaccine as soon as they could. Who have very- Well, that's what I mean. I mean, uh, maybe those people feel like, you know what? We didn't want to have to get vaccinated. We didn't, you know, we, we're not enjoying this either. No, I'm, I'm not saying doing, that, But though. we're doing what we're supposed to do and they don't like people that are doing what they're not supposed to do well sort of like but i don't think that they felt like they needed to for poker but they just didn't really want to these are people right. who who felt like uh oh yeah this is totally correct i i would what, even if i was never playing poker i i would get this vaccine that, well that's what i'm saying like people. i I, d- I didn't have any desire to go out and get vaccinated for no reason you know like i didn't want to do it i don't want to wear masks when i go out i don't want to do any of this shit i fucking i can't wait till it, we don't have to worry about this anymore you know yeah, well, I, I'll, my opinion as someone who got vaccinated and who went through uh, shitty days after the second and third shots, yeah, and and also may have had these these uh, weird foot problems and ankle problems earlier in, you know, in early December, and my elbow problems in October may be aggravated or brought on by the third shot. I'll never know. Uh, as someone who had all that, I still don't resent those who have chosen not to get the vaccine. I, I may be. I may think yeah. they made a mistake. I may feel like, uh, 
wow, you, what, you're 60 years old and you haven't gotten it? That's, that's a pretty big mistake. I, I would think that. I would think they're making a wrong decision and, and risking their lives unnecessarily and risking long-term right. damage. But I'm not going to go, damn it, I had to go through all this and they didn't do it. What an asshole. Like, I, no, I, they're making a choice that I think could end up harming them. But my attitude well, What about is, harming other people? What if by not getting vaccinated, they're increasing the likelihood that it's going to spread to some extent or another? Well... Because there is, there, you know, I agree with you, man. Like, I think people can do whatever the fuck they want. If it was a completely isolated thing, and whether you got the shot or not had no impact on anyone else, I would be like, fine. You, you know, if you want to be more likely to die, you believe it's a conspiracy, do whatever the fuck you want. But the fact that it is a contagious disease, that limiting the spread between people is beneficial, I mean, that makes it about more than just a personal decision. You know no, and I, mean? I understand that, but what we have seen is one of the very wrong assumptions about COVID that we had in 2020 was we get a certain percentage of the people vaccinated, herd immunity kicks in, it's over. That, that has well, failed. We, ever, we never got there. Oh, but, but other places have, and it hasn't worked. That's why Omicron yeah, is everywhere. Israel is one place, right? Didn't they get to like 90-something percent? There were some that were even higher than Israel. That I don't, Israel didn't get that high, but they were one of the higher ones, but there, there were places that i forget which ones that got to like 87 88 and they they all have the problem with omicron now they 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 even before omicron they they were never away from covid a few very isolated places like new zealand with small populations did well but that's that's not most places so well japan and korea have done incredibly well they've done better because of of cultural differences but 16 times better is a lot but well cultural differences meaning that they're more likely to follow the mandates of their government but what that tells you though is that the mandates from the government actually do work well (laughs) because if they didn't work they wouldn't be 16 times fewer deaths and 16 times fewer infections well but it's the same way you can say that that uh i haven't gotten covid yet or i didn't catch covid during you know the the time i couldn't get vaccinated yet you know between the when covid showed up and when the vaccine was available to me which more than a year that i didn't get it just because i i as perlot friedman would say i practiced avoidance and uh so (laughs) so yes the more one practices avoidance and is willing to do it which i was then your chance is way down of catching it but uh avoidance is probably better than anything else it is and that's the problem is it's impractical well that's the thing the thing is that a lot of these other countries were much willing to the population as a whole that was much more willing to do it than in the u.s and that's just in the culture yeah and uh right um, no 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 for sure all, all i'm saying is that if they were more willing to do these things that they were told to do and they had a orders of magnitude better outcome then the things that they were told to do probably were the right things to do well, yeah, it depends right. on, on on what the things are, but yeah, I, I, as you said, I think that just avoiding uh, public sp- indoor spaces is, is a huge thing prior to getting vaccinated. But what I'm saying is that nobody vaccinated their way out of this. That the the belief, and this was the belief that we could. The, the belief was if we could get, if you can get your your country doing sixty uh, percent even, that it'll die, or is eighty percent? It's definitely going to die. Nope, it it doesn't. And so there there was the breakthroughs that weren't expected. There was the right. the the it, it, that it might be transmitting anyway. Even people have. Uh, are, are on the vaccine and don't feel it. There's that that hasn't been proven, but it's being theorized. And then there's the quick uh, mutations, including this Omicron one, which was a very large mutation. So much to where they it is now believed that it might have just merged with a common cold or did which something else. Hopefully, for, is true. Or, I mean, yeah, it's or, actually a good thing if it's yeah. not uh, nearly as as fatal. Oh, be, definitely. 
I mean, the the thing is, though, it's still the, the stats are still showing that you're 14 times more likely to die from COVID if you're unvaccinated than if you're vaccinated. So while we didn't get rid of it, we probably certainly made it better. Oh, for, for sure. The vaccines brought down the death rate. There's no question. And the hospitalization rate, though, the, the vaccines, I'm, I'm very much on the side that uh, these made a very big difference, especially for people who are over 45. That, uh, that that really having being vaccinated being over forty five versus being unvaccinated under forty five over forty five. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. I guess a lot of this really does come down to how much do you value the individual over how much do you value the collective group, and societies that place a higher emphasis on the collective group as Japan, and it's one of the criticisms of Japan is that they're very much group think like a way to be ostracized in japan is if you don't think and do as japanese people do yeah you know so maybe you know maybe a lot of it boils down to that is you know how much you're willing to accept uh or how much you're willing to value uh the individual versus the group and here you know where we are where the group is so splintered and in fact some groups hate each other just because they're someone's on the other team you know i I guess it makes sense yeah well that's Right, and and what I've said about these countries is often what's good about them is also what's bad about them. And of depending course. on the circumstance, uh, in some cases it's good that you're a certain way, in some cases it's bad a certain way. So, uh, and, and you can't just oh, say, yeah. okay, you can't just say, well, no, now no, time I, to... I agree. Like, as much as I do think that these societies did a, a much better job of handling the virus, I, I also would have a very difficult time living there Yeah, because of, you know, just the way that I was raised. Yeah, yeah I, sure. I would too. So anyway, uh, that's about all i have to say about uh so if this guy he's got to take the lie detector test i mean why would he not do it well he wouldn't if, if he really if he fails the... it he can just say oh they're unreliable you know no and i wouldn't like, no if i were him i wouldn't take like it the, then. Uh, the opinion of this guy the people on the 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 left who or whatever who hate him because he's anti-vax and the people on the right who like him because of his stance their opinion, no one's opinion is going to be changed one way or the other. If he fails the test, then he'll have 10 grand. So fucking go take it. Well, I, I, I think I know why. Because okay. if, if he right. didn't actually get the vaccine and knows that he would probably fail the test, then yeah. what he potentially brings on is more attention that something has to be done. So, mm, uh, so he may okay. be worried that this could increase the chance of some kind of criminal investigation or even the WSOP investigating and banning him. Whereas now he can just I say... See. Uh, some some guy who's a scammer is mad that I exposed him in 2018, making up dumb stories about me, and and I I'm I'm above doing bullshit like taking lie detector tests. I'm not I'm not stooping to his level or Negreanu's level. I'm just not doing yeah. it. I have a, I, I have a legit vaccine card. You guys can check if the card is real. This isn't something I bought off the internet. I really went to yeah. this uh, the CVS or whatever, and uh, and I took the vaccine. I don't give a shit what you guys think. And and. Uh, you know, so that's it. And that, he could just stick to that, and the World Series would probably have a hard time banning him. If he, if he and it'll go away. Yeah, and right? it would go, go away exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah. that's uh, that's. I actually agree with his decision not to do it if he yeah. really didn't get vaccinated. Now, if he did get vaccinated, then he'd be a fool not to do it because he could one clear his name about this, and two get a free ten k out of Negranu, and yeah, who wouldn't want so, that? So, what does that tell us about what likely happened? Well, I think we know. I mean, like I said, it's <laughs> yeah. a, the the ten k. I will say Negranu's offer was brilliant in that it pretty much it's given that Negreanu was confident enough that the guy didn't really get vaxxed. The one thing Negreanu was risking is that, that Palma was wrong and then Riley would go, yep, let's do it. <laughs> and then Negreanu yeah. would have to give up 10K but Negreanu probably has enough money to where he's like, okay, whatever. If by, by some chance that uh, 
the guy really got vaxxed. I'm only giving up 10k. It's not like he's offering 100k or a million. He's just offering 10k. So, but like it, like you for sure, I would just go do it. And I know that there's some chance that the the test would you know I'd get nervous and it would be a false positive or whatever. But I I would still do it. You know? Yeah, I, I would too. I, I think I, yeah. that was what I thought. It's like if this was offered to me, boy, I just I'd be the first one responding to that tweet. Say yes, when? Let's do it right now. <laughs> I would just. I'd be right on that because uh, I'm just about sure I would pass that lie detector about it because it, I really took the vaccine and and not only do I really take it but I have memories of of uh, negative things that immediately followed it that are pretty strong right. so that even makes it more right. likely that there wouldn't be uh, some kind of false uh, reading uh, so it, it's different than like uh, if someone asked me did you eat a hamburger yesterday and I know I did but that's you know it's, it's not a lot of emotion attached to eating a hamburger yesterday so I'm afraid what if I just get nervous during the test like you have these strong memories of getting very sick afterwards it's it's going to be i can't i can't see how the lie detector would show i'm lying when i say yes i took the vaccine because i'll know i'll say it like thinking about the experience and thinking about the memories of it and the afterwards and a so. lie detector is a little sketchy though i mean there's a reason why they're not admissible so i might be nervous about that yeah, i know, would be a little nervous but it's only 10k and it's a free roll so i would i would clearly yeah, do it yeah. so. you take the hit to your rep just in case one came right Yes, I, I, I would take and I, and I could say, well, let's take a second one. I got nervous, but I you know let's do, let's do a second and third, and I'll show it like something like that. So, I, I, yeah. I would take the chance. I, I'd be confident enough for 10k that I could pass it, that I would definitely take the chance. All right. So, like you said, we we probably know what happened here. Yeah, but but again, <laughs> yeah. in, in case Tim Radley's listening, he may even listen to the show. I don't know, but if, if he's listening, I don't think it's anywhere near the big deal people are portraying, and I think a lot of people are virtue signaling over this, and I think it's uh, it's stupid what a big deal is being made over this, aside from just uh, a, a, an amusing story that that is that has come out, and and Negranu's little bet. I mean, yeah, the whole thing's worthy of discussion, which is why I'm bringing it up here. But I I just want to make it clear to everybody, I'm not bringing this up to shame. Tim Riley here. I'm bringing it up because it's an interesting story. Negreanu's bet was an interesting story, or not bet, but the offer. And uh, and I, I also think some people need to calm down and not make a huge. Deal I, I agree with you. I mean, I haven't seen this piling on on Twitter, so I'm just going to assume it is what you're saying. It is. I agree, man. And there's no reason to do that. I mean, it, it's yeah, it's a sketchy thing this guy did, but you're right. It's not the end of the world, given how many other people there were there unvaccinated anyway. I'm guessing people are just like, well, you know, this guy didn't follow the rules, and they're they're mad at that. And then also, like you said, they can push their their agenda. But I agree with you. It's you know, it's it mostly to me. It just seems sad that this if this guy did that, he would actually go to that extent just to go play poker. It's yeah, like, come on. Okay, well, um, we're gonna move on to the next topic here. Are you, are you done? It's time for you to bed. Three thirty. Pretty soon, we got Trader Ruski still. I don't know. He's, he's still there, quiet. buddy. Did he fall asleep. Trade... No, no, so he just hung up. He, no, he, he fell. He, he's gone. Mm. Oh, I, I wanted to he... see if he'd take the light attack. I, I wanted to see too. I'm like, wait a minute. What does Trader Ruski think about this? And then boom, he's yeah. gone. I think I think he you know, he goes to sleep early these days. Maybe he was up later because maybe last night he stayed up to midnight for the New Year. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, uh, it, it kind of. Did you do my... anything special for New Year's, by the way? You know, I, sh- I should mention this. I had a plan to go to Tahoe. I may have even mentioned this in the last show. I had a plan to go to Tahoe. Yeah, and I canceled it because I just I, I kind of felt like it's going to be so crowded that the chance of getting Omicron, or at least like Benjamin getting Omicron, is, is pretty high. Like, and then the chance of me catching it is not as high because I'm vaxxed and boosted. 
but it could break through. It's not like a shocker if it breaks through. And yeah. uh, so, like, what I really didn't want was for me and Benjamin's mom and Benjamin, like, like we're all there in Tahoe, and then me and Benjamin's mom get sick, and we can't drive the 500 miles back. Like, that's just, yeah. that seemed like a nightmare to be trapped there, even if it's just, like, a bad cold. Because there's, I've had very bad colds before, that you know, way before COVID existed, where I couldn't drive, where I was that sick from the cold. This doesn't usually happen. Usually with a cold, I can drive. But I've had some really bad colds that give me very bad fatigue, and... uh um, where I just feel so awful that I, I could not drive and especially not a long distance. I could maybe drive for 10 minutes, but I, I couldn't drive for many hours and, and I would be stuck and, and couldn't go back. And I just felt like this and, thing is so contagious that I, I didn't want to chance it. And, you know, people who have families probably feel this more than, than other people, but the, the worst thing would be if, through your actions somehow someone in your family got it you know what i mean like you wouldn't want like there's a i I haven't seen it yet but i've heard about it that there's a really good documentary called the first wave that apparently is you can stream it on hulu uh it's a national geographic documentary and what they do is they follow um some healthcare workers and some families that contracted covid in new york city it's from the first four months, right? So it's when COVID first came there. And remember, New York City got absolutely annihilated, yeah. remember? And there was a, a frontline healthcare worker who ended up getting COVID, and she brought it back home, and her whole family got COVID, oh. and a couple of them died from it. And if you're if you got kids, I mean, it's like your worst nightmare, right? So I understand what you're talking about. Well, yeah, about, and you... it's funny. With Benjamin, I was thinking about that. I kept going back and forth. At first, I was saying, well, wait, he's just about to go back to school. And with Omicron yep. being this contagious, like, uh, there's a good chance he's going to get it anyway. And so does it really matter if he gets it in Tahoe versus in, uh, in school? And then second, because he's a kid, the chance of it being a bad outcome is, is very, very tiny. So why am I that worried? The ones I should be worrying about is like me and, and, my, and my girlfriend. So I, I did think about that in both ways. But then I still I, – I totally get what you're saying because, yes, I would have felt bad if by bringing – Benjamin to these huge crowds in New Year's for Tahoe in Tahoe that he gets it there. It's different than school where he's got to go and if it happens there, it happens there. This is something we didn't have to do. And uh, like I, I, I would have felt sort of bad because it's not like 100% he's going to get it in school. It's, right. it's a high enough chance now to where I'm not going to be at all surprised if he gets it in school. But it's not like I know 100% he's getting it in school so, uh, so might as well get it now. So uh, that's and then, of course, if he gets it there, then it's, what do we do at that point? Just sit in the room with him all day? Like, I just thought there's too many ways that this can go bad, and we're just too far from home. And I said, F it. We're just going to stay back. So, yeah. uh, so I, you that, just that, sat at home? I, I just, for the second year in a row, and I, I really yeah. don't like staying home for New Year's. I, I usually try to do something on New Year's, but for now, two years in a row, I'm starting to get used to it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've stayed home last year for New Year's. That's when COVID was spiking about it at its peak and uh, killing the most people every day, and vaccines were not available to me yet. They were only going to uh, the very top priority groups, of which I wasn't part. Did you watch the ball drop or anything I, like I watched that? The, I watched the delayed ball drop. You get to watch the real drop. I, I watched, Oh, I, I got to tell you guys something. I, I'm so glad you brought that up. I, I want to tell a personal right. story about, about that New Year's Rockin' Eve that I don't think I've ever told on this show. You, you know what I'm talking about, Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve on ABC? That we, they, didn't, we went back and forth between... Uh, we don't. I don't have cable TV, so we just have Hulu streaming. 
So there was the there was a, the Anderson Cooper, there was the Nashville one, and then there were a couple other ones we went back and forth to, but we didn't stick with anyone in, in particular. Okay, well, I've been watching this New Year's Rock and Eve for a very, very long time. Remember, this was Dick Clark's. It's still called Dick Clark's, even though he's been dead for a long time. And oh, God. The, the, the saddest thing was after he had the stroke and he was in such bad shape, he should have just stayed out of the spotlight. He should just, like, just not been there. He was appearing on there with Ryan Seacrest who took over and it was just so sad seeing him like this. Like he couldn't move most of his face and he sounded like he could barely... Hey Dick, so so uh, isn't this going to be a great new year? Oh yeah. yeah this is going to be a great uh, 2005. I'm like, oh my god, this is, this is like he was known as like America's teenager, the guy who like seemed to never age. He should have never let himself be seen like this. Like I don't blame mm-hmm. him for having a stroke. It's, it's sad that happened, but um, yeah, when your image is that of this young or young acting guy for your whole career, the last thing you want to do is, is have the last thing seen of you is that when it just it's almost like watching a monster on TV. Like I would I would totally say of the spotlight if I were him at that point. And that's what some actors have done when they've had major health issues, which makes them. Maybe it's all he knows that gives him yeah, meaning. I, I guess. I but know. anyway, uh, Ryan Seacrest has done this for a long time now. And I, I still watch it kind of out of tradition. But uh, it's basically they have they're out on the streets in, in Times Square. And, yeah, and yeah. then they have performances from various uh, A and B list performers. And that's fine. That's the way it's always been. In fact, I watched this back in the 70s. And I remembered I had a fantasy that one day when I was, uh, I, I pictured like in the year 2000 is what I told my mom. In the year 2000, when I'm <laughs> almost when I'm almost 28 years old, I'm going to be there with my wife and kids, which didn't exactly happen when I was almost 28. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna be in Times Square. Like I was I had this whole picture that I was gonna go to. Like I really was saying I was gonna go to Times Square for this, and I never did. I've been to Times Square, but never for New Year's. So, yeah. um, and now I kind of like feel too old, like to want to deal with all the madness there. Have you been yeah. there, even though you're you're in the area, sort of? I mean, I know you're not close to New York City. I've, but... I've been in, in Times Square for the ball drop before. Okay, yeah. okay. So you got to do it. See, I didn't get to do it, and I kind of in a way I kind of feel like I cheated myself. But I do watch it. On, on that it's like being at a really cold frat party. Right. That's kind of what it's looked like. So <laughs> I, I've been to the Las Vegas celebrations many times, but I, I've never been to the, this Times Square ball drop. So one thing I noticed that appeared on TV sometime in the 2000s was an L.A. version, an L.A. party that Fergie mm. was doing at the time. And she was hosting it, but then she had – there were all these different performers and uh, – uh, the whole thing looked looked pretty fun to be there, and uh, I thought, how do you get into this thing? Are there tickets? How expensive are they? But I actually had some interest to go to this thing, and th- this is when I was younger. Like right now, I they'd say, "Who's this old guy here?" But uh, back then, I was probably like what thirty four or something. So I, I would have I wouldn't have been out of place with that crowd. It was like a twenty one to thirty five crowd. So I would have been one of the older ones, but not like the the old guy like I'd be now. And uh, uh, so I, I kind of had. A desire to go there for one of these uh, one of these years, and I was looking into how expensive the tickets would have been. So I, I tried to look it up online, and I drew a complete blank to where I determined that there were no tickets. That this wasn't something that they were selling. They never said they were selling it, but I just at first I was dumb enough to believe that this is something you could just buy tickets for. And my my only question was like. Um, can I get them, and, and how expensive are they? Well, that went out the window real fast. I realized there were no tickets. This had to be some sort of uh, thing you get invited to. So 
I thought, okay, well, is there a way I can get myself invited to it? So I got a hold of a, uh, a contact who, who worked in the industry, and I asked him about it. And I said, is there any way that you could get me into this? And I asked him probably a few days before uh, New Year's. And he said to me, not unless you have a time machine, because this was recorded a few weeks ago. I said, what? what? It's recorded a few weeks ago? I, I, I don't understand. It, it's, a, it's a New Year's party they keep jumping to that they say, okay, let's go to Los Angeles to see them, and then you see them partying, and, and, and you'll eventually see them counting down for the New Year. So how could this have been pre-recorded? You're telling me it's all fake? He says, it's all fake. That's what, yeah, who, that's on point for fake Hollywood, though. Yeah, and I said, wait, so, so <laughs> who are these people there? Like, who's, who's going to this? Who would want to go to a fake New Year's party in mid-December? And he said, actors. They're all actors, 100% Makes actors. Sense. And they are under strict requirements regarding how they behave. He says, watch it. You're going to see nobody is looking down at their phone. Nobody is staring at the ceiling. Nobody has like a straight face or just standing still. Everybody's dancing along with the music, clapping, smiling, <sighs> looking like they're having the best time. And they're doing this for hours and hours and hours. And of course, they have to ring in a fake New Year that's actually not coming for a few weeks. And they say, you know, and, and even though you may like some of the performers who are there, may think it's cool to see this just one after another A-list performers coming to stage and doing their best-known songs, it gets real tiresome when you know that you are expected from the moment you walk in till the end to constantly fake enthusiasm. It cooks all the fun out of it. This is not fun, he told me. Not only is it not fun, but it feels fake and it feels inauthentic. You wouldn't want to be there, he said to that's me. That's just depressing. And that's bro. what I said. I said, oh my God, this is, I, like, I, I felt uh. shattered. It's like learning Santa Claus isn't real as a kid. Uh, it, it's, it's like, I go, wow, I was picturing they were really having a party in LA. Even when I realized it was an invite-only thing, it's like the the Milli Vanilli of fucking New Year's celebrations, you know? Yeah, and so so he said, you know what? Look for what Fergie's doing, and you will sometimes see that she's performing elsewhere, not in L.A., at the same time when this is airing. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, I did, and she was performing in Las Vegas. Dear God. She was performing... At some casino in Vegas on the same night that she's there in L.A. having this party. Now, I was curious about it. It's uh, Ciara doing it this year, or is it the one that just passed yesterday here. I looked to see if Ciara was performing anywhere else. She wasn't. She was. They must have this in the contract that they can't do this anymore. Uh, I didn't. I, the funny thing is you never hear about this. Like, you would have thought someone would have brought up, hey, what is Fergie doing performing in, L- in Las Vegas if she was uh, – <laughs> oh, 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 sorry. I, I did skip one thing. They used to put a disclaimer up saying previously recorded but yeah. of this party, but you thought it was previously recorded, like watching it thinking, well, it was previously recorded like uh, um, you know, maybe a few hours ago. Previously recorded meant a few weeks ago, and, and, and the ringing of the New Year was, was totally fake. So, All right, so this is depressing, and it's equally as sad as getting a fake vaccine card to go play cards at the World Series of Poker, but it is on point for what you would expect, like, fake Hollywood types to do. Like, it totally yeah. is, you know? So, so guys, next time you see this uh. New Year's Rock and Eve, I, I wish I told you guys this last week, but next time you see New Year's Rock and Eve, I, I look for it every year now, when they, when they jump to the L.A., look at the people there 
And you'll notice a few things. Number one, totally they're showing fake enthusiasm the entire time. And they've always got their eyes on the performer, always smiling, always acting excited, never any lull in that with anybody. Also, you'll take a look at these people and they all range. It's harder to tell with the masks on, but they all range between moderately attractive to very attractive. There's like no ugly people there. There's no ugly mm-hmm. people. There's no fat people. There's no old people. No, none of them. So they, they it's, it, it's like the, it, the nerdy girls in the movie. They just take hot chicks and put glasses on them. Yeah. <laughs> so there's there's not anybody there that uh, doesn't also at least somewhat fit in with with that image there, and uh, they, they do this because it's it's casting, and they're they're not going to call up the the fat or old people to That's go so be there. fucking terrible. Yeah, I, I I had actually I don't think I'd ever heard of this celebration thing at all anyway but i'm i'm kind of glad that i've never even seen it yeah it's <laughs> God. it's, it's yeah, uh, all we did is uh we just you know uh, my wife was actually making cookies and uh we had one kid the younger kid that wanted to stay up to see the ball drop for whatever reason so we were just flipping through the stuff but we did absolutely nothing i, I didn't enjoy it i like to go out and do stuff yeah, I, I do too. And uh, I mean, you know, I didn't not enjoy it, but you know what I mean. Like, I I like celebrating the new year. Yeah. Well, at least Benjamin is always very excited when he sees the. Did he stay up? Yeah, he always stays up. Uh, oh. But he saw the delayed three-hour ball drop and uh, was very excited when 2022 hit. And well, we had one kid who said, "Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna stay up and see the." The the ball drop. I'm going to do it, and then the other kid, the older kid, was just like, "Now nah, I'm going to be smart and go to bed." Like, okay, <laughs> no, that would never <laughs> be Benjamin. He 100 percent would stay up every single yeah. year. And the, you may wonder when was the last time that I didn't do anything for New Year's aside from this year and last year, and that was in the 2010 to 2011 New Year, 11 years ago, and that was because I had an infant kid, and we yeah. decided not to yeah. travel with him. So that so that was the Infamous, infamous night in my poker play on, I guess uh, Bilzerian will appreciate this, on Bodog, where I sat down and just got clobbered in a six-max oh. game and lost, and lost 6K. This is on December 31st, 2010. I lost 6K in the game. And I said, fuck, this is a terrible night. And I was, uh, so I quit. I was so frustrated. Then I... I Watched and then I couldn't even watch the ball drop with anybody because Ben was a tiny infant and obviously he couldn't know or understand what's going on. He was sleeping like infants do, and Benjamin's mom, who was still uh, suffering after effects from the pregnancy, was exhausted yep. and couldn't stay up till midnight with me. So I was by myself, watched the New Year's Rock and Eve with a fake party and the, uh, and, oh, the ball, and the delayed God. ball dropping by myself. I I turned it off. Nobody was there to say Happy New Year's to me. Opened up Bodog, said. I'm going to be a glutton for punishment and play again, sit in the game. And remember, I could see screen names then. This was not uh, anonymous yet. And I see I'm in a game with a number of players I've seen before who are at least decent. And I go, this doesn't look like mm-hmm. a very good game. And then I start seeing the plays they're doing. What the hell? I've never seen this oh, guy play drunk. this bad. I've never seen this guy play this bad either. People were awful in this game. I, I could not believe how badly they were playing, including some some winning players that I could verify were winning from poker table ratings. Horrible. They were playing horrible. So I said, okay. And I just kept playing. And in a single 6-max 30-60 game, I won 11K in the next several hours because everybody was so awful there. (laughs) Well, that's a happy new year. (laughs) So it was nice. I I would have never thought that I was going to finish that whole night 
winning 5K total after that minus 6K start and the fact that only one table was going of 30-60 when, after New Year's. But everyone was so drunk. <laughs> and there were several drunk people who were otherwise good players. They were just playing horrendous. So that, that was nice. So last night I tried to duplicate it. I tried to go play after midnight, and I envisioned what happened 11 years prior, and I lost 2K. Not good. Great start to 2022. So anyway. Someone was there to say Happy New Year this time, right? Yeah, they were. And at least nobody saw me lose. I guess now people know I lost, but otherwise uh, they couldn't tell who I am because it was anonymous. But yeah, I lost uh, lost 2K there to start 2022. So I I guess in 2022 I, I have been uh, a poker fish so far. All right, well, I want to talk about the thing that happened now more than 11 years ago. I want to talk about 31 and a half years ago, back in 1990. And uh, Calwater, are you going to stay up for that or are you going to... Tap out I'm gonna I'm gonna fall asleep listening to it. Okay, drop. fall asleep listening but, uh, to my story. Okay. Happy Happy New Year to you, and Happy New Year to everyone who's listening. I hope you had a a great New Year's. Yeah, and thank you for the donation, and thank you for coming on for all these hours. That's what I get for starting earlier, and uh, positive reinforcement there. So thank you for coming on, and uh, I won't even be offended that you fall asleep during my personal story. No, oh, I definitely will. Okay. <laughs> Have a good night, Drew. All right, good night. So Cal Watt's gonna use me count sheep basically but i want to tell you a story just just to break up all these other stories about about poker players and poker drama and i don't know i just thought this is a good topic to slap in the middle here i want to tell you a story i thought about again recently for unknown reasons that i realized that either i never told on this show or haven't told in a long time and that i think a lot of you aren't aware of in fact Maybe none of you know it, except for people who saw a brief mention on my Twitter earlier this week. You might be familiar with Fidelity Investments. In fact, you probably are. It's a big investment firm. It has been around for 75 years. So by 1990, it was already very large. It was already very prominent. And they took out a full-page ad in the LA Times which, of course, is by far the biggest newspaper in Los Angeles and one of the biggest newspapers in the country. So they took out a full-page ad, I think even on the back page of one of the sections, but I know it was a full-page ad, and those are very well seen. I think it may have been the full-page ad in the back of the business section, something like that, but something where a ton of people were going to see it. And they were advertising something which was very state-of-the-art in 1990. It's going to sound antiquated now. But in 1990, this was was a big deal. And for those of you that are around my age or older, I'm sure you can remember 1990 and why this was a big deal. They had an automated telephone investment phone number where you could call up and get information about your portfolio over the phone. And it's kind of like going to the website and checking on your account there, except there was no website. There was no web in 1990. There was an internet, but no web, and hardly anyone could access the internet back then. It was not something that was accessed by the masses. So you couldn't just go on fidelity.com or anything. So how would you look this stuff up other than just going through your paper records and following uh, uh, your investments in uh, whatever you could find in reports? So this was something that was real-time and was state-of-the-art. And they wanted to make it public. And also, they wanted 
people to see that this existed and have prospective customers invest with them. So they took out this big, very expensive, full-page ad in the LA Times. And they touted all the features of this investment phone number. You control it with your touchstone phone. That's how you would enter your information. They posted the phone number in a very large font. And the phone number that they put up there was not their phone number. It was mine. Now, how did that happen? How did they put my number when they were trying to put their own in a full-page LA Times ad that was very expensive to promote their new state-of-the-art investment hotline? Well, they actually did put their number, but they left out the 800 area code. For those of you that aren't in the U.S., 800 was the uh, was and still is a toll-free area code that you could dial 1-800 plus the number and then you would reach it for free wherever you're calling from and not pay a toll. You could pay you know, anywhere in the U.S. and the toll would be paid on the side of the business receiving the call. So their phone number was 1-800-blah-blah-blah-blah, but stupidly, they didn't put the 800 very large. It was there, but for whatever reason, it was way smaller than the rest of the number. So it just looked like you call this number. Now, at this point in 1990... There was only one area code in a lot of Los Angeles, and that was 213. Now, if you went to the San Fernando Valley portion of Los Angeles, there was 818. That's the northern part of L.A. But most of L.A. County was 213 and only 213. There was no 310. There was no 424 or 562. No, 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 no. It was 213 and 818, basically. So 213 served a ton of the L.A. population. And unlike today, where you're used to dialing the area code with every number you call, it wasn't like that in 1990. Most of the time you picked up your phone, you just dialed a seven-digit number. Most ads in the paper did not include an area code if it was not necessary. So uh, uh, if you're advertising to the local area, you're just going to put a seven-digit phone number. You're not going to put 213, blah, 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 blah. You're just going to put the seven-digit number. Now, in the LA Times, which covers all of Southern California, then they will put the area code. But sometimes a large business would buy the same phone number in every Southern California area code, so it didn't matter. You could dial the same seven digits, and you'd reach that business either way. So going back to what happened here with this Fidelity ad, they had the 800 very small. Why they made this decision, I don't know. But it's very small, and the seven digits printed very large. So if you were in the 213 area code, which again was uh, most of the L.A. population, and not just L.A. city, but uh, even east of L.A., where there's different cities that aren't L.A., but are the L.A. area, they were also 213, like Long Beach, for example. If you just picked up the phone and dialed those seven digits, you would get me because that was my phone number in the 213 area code well you can imagine what happened all of a sudden i was inundated with phone calls my phone was ringing off the hook every time i'd answer is this fidelity is this fidelity is this fidelity and i couldn't figure out what happened and after several of these calls i asked someone can you tell me something where are you getting my number why does everybody think i'm fidelity and they said well it your number's right there in the LA Times. It's where in the LA Times. They told me where to find it, and I opened up the LA Times. Shit, there it is. 
there's my number in big print in the business section and a full page ad. And I said, oh my God, what do I do about this? This is a big mistake on their part. I mean, technically they put the 800, but it was very small and a ton of people were making this mistake and it was understandable. So I decided that I'm going to get them back. There wasn't much I could do about this legally or maybe anything, but I could play a prank on them to get them back for this stupid blunder, which was causing me such inconvenience. Also, keep in mind, I was 18 years old. How would an 18-year-old react here? (laughs) So anyway, I said, well, if they're going to make my phone unusable like this, then I'm going to give them something for all the trouble. So I recorded a message on my answering machine and decided that I will not be answering the phone for a while and just let the machine get it. In fact, I set the machine to answer on the first ring so people would get it quickly. And I recorded an outgoing message, something like, you've reached Fidelity Investments. We know you were attempting to reach our investment hotline, but unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances, we have had to relocate our offices to South America and we do not have any more information for you at this time. Please check back later regarding access to your money, where we may or may not have an update for you. We apologize that this didn't work out. Goodbye. Something like that. I don't remember the exact words, but it was along those lines. It basically made everyone think that Fidelity got up and left with their money to South America. Well, uh, people didn't know what to say. <laughs> they saw this full-page ad. They called the number to check on their investments and they get this guy saying that they moved to South America with their money. Well, some people got really mad. Some people left these really, really profane messages on my machine. Even those that thought it might be a joke left profane messages because they thought Fidelity was playing a joke on them. They thought that Fidelity put this whole ad out to prank people, which would be really bad business, but some people believe that. A few people realized this had to be some kind of prank and laughed about it. But a lot of angry messages came through. Word must have gotten to Fidelity pretty quickly about this. Because very soon after that, I forgot if it was the next day or two days later, but very, very soon after that, definitely same week, and I think maybe even the next day, a new full ad appeared from Fidelity in the same spot. Full page, and they said that they have a new phone number to reach the Fidelity Investment Hotline. And they printed the new phone number, which was different from mine. So it wasn't just that they're printing the 800 big enough, but uh, the whole phone number had changed. And this time, they printed the 800 real big. (laughs) They wanted to make sure you saw that 800 this time. It was like, the number is 800! And then the remainder of the number. The opposite of before. The 800 was bigger than the rest of the font for the remainder of the number. And I laughed. I knew. I knew why they changed the number. Because not only did they want the 800 to be clear, but they wanted everyone to know they changed the number. They didn't say why, but they wanted everyone to know it's a new number. And they wanted completely disassociated from my number. Not just with the 800 printed properly this time. So I got a good laugh out of that. Now you may wonder... Could I have gotten in any trouble for this? Well, as an 18-year-old, even though I guess I was as legally liable then as I would be now because I was still a legal adult, uh, I didn't put that much thought into it, but I did put a little thought into it, and I thought probably not. 
I thought, you know, I didn't ask for this. I was getting inundated with phone calls due to their negligence. So it's not like I tricked people into calling me because I was trying to get them to believe they had reached fidelity and damaged people's opinions of fidelity or scared people that fidelity ran off of their money or even made people think that fidelity was acting unprofessionally by doing this prank. I didn't ask for this. I didn't want these calls. I was getting inundated due to their negligence. So I put up this message basically to stop the calls. And I did it in a way that uh, yeah, made them look bad, but I felt that it was my right to do because I was not enticing anyone to call me. I was never re- misrepresenting myself so people would make this phone call. The misrepresentation was done by fidelity through their own negligence. So I didn't think that there would be action they would take against me or even could take against me. Maybe I'm wrong, but that was my opinion then. I I still feel that way now. If this happened to me today, I wouldn't have done the same thing because I I would be kind of worried that with all the money they have, they could come after me with their corporate attorneys and I'd be uh, battling this forever. But as an 18-year-old, I I just like, you know what? Fuck them. I'm going to get them back for this. But I never heard from them. They, They realized their mistake. They realized they caused a lot of hassle for me. It also could have been bad PR for them in a few ways. First of all, if the story got out, it would look bad that they're picking on this 18-year-old after publishing his phone number like that and getting him uh, inundated with calls that they're suing him now because he put up a joke message. But also it makes them look incompetent that they would have put something like this, that they would have even induced people to make these calls to the wrong number. So clearly they just wanted this to go away. Now, what was the number that they changed this to? The number they changed this to was 800-544-6666. That was the number that was advertised in the paper the following day when they changed it and wanted everyone to know they changed it. So that was in 1990. That was in uh, mid-1990, maybe May or something, or maybe July, some, sometime mid-1990. Okay, We're going to call it right now, one 800 544 6666. We're talking about 31 and a half years later. Let's see what we get. Thank you for calling Fidelity Investments. Oh my, still here. Calls may be recorded and monitored. To get started, enter your username if you have one or your social security number followed by pound. Yeah, I'm not entering my social security number for you guys to hear, but as you see, it still exists. 31 and a half years later, it still exists. 800-544-6666. That was not the original number. They abruptly changed it to that number after I pulled that prank. It was right there in black and white in the LA Times. And today, that number is the same. So had I never been born or had I not pulled this prank, they would have a different number. This is still their main number. 800-544-6666. You could also call 800-FIDELITY, but you could call either of these. So this is still their main number all this time later, which is only the number it is because I made them change it through my actions. Isn't that funny? I don't think I've ever told that story before. Now, there was a postscript to this, an interesting postscript. So I was interviewed about this by the LA Times in a section that they would write about funny stories that happen in the L.A. area. And they thought this was an amusing story. 
So I was interviewed about it. They actually didn't mention Fidelity by name because they didn't want to humiliate them, but they talked about a, quote, big investment firm, and that was Fidelity. Anyway, they did an article about this. They did mention me by name. They just didn't mention Fidelity by name. The reporter who was doing this was actually somewhat known. It, it wasn't like a really famous reporter, but it was someone who was kind of like locally known in Southern California at the time. It was a woman in her late 30s. I knew who she was even before she called me. Like I just I knew her from reading the LA Times and reading uh, other journalism work that had been done in Southern California. So I was familiar with her. Anyway, she called me for this interview. And during this call, she was very flirtatious with me. Like very, very flirtatious. Noticeably flirtatious. She didn't say anything outright sexual, but boy, was she flirting with me hard. And I didn't know what to say. It kind of felt flattering that just me, this 18-year-old kid, is getting flirted with by this sophisticated late 30s woman who is uh, a fairly known reporter in the Southern California area. At first I thought she was just being friendly, but she stayed on the phone with me a long time and she's laughing with me and we're joking around and she she was loving the phone call, I could tell. And I'm not one of these guys who gets like delusional that every woman is enjoying talking to me, but I could tell, I could tell she was uh, flirting with me hard. She was really enjoying the conversation. But there was one thing that I had not told her yet, and that was my age. And by the way, I hadn't even thought of the fact that I hadn't told her my age. I just took it for granted. Like I, it's one of the things like I knew my age, and I just, I just didn't bother to tell her how old I was. And I, I just wasn't thinking about the fact that she didn't know. So then she asked me, well, what are you going to do with a phone number? And I said, well, the calls have kind of died down, but I'm still getting some. But, you know, it doesn't really matter because I'm going to be shutting it off when I go to college. And she said, what, 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 what? college? Well, wait, how old are you? And I said, oh, I'm 18. She said, 18? You don't sound like you're 18. I, I thought you were like like 35 or late 30, something around there. 18? I said, yeah. She said, I, 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 I just, I can't see how you could. I was so sure that you were... Uh, 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 well, anyway, uh, th- thank you for uh, giving me the information and uh, look for the article in the next few days. And she went to this very business-like tone of voice. <laughs> and I realized what happened, that she felt very embarrassed. She wasn't looking to flirt with an 18-year-old. The second she heard I was 18, she instantly lost interest and felt stupid for the fact that she was flirting with a guy who was young enough to be her son. So she definitely was not a cougar. She thought she was talking to someone her own age. You may wonder, how could she have been so stupid to make that mistake? Well, I sounded the same then as I do now. I had a very, very similar voice to what I have today, back in 1990. So I sounded much older than I was. I didn't look older. I looked like an 18-year-old, but I did not sound like an 18-year-old. I sounded like now. So I kind of did sound like late 30s. I think it was a combination of my voice and also the way I spoke. It was both. I just had an older demeanor on the phone between both of those things. So if she was really liking me. I, I, I'm sure, not 100% sure, but I think there's a good chance if I really was in my mid-30s at the time and I asked her out at the end of that phone call, there was a pretty good chance the answer would have been yes. But 
not me being 18. Now, I wasn't into older women. I really would not have wanted to date her anyway because of the age difference. I, I wasn't into that either. I, I was flattered that someone of that age and sophistication was seemingly interested in me from that phone call. That was kind of cool. But uh, like from a practical standpoint, I would not have wanted to date a woman who's like 38 when I was 18. But that was funny. <laughs> it was it was amazing when she when she heard I was 18 the the tone of voice everything changed so much and she quickly got off the phone so that was the side result of the whole thing okay so before we move on I want to read a text we got from the 860 this person asked do you believe that you contributed to the death of Harry Reid with your relentless criticism of him and took away his will to live due to everything you said during your Christmas show. Now, it is true. Harry Reid passed away on December 28th, just three days after I had a lot of bad things to say about him. And the reason I did is because they had officially renamed Las Vegas McCarran Airport after him. So three days after my relentless criticism, he did pass away. Well, it's funny you ask that. I got an unconfirmed report from someone that Harry Reid was sitting there in his searchlight home trying to enjoy Christmas and that he decided for whatever reason to see what internet radio shows were on at the time and happened to stumble upon mine. And after everything I said, he got so upset and said, I, I thought people in Las Vegas love me. And this, this guy on the radio, they're saying they hate me. And somehow... This guy is convinced that I took bribes, and this is taking away everything I feel I have accomplished in my life and my career. I can't believe this host of a poker show is so upset with me and has so many bad things to say about me, and additionally is claiming that a lot of people in Vegas hate me, including Democrats. I've never thought of it this way before, but this really sucks. I think I really messed up. And then he spiraled into a deep depression and lost the will to live and passed away on December 28th. That's what someone told me. I I don't know if it's true, but, you know, I I apologize for nothing. Because I was speaking the truth. If it took my show for Harry Reid to become aware of the things he had done and how it impacted people and the opinions people had of him around Las Vegas, then so be it. And if that truth ended up sending him to his grave because he couldn't take it, that's the way life goes when you were once the Senate Majority Leader and did some bad things. So I apologize for nothing. So moving on, we will talk about a Casino Advantage player who has a pretty disturbing story. This is not someone I know. And I call him a Casino Advantage player because from what I'm reading, he most likely was. You can read between the lines in these stories and figure out why the person is there at the casino and maybe why these things even happened to him. So this story took place at MGM Springfield in Massachusetts. This involved a man named Richard Angelica and... Apparently, he had an offer to stay at MGM Springfield, and part of that offer was 
the was, was tickets and maybe even transportation to see a New England Patriots game. So again, he wasn't just deciding to go see the Patriots while he was uh, at MGM Springfield. This was actually part of an offer where they give him tickets to the game. So he brought $30,000 to the casino. He calls himself a semi-professional poker and blackjack player. He says he's been touring casinos for a decade. This occurred on December 26th, so it's a pretty recent story. This really screams advantage player to me. A lot of times, in fact, advantage players call themselves professional poker players because it's less threatening to casinos. Whenever you see something about a blackjack player and professional poker player, that almost always means an advantage player, which is not a criticism. I do advantage play myself when I have the opportunity. There are advantage players who listen to this show, and I appreciate that they enjoy it. But anyway... He brought 30k there, presumably for whatever plays that he felt he had there and maybe elsewhere that he was going to go afterwards. And he had the 30k in his hotel room safe. He went to this game, and then he came back from the game, which again was part of the casino offer. He didn't just decide to go to a game. And he found that he couldn't get into the room. So, okay, that's not that alarming, because you know how these electronic keys work. A lot of times they'll just stop working or your cell phone causes them to deactivate because it's too close to your cell phone, or just something goes wrong with a card, or there's something wrong in the system that didn't have it timed right. So I've had it many times, my key just doesn't work, and I go down and the front desk fixes it. So I imagine that's probably what he thought. But he went down there and got the bad news that he had actually checked out early and that they have completely checked him out of the room. Well, if you had 30K in your safe and you knew you've been completely checked out of the room, and this was a forced checkout, he, he didn't actually check out, he never told him he was checking out, he never did anything to indicate he was checking out, they just somehow thought he checked out early. And when they think you've checked out, they will open the safe. And they're supposed to store your stuff that's in the safe for you to pick up later. But, of course, you never want them opening the safe and just seeing cash there because you can't prove what was there and unethical employees can steal it or steal part of it and it'll be very hard to prove that they did it. So, of course, he got very worried, as I would have been if this occurred. They uh, did say that they found cash in the safe. However, they said they only had 9,100 cash that they found in the safe, meaning he was out $20,900, and they were denying it was ever there. <laughs> ah. He said nothing like this has ever happened before. He says he goes to casinos as often as five days a week. He says, I deal with around 20 to 30 different casino hosts and reps throughout the country year-round. He said it's very common for him to carry around $30,000, even if it sounds like a lot to other people. And the way this trip came about was that he got a call from a man named Justin, who said he was a host at MGM Springfield, and that he was being invited to stay at MGM Springfield, and that it would include transport and tickets to see the Patriots against the Bills at a home Patriots game. Then he 
took a bus with other casino patrons from the casino to Gillette Stadium to see the Patriots play. The bus drove him back, and uh, he said that uh, the way this was going to work was that um, he was going to go there in the morning, check into his room, which is a little bit earlier than most people check in, but he claimed he was going to go there at uh, 9.30 a.m., which he did from New Jersey, where he lives, check into his room and then get on the bus and then uh, was going to get back to the casino at about 7 p.m. as planned and was going to stay there. So he said that he did all this, but um, when he got to the room, as I said, his key card didn't work. And then he was told he was checked out and that they had emptied the safe. And all they had was uh, $9,100 for him. He said that the protocol for checking out of the room when he wasn't there, that is to get all his stuff out, was not followed. That, number one, he should have been informed in some way that they were about to do it. They should have attempted to reach him and did not call him. That they did not call any casino host that represented him. He said there was also a violation. And he said that uh, his room was reserved for two nights and he hadn't been there for one yet. So he got there early in the morning, or early for hotel standards at 9.30, checked in. But he claimed he had two full nights there and that before even the full day had passed, he had been forced checked out. There was no explanation for why he was forced checked out. And they would not give him any answers as to how this happened. They weren't even claiming that he had checked out. He claimed that he was just, quote, checked out early. They didn't say who checked him out, why, or how this happened, and they will not give him one. MGM Springfield, when asked by the website MassLive.com, it's a Massachusetts-based website, MassLive.com, tried to get comments from MGM Springfield, and they would not comment on it. They cited security reasons. They did admit that Massachusetts Gaming Enforcement is investigating the matter. You may wonder, why didn't he go to the police? Well, Gaming Enforcement is the police. The Gaming Enforcement Unit is actually part of Massachusetts State Police, and they have the same power as the police. They, they are the police. So it's not local police, but uh, they are law enforcement. So that's who he went to, which seems correct. Beth Ward, an MGM spokesperson, told Mass Live, we're working directly with law enforcement in the investigation of this claim. So this is a very new thing that happened. It's less than a week ago. So that's why there's no resolution yet. There may be some time that passes before resolution comes from this. But what did happen? Let's, let's take some guesses. We, we don't know for sure, obviously, but let's take some guesses as to what happened here to this guy. Why would they have forced checked him out when not even a full day had passed while he was there at that game? Well, I think this was malicious. I don't think they really believed he was checking out. It doesn't make any sense. Had he been there for several days, let's say he'd been there three days, and they somehow erroneously had it that he was checking out at noon that day, and they didn't realize that he had boarded the bus at 9.30 to go to Gillette Stadium and wasn't going to be back till 7 p.m. And they didn't know he had a fourth night there. And so 12 p.m. came. The maid knocked on the door. Housekeeping! Housekeeping! Hello! Housekeeping! When you check out! 
housekeeping, hello. And then they open the door and see he's not there. And then she calls down to the front desk and the front desk says, oh yeah, he's, he's checking out today. So he must've already left. Uh, weird. He has some stuff here, but we'll, we'll put it away. Like then I could believe that this might've been an honest mistake or at least honest up until they opened the safe and someone got greedy and uh, pocketed two thirds of the money. But that's not what happened here. On the day he checked in, he was checked out. He was supposed to be there for two nights. He hadn't even been there one night yet. So somehow within hours of him checking in, he was, quote, checked out early. And the fact that they won't tell him how this happened is very suspicious. This makes it sound like they did this on purpose. So I think that the word got to someone there at MGM Springfield that he was an advantage player. And they wanted to punish him for this. So they had to come up with a ruse for why they were going into the room to steal his money. It's even possible that uh, this was a combination of theft and punishment. Like they thought, hey, this guy's advantage player scum, so let's steal from him. He deserves it. He's trying to use us. He's trying to take advantage of our offers when he's really playing at an advantage. Screw him. We hate guys like this. Let's steal his money. Fuck him. And when I say let's, I don't mean it goes into the casino coffers. I mean, whoever uh, checked him out may have done this. Now, again, I'm just theorizing here. I don't have any information saying this happened, but this is really bizarre to have force checked the guy out while he was at this game on the same day he checked in and then also not even explaining it to him. It's not like they said that uh, somehow he checked out and they thought that and uh, they went through this protocol and they're not sure what happened to his money. They won't tell him. All we can tell you, sir, is that you were checked out. What do you mean I'm checked out? Why would I do that? We're not telling you. You were just checked out. Why did they leave any money? Well, it's very possible that these were kind of two separate actions. One was the checking out of him because they didn't want him there anymore because he's an advantage player. And then the person who was going through the safe, or maybe the people, maybe two people together were doing it and decided to split it, said, hey, you know what? How is he going to prove that he had 30K in there versus 9K? You know what? Let's just take a bunch of this and F him. Let him try to come after us. We'll just deny it. You take half, I'll take half. Okay. So it's possible the casino didn't officially instruct them to steal from him, but that the people who were charged with uh, checking him out, forced checking him out because they didn't want him there anymore because they discovered he was an advantage player, they decided to additionally steal from him. That's possible as well. Now, is there any innocent explanation for this aside from the theft of the money, like as far as the checkout itself? Well, maybe. Remember, he checked in at a weird time at 9.30 a.m. So maybe there was some sort of uh, issue where it wasn't showing up in the system properly. Maybe he checked in at 9.30, and because that was such an odd check-in time, maybe it cleared off the system, and when it came time for the maid to go through rooms, it looked like nobody should have been in that room anymore, and they had assumed the last person there must have checked out. So it got put into the system as as an early checkout, and then they did the usual procedure where they uh, send up uh, uh, two people from security to take money out of the safe, and you just ended up with corrupt people from security who, uh, who stole the money from the safe or stole a good deal of it. So that's it's possible that the checkout could have just been incompetence rather than something malicious, but that would not be my first guess. The whole story's too weird. 
this does seem like it was malicious, though it is possible it was a combination of a malicious forced checkout and a separate theft that occurred during that forced checkout that the casino didn't necessarily want to see happen. But it, it also could have been something that the people who orchestrated this forced checkout were the same ones who stole the money. I don't know what the actual laws are in Massachusetts regarding forced checkouts and the way they have to handle it. He said that the procedure should have been that they try to reach him or at least try to reach his host, but I don't know if that's just internal rules of MGM or MGM Springfield or any kind of law there. It kind of sounds more like it's the internal rules and at least what he believes them to be. So I don't have any confirmation that that is the situation there, but that's what he's claiming. This is a very frustrating story because it shows as an advantage player, there's always a target on your back that shady things like this will happen. It's even possible that this was premeditated. It's even possible the whole invite there was specifically to get him there, get him to leave money in the room because presumably he's not going to bring his bankroll with him to Gillette Stadium. And then you know he's gone. You know who he is. It's the best time to steal from him because uh, if he's just down on the casino floor, you have to constantly watch where he is and he's not coming back up and you have to get out quickly if he comes and you have to have several people watching him. So the the way to do this with the fewest number of people involved in the theft is to send him away on what looks like an appealing activity to go see the Patriots play at Gillette Stadium, and then you know he's gone. You know that he doesn't even have his own car, that he took a bus there, and the bus isn't coming back till 7, so you got a lot of time to get in there and steal from him. And then you can justify it that there was some kind of erroneous checkout and then say, well, what, what money? We, we didn't really have uh, 30K in there. There was, there was 9,100. What are you talking about, man? So if this was premeditated, that's really awful. I hope that this one is solved. I hope somebody cracks. I hope some evidence is found to implicate some employees here and put them in prison for this because they deserve it. And I am very, very against casinos taking it upon themselves to torture or steal from advantage players because they don't like them. Advantage players are a fact of life that casinos have to deal with. And that's something that comes with the territory of running a casino. You're going to offer games. You have to be careful that the games and also the offers you give players are not positive expectation for clever customers who know how to use the system to their advantage. So while you're trying to beat your customers out of money, a few of them are smartly trying to beat you out of money. So it's a two-way street. And that's part of what comes with running a casino. And if you can't take that, then don't run a casino. But when you do find advantage players, if you are in a jurisdiction where you can remove them, then fine. But remove them lawfully. Remove them the way that you're expected to remove them. Don't find passive-aggressive ways to screw with them or steal from them. Because that's unethical to do. You may hate the fact that they exist... But keep in mind, they're basically attempting to do what you're trying to do to everybody else. As the owner of a casino, or a manager of a casino, you are trying to entice your customers to play games where you have the advantage over them. And there's a lot of 
little things casinos do to give themselves an additional advantage. That's why they serve you alcohol. Is their hope you're gonna you're gonna get drunk, you're not gonna play as well, you're gonna lose inhibitions as far as how much money you want to bet. They're not just trying to be nice and provide you drinks. The whole thing is very calculated. Same with the fact that there aren't windows or clocks. So you spend a lot more time there and don't realize uh, how late or early it's getting. Or how you might be missing dinner. A lot of this is very manipulative. So the fact that this is happening, they can't get mad when people beat them at their own game. As long as there's no actual cheating involved. If people do things that are within the parameters of the law to beat these casinos. The casinos have to accept that as part of doing business, and they can do whatever they can within the law to try to prevent this and ban people if that's allowed in that state. But stealing? No. And force checking people out when you've given them an offer for a few days? It's messed up too. And if you're going to do it, then be honest with them. Say, we realize you're an advantage player. We don't want you here anymore. Not this. Keep in mind, they never told him they think he's an advantage player. I think he's an advantage player. But I bet that's why this happened. I bet if he were not an advantage player, this would not have happened to him. The clue is, you may say, well, maybe he just happened to be an advantage player, but they would have done this to anybody. No, I'll tell you why. There were a lot of people on that bus. Notice he wasn't in a limo or a little car. He was on a bus with a lot of players. Now, who do you think was invited to go to that Patriots game? You think it's the the $3 blackjack players or the penny slot players? No. The people who were invited to go to this Gillette Stadium outing were some of the bigger gamblers at MGM Springfield or at other MGM properties that were invited to MGM Springfield. So there were a lot of people who probably showed up to MGM Springfield with a lot of money and left it in their safe. So how come of all those people, the only one it happened to was Richard Angelica, who happens to have the profile of an advantage player? How come all the ploppies that were going there didn't have this happen to them? The only one who was stolen from and forced checked out was Richard Angelica, the likely advantage player. If you think that's a coincidence then you're very naive. I think there's no way that's a coincidence. So I hope gaming can figure this one out. And if they can't, I hope this gets a lot of publicity. This is pretty bad. All right, so I want to talk about poker shares, which, like Run It Once Poker, has closed, but it's a much shorter and, I will be honest, less interesting story than the big... uh, run it once tale that we just told at the beginning of the show. Poker Shares was created by Mike Timex McDonald, who has basically succeeded at everything he's done. This has been a guy who not only was a successful poker pro, but also everything he did off the felt that was kind of adjacent to poker was a rousing success. Apparently, he also got super rich in crypto. Basically, whatever this guy is doing, you should emulate it because uh, he's usually doing it right. And you don't ever want to do a prop bet against him because he always gets the best of it, even if it seems like he doesn't. He's not old either. He's only uh, 32. So what he used to do prior to Poker Shares being founded in 2017, and we'll get to what Poker Shares is in a second, 
he was a little bit of annoyed, a little bit annoyed at the markup that pros would be charging people when they would sell pieces of themselves in tournaments, because markup is something that the player determines for himself. So he says, "Okay, well, I'm going to sell the upcoming WPT event for 1.4 markup, meaning 40 percent more. So you you'd have to pay." Uh, 1.4% to get 1% of his action. So anyone can sell any piece of themselves for any markup. And we've talked about this debate before. There's a debate that goes between people can charge what they want, leave them alone, and charging people more than you know your worth is unethical and it borders on scamming. So there, there's big debates about this and we're not going to get into that. But Mike McDonald came up with a pretty smart idea. He said, wait a minute. Why do you have to buy a piece of players from the player themselves? Why can't people just make a separate deal where they're buying a piece from somebody else selling that person, and then we just consider it the same action? So, for example, let's say Todd Wittellis is playing the $1,500 Limit Hold'em event at the World Series of Poker. Well, 1% would be $15, right? If there was no markup. Let's say there was 20% markup. That would be $18 then, because it would be $15 plus a 20% markup, which is another three. So that'd be, if I was charging 20% markup for that event, then what you would be doing is paying me $18 for 1% of my action there. Now, let's say Mike McDonald said, wait a minute, Todd, you're not worth 20% markup. I mean, when was the last time you even cashed in a Limit Hold'em event? I don't care if you have a bracelet from 05. I'm looking at your caches here. All you seem to be cashing in these days are Omaha No Limit. So maybe you're just not good at Limit Hold'em tournaments anymore. I don't think you're worth 20% markup. And I go, yeah, well, that's none of your business, Mike. And he's, oh, yes, it is. Because I'm going to sell your action at 10% markup. So now anyone who wants to pay me, Mike McDonald, $16.50 can have 1% of your action. And I'd say, no, you can't do that. I'm, I'm not going to honor this. I'm not going to pay anyone anything who buys through you. And he says, oh, I know you're not. I'm going to pay them. So whatever you cash, I will pay that percentage of your cash to these people. And you don't have to be involved. I'll just look at what you cash. So if you don't cash, then I keep their money. If you do cash, I pay whatever percentage they bought, except I'm charging less money than you are. And then I'd say, you asshole, you're pissing me off because now people are not going to want to buy from me if they can buy the exact same action from you of my play. And I say, yep, and there's nothing you can do about it. Now, this never actually happened. I don't believe he's ever sold me, but he could have sold me in that exact fashion. So he was doing this in the 2010s, and he carried that concept over to a site called Poker Shares that would do this. Prior to this, he called himself the Bank of Timex because Timex was his nickname. But he called it the Bank of Timex where people would buy action of other pros at a discount through Timex and he would cover it either way. You have to have a deep bankroll to do this because of, uh, let's say, back to the example of me. Let's say the example of me, he sells uh, 40% of me to various people and then I win the whole thing for uh, $300,000. Well, now he's got to pay out uh, 40% of $3,000. He had to pay out seventy-five k here and uh, for relatively little money collected. 
So he is taking a chance. There's a big, there's like a, um, a small upside, but a large potential downside, albeit one that's not super likely. So you have to have a big role to do this, and you have to sell to a lot of people. So that was the idea with poker shares: is that a site that does this can do such a big volume that it can withstand that occasionally someone will score big that pieces were sold of to where they they end up being fine. So poker shares was actually setting lines, setting what they believed to be the correct markup on all of these players. And then it would also adjust based upon how much interest there was. So if they they were selling someone at uh, 10% markup, and it's going like hotcakes, then poker shares may raise the price to 15% markup. And sometimes it go the other way. In fact, there were some people you could buy at negative markup, would you believe? If people who were really thought to have little chance that you could actually buy them at uh, less than even money there, which is funny. But they, they put a price on everybody there who they felt would get action. Now, I don't know if I was ever on there, but it's a good chance I wasn't because... They tended to only list poker players that were known enough to the general public that people would have wanted to buy pieces of. The people who want to buy pieces of me tend to be fans of this show, people who read the forum. Those are the people who buy pieces of me. Uh, it's not so much the general poker public, because the general poker public doesn't know that much about my poker ability. But there were a number of pros you could buy action on them from poker shares instead of the pro himself. Poker shares eventually expanded to also be a sports book and provided a casino. Now you may say, how did Timex do all this being an American? Well, he's not an American. He is a Canadian. So that is how he did it, because he has never been an American. Now he has scaled back his involvement in it somewhat over the years, and he has assigned others to basically run it for him, though he's still technically in charge. Uh, poker shares started to notice that they were losing some of the market share to poker sites themselves. Some of the online poker sites started actually to copy that model. So that probably cut into poker shares business. Here is the tweet they sent out on December 29th. Next week will be five years since we've launched, and unfortunately we've decided the time is right to conclude this journey. It has been a rewarding experience to help make the poker staking market more efficient, give fans at home more skin in the game, and allow the community to have a better perspective on how the market tends to rank various players. As time has progressed, our team has grown more focused on other ventures and grown further removed from the ins and outs of the top-level poker, as well as found regulatory limitations that have limited our ability to continue growing our business effectively. That's an important one, which we'll talk about in a second. They finished off saying, As such, we have decided that at the beginning of January 22, we will no longer be adding new markets. We will allow users to cash out their funds until March 31st, 2022, We appreciate your continued support over the years and sincerely hope your favorite player is crowned 2022 WSOP main event champion. Let's focus on the middle of the segment that they, or of this tweet that they put out. As time has progressed, our team has grown more and more focused on other ventures and grown further removed from the ins and outs of top level poker. So that's saying, number one, we're bored of this. We want to do other things. This has become a burden. Number two, 
we aren't really paying attention who's good these days. So we might be screwing up setting these lines. We know who used to be good, but there's a number of players we don't really know that have become really good and we've lost track of them. And maybe some of the guys we thought were really good before aren't as good anymore compared to those guys. So who knows what the hell's going on? We're tired of uh, setting the wrong lines and, and we don't feel like putting the effort in to learn all this again. And then the regulatory limitations, which have, quote, limited their ability to continue growing, they were probably starting to run into jurisdictional situations where certain jurisdictions did not want poker shares to be offered and they didn't want to deal with it. So given that Timex is doing so well in crypto, he probably is like, you know what, this is too much of a headache, F it. Good five years, but we're shutting down. Like Run It Once, I do believe they are going to pay everybody out. I don't think you have to worry about that. You should cash out by March 31st if you have any money on there, but I don't think they're going to screw you, provided you cash out in time. In February of 2021, that was the last time we talked about poker shares on this show. In fact, it may have been one of the first times we talked about them on the show. And that was because of public Twitter drama. What else? Mike McDonald had a big Twitter battle with fellow Canadian poker pro Terrence Chan, who also is one of the hosts on Dat Poker Podcast with Adam Schwartz and uh, Daniel Negreanu. And this was in regards to an ambiguous betting line. And I'll be honest, from the whole thing, neither party looked good. And when I did that segment, some people uh, disagreed with some things I said. Some people were pro-Terrence and thought I was being unfair to him. Some people were pro McDonald and thought I was being unfair to him. I felt that was fair to everybody. I, I felt that uh, neither party handled this very well. And I saw why both sides had a problem with the other. Keep in mind, the two of them were kind of like mild friends before this. They weren't really close, but they considered they had kind of like a mild friendship. But basically, what happened was uh, it had to do with that Bill Perkins, Landon Teese match, that train wreck heads up match they had. And it had to do with the fact that Teese was giving nine big blinds per hundred to Perkins in the match. And this wasn't communicated very well as to uh, what you were really betting on. You know, were you betting on who was going to finish ahead or who would finish ahead after the nine big blinds per hundred? And that uh, Terrence thought that uh, since it appeared from the bet the way it was listed that uh, to him, he thought it was just betting on who was going to finish ahead. He thought Landon was the better player, so this was a positive ex expectation bet, and he bet on Landon, only to find out that, no, this was after the nine big blinds per hundred, which, by the way, would have lost because Landon gave up in the middle, knowing he couldn't cover that much. So when this was clarified, they canceled the bet, which got Terrence upset because Terrence felt that he bet on what he clearly believed and he thought was clearly stating of just who's going to win, not who's going to win after this nine big blinds per hundred is taken out. So then Mike McDonald had a big argument with him after he was going back and forth with customer service, which wasn't run by McDonald, but McDonald heard about it and uh, PM'd him. And the first words of the conversation to Terrence Chan was, are you dumb? <laughs> and we talked about this on the 
show where we covered the whole thing back in February of last year. So if you want to go find that, look for early February when we did the show about this topic. I don't want to rehash the whole thing. I felt that McDonald was rude in the way he handled it, and he also like wasn't understanding Terrence's side. I also felt that Terrence was trying to exploit poker shares here. And keep in mind, poker shares wasn't stealing his money. They were just returning and saying, no, 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 the bet was ambiguously worded. Here's here's the real bet. If you don't want to keep that bet under these terms, we'll refund it to you. And, and Terrence, uh, I, I feel, got unreasonably mad. Like, he wasn't punished in any way for doing this. They just returned the bet. And, and I felt that probably was the right decision there for them to do. And uh, at one point in the whole thing, he was saying that he was treating them like the, he would treat the win, where he's just trying to beat them. And I thought, well, if you really think that McDonald is a friend of yours, you shouldn't be trying to beat him in that way. You shouldn't be trying to exploit something that wasn't set properly or wasn't stated properly. You should uh, really, in fact, stay away with betting against friends unless the friend knows exactly what they're betting with you. Even if it's not directly with the friend, if it's a site the friend owns, you should not. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the way I feel about it. So I, I felt neither of them looked good here. And... It was very split on Twitter. Usually these things go one way or the other, where everybody takes one side or the other. Uh, This one is very split, and a lot of people, like myself, felt that both sides didn't look good. And this was unusual because Terrence Chan is usually very reasonable on Twitter. He's he's not a a guy who tries to create drama, and he's a smart guy, and he's usually pretty mild-mannered. And I felt this was a little out of character for him. And... I also felt that while McDonald had a right to feel kind of insulted that his like sort of friend Terrence was trying to exploit his site this way and then was uh, unhappy when they just simply canceled the bet and sent it back, that uh, at the same time he was very rude in the way he handled it, nor could he even begin to understand Terrence's points, some of which were very reasonable. So I, I really thought that neither guy handled this well. Terrence actually took some time off of Twitter after this because uh, he wasn't used to drama, and this upset him a lot that a lot of people told him he was wrong. He expected he was going to bring this out and everyone's going to jump on his side. Instead, it was about a 50-50, with the other 50% coming on him pretty hard. And uh, McDonald, he, he's not someone who gets as rattled by people criticizing him, so he was like, you know, kind of whatever. But uh, you could tell Terrence took it kind of hard that like half the people didn't agree with him, and some people said some pretty harsh things. And he t- actually took some time off Twitter after this. So that that was uh, the big to-do back in uh, February. Just drama, you know, like, it wasn't a major thing, and nobody got ripped off. I, I kind of saw both sides of it, and I still feel that way. And I had I been in Terrence's, shoe, Terrence's shoes, I would have handled some things very differently. And had I been in, in McDonald's shoes, I would have handled things very differently. I would have not have started off with, are you dumb? And, uh, nor would I have just thought it's, it's outrageous that Terrence could have thought that this was the line. Like, I... Um, I, again, I don't want to rehash the whole thing, but uh, I, I really saw both sides of the whole thing. And uh, there are these situations where two people argue and neither comes out looking good. And I thought that was one of them. So I, I won't say that dragged poker shares down in any way. It was a situation with two guys who usually aren't on the receiving end of much criticism on Twitter were getting it from a lot of people. That was kind of an oddity that came from the whole thing. Anyway, PokerShares is gone, and 
if you have been enjoying that site, you cannot enjoy it any longer. They By saying they're not taking new markets, what they're saying is that there's nothing new to bet on. They're going to honor what's currently bet on, some of the tournaments that haven't taken place yet or whatever, but that you can't make any bets on new things. They're not going to post any new things to bet on starting January 1st, which, of course, has already come. Let's move on and talk about Slot Lady. This is probably going to be our longest remaining topic, because I am going to play some videos to you and comment on them. And I also have to explain Slot Lady to you, because I bet most of you have no idea who Slot Lady is. And this is a world I didn't know about or understand until late 2020. So on October 12, 2020, a new guy on Poker Fraud Alert on the forum named New Guy, his name's actually New Guy and he was a new guy, posted a thread called YouTube Slot Community. And he introduced us to a world that I was not familiar with, but was sort of interesting. So basically, there are a number of content creators on YouTube who play slot machines and record it on their phone or with some other camera device and then edit it somewhat and post it on YouTube. And they do this over and over and they develop a following. Now, to me, this sounds very boring. I find slots kind of boring anyway. But watching other people play slots is especially boring. These channels have no appeal to me. So it's not like when this guy brought it up, I'm like, oh, cool, I got to watch this. I'm like, this seems like torture. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine watching other people sitting and playing slot machines. But apparently some of these channels do pretty well. Now, who would watch this? Well, there are a number of people who don't get to go to Vegas very often or at all. And this includes people in other countries or people who don't live anywhere near Vegas or any other casinos or people who just don't have the money to gamble. Whatever it is, there's some people who are fascinated with gambling and slot machines, but don't or can't play them themselves. So they kind of live vicariously through these content providers on YouTube who film themselves playing slots, and uh, they kind of start to root for these people, hoping they win, hoping they see jackpots hit, etc., etc. Some of these slot YouTubers are very selectively editing to where it makes it look like they are winning. Keep in mind that these are not typically slot advantage players who, in fact, wouldn't want to broadcast their slot play because they don't want to give away what they're playing and that they're beating the casino when doing so. Advantage slot players tend to try to keep things as quiet as they can. They may trade plays with other advantage players or tell some friends, but they're not going to broadcast on YouTube when they're playing slots at an advantage. But these guys tend not to be advantage players. In fact, I'm pretty sure none of them are. These are just regular slot players. And let me tell you, regular slot play has a very high casino hold, much higher than table games. So that's why slot play will tend to get you the most comps because you're also projected to lose the most. If you have average luck at a slot machine, you're going to lose a lot more than average luck at a video poker machine, even one with a bad pay table, or average luck at the blackjack table or a craps table or a baccarat table. There's no question. So slots are a big loser for the average player. 
Slots do have one upside for the casual gambler, and that is there are jackpots, provided you're playing on slots that have big jackpots. And you could, though it's highly unlikely, but you could end up being one of those people who wins a massive jackpot that's so big that you'll basically never give it back as long as you don't up your limits of play. So a slot player actually does have a chance, albeit a very small one, to end up a lifetime winner in slots by winning one of these massive jackpots, whereas a negative expectation tables player or even negative expectation video poker player is never going to get there because they just get ground down slowly, not as fast as you would in slots, but they get ground down and eventually lose, and it's guaranteed mathematically. Whereas uh, with slots, you have the tiny chance of hitting something so big that it can overcome that. But on average, slot players end up a lot worse because the casino hold is a lot higher. So what do these slot players do? Do they show themselves losing a lot, as most slot players do? No. What they do is they film a lot and then post what they want people to see. Now, most of them aren't so stupid as to never post a losing session. Otherwise, if people see 50 videos in a row where you've won, they will know that something's fishy here, that nobody goes to the casino 50 times and wins all 50 times at slot machines. So you'd have to be super gullible to believe that, and that will sometimes drive away viewers. Also, if you always sit down and win, there's no drama to the whole thing. You want your viewers to wonder if you're going to win or lose, or when you're starting off losing, you're going to come back. If every time you end up coming back and winning, it's less fun to watch. So they do post some losing videos, but a lot of these slot provider, these slot content providers will post more winning sessions than losing ones to give the impression like things are going well. Yes, this is not easy to believe if you know anything about slot machines, but that's not who these channels are really aimed at. They're really ch- aimed at just people who can't go to the casino very much or at all that just want to watch slot machine play and want to watch people they get to know from these videos play slots. So why am I talking about all this? Now, remember, this was brought to Poker Fraud Alert in October of 2020, and, and we're talking about this here in January of 2022. So it's now been uh, well over a year since the thread was started, which is now eight pages long. And I'm only mentioning it now because something interesting has happened. And while I thank this new guy for bringing this to our attention, because a lot of us are kind of interested in the happenings on this channel, not the actual slot play going on, but some of the drama that spawns from these channels, I didn't think it was something that was interesting enough to bring to radio that would make it good for the audience to listen to. But something finally has happened to where I think it is interesting for the listener, even if you're not familiar with this world, which I'm trying to introduce you to by explaining all this. So some of these slot providers that this guy was introducing us to, these are ones that he just learned over time from watching these channels. And some of these guys use uh, fake names. So there's uh, Brian Christopher. There is uh, Scott Richter, who's also known as Mr. Big Jackpot. And then there's a few others, but... One that was of the most interest to those in the thread was a female slot YouTube content creator named Slot Lady, who claimed her name was Sarah. New Guy described Slot Lady as an above-average woman in both intellect and looks 
who realized that she could subsidize her real-life vice, that is, slot machines, by making YouTube her genuine career. Now, that is pretty accurate. She is above-average looking. She's around 30 years old. She seems like she has at least somewhat of a brain. So this guy is saying here that it made sense because she does have some appeal because you can tell she knows what she's talking about. You can tell she seems like a smart woman. You can see that she's attractive. And yeah, she's not like model beautiful, but that could actually also work in her favor because this makes her more relatable, that you can watch her play and you could say, hey, you know what? I could kind of picture myself dating someone like her. If she's super beautiful, the average guy is not going to think that. The average guy is going to think, wow, she's way out of my league. There's no way she'd ever touch me. But if she's just pretty but not super beautiful, which is the way I would describe slot lady, and she really is a perfect age for this too. 30 makes her old enough to where older guys, kind of like me, could uh, look at her and think, okay, you know, I'm older than her, but she's not like a kid to me. So you could kind of picture that maybe she'd still date you. And uh, even if you're like 21... She's not so much older than you that like she's your mom's age. So it's kind of a good age to appeal to a lot of people. And of course, uh, she's not old or anything. She's still fairly young. So she still uh, looks good. And uh, the, the effects of aging haven't really taken any toll on her looks yet. So it's kind of that phenomenon where sometimes even on like like television shows that the female character who's supposed to be the most beautiful actually isn't as popular with the male fans as the one who's supposed to be just fairly pretty because people they the guys kind of feel they could relate to and picture themselves dating the one that isn't supposed to be super beautiful. Uh, this was seen on uh, Gilligan's Island with the Ginger versus Marianne debate. This was seen on uh, WKRP in Cincinnati with uh, Bailey Quarters versus uh, Jennifer. So you get where I'm going with this thing. Now, there's no other girl in the slot community on YouTube to compare her to, but I'm saying that she had a good thing going because a lot of things were appealing about her, that you're not just watching some degenerate dude play slots. You're watching a fairly attractive but not super gorgeous girl who seems like she's fairly intelligent and is around 30 years old playing slots and a lot of guys would watch this and go cool wouldn't it be nice if I had a girlfriend like that wouldn't it be cool if I could go to a casino with her and we could sit at the slot machine together and have fun degening off on these slot machines and then we could go back to the hotel room and have sex and wow that'd be awesome if I could have a girlfriend like that like guys will watch this and kind of picture this even subconsciously picture this without actively thinking that So this can grow the channel very fast. It can grow the channel a lot faster than if you're just some dude playing slots. Even if you're not an older dude, even if you're a a young, good-looking dude, it's not going to get a lot of dudes wanting to watch you based upon you being a young, good-looking dude. Uh, It's just not going to happen. So if you're a dude with a slot channel, you're going to grow because of your content and your content only, and maybe your personality. If you're an attractive female with a slot channel, then... That's already a big leg up. You, you, you're you going to get a lot of growth just based upon that. And sure enough, that's what happened. Her channel grew very rapidly and became one of the biggest slot channels out there. And in fact, I was hearing that some of the male slot channel creators, 
resented this somewhat. They felt they had to work a lot harder to get the same traffic. It didn't just come to them because they weren't a pretty girl. Now, I don't think they have a right to resent that. They can be a little annoyed by it, but they don't have a right to resent that because that's the way the world works. Certain people will have an inherent advantage with certain things in life because of their gender, because of their looks, because of some talent they may have. And certain things may come easier for some people than others. So if a pretty girl knows that she can do a YouTube channel and get what uh, get an audience pretty quickly thanks to being a pretty girl, then great, use that. You shouldn't be ashamed of that. And you should use it to your advantage. So I, I fully support that she did that. And I don't feel it has to be equal where she shouldn't get the advantage that she's getting. So I have no criticism of that. In fact, it's pretty smart to realize that you might be able to succeed in that space and quickly pass the other channels simply because of your gender and looks. Now, again, I've known about her since October 2020, but I've never talked about her before because just this by itself is not very exciting. But she was the one who was most interesting to the thread on Poker Fraud Alert for obvious reasons. And people started to notice some things about her. First of all, she seemed kind of unhappy as she was doing it. She didn't seem to be enjoying the slot play. She kind of had a a vibe of being in a bad mood a lot, of not liking being there, of not enjoying the gambling itself. She kind of had a little bit of a snarky attitude. So a lot of people were starting to notice that there's something weird about this channel because why is she doing this if she's resenting it so much? She was also getting a lot of donations through these live chats she would do. Now, supposedly the donations were to, quote, support the channel, but let's be honest here. If she were a dude, would she get anywhere near the same number of donations? Obviously not. The guys who are donating are mostly dudes that like her, that have developed a crush on her, and may even have the belief, the outside belief, that if they donate, that she'll appreciate it, and may, maybe one day she'll get to know them and go out with them. So obviously she was getting a lot more donations than the other channels because, again, of her gender and looks. But, again, I don't hold this against her. If she can have these live chats and dudes want to donate to her, as long as she's not lying to them or misleading them, and they're just donating because she's pretty and they like her, then fine. They can donate. And if she makes money that way, great. I'm not being sarcastic. I really feel that way. Just like I don't begrudge that female poker pros who had uh, less impressive results even than people like me who don't play tournaments very often got sponsorships and I didn't because they were pretty girls and I was not a pretty girl. Why? Because I'm just not one. So I understand. I understand why poker sites would want to make site pros out of pretty girls over dudes. So that's the way life works. I've never resented it one bit. I've acknowledged it, but I've never resented it. It's the same thing here. So people noticed she wasn't enjoying it, even though she was clearly making decent money from this for really not doing very much. She also had this weird hiatus where she stopped doing videos for a while. Then she claimed the hiatus was because she was stuck in Canada. She's Canadian. 
she was living in Las Vegas, but she was originally Canadian. She's of Canadian nationality. So she went back to Canada and then claimed she was stuck there because of COVID and couldn't come back in the U.S., but the story didn't completely add up because they had actually uh, relaxed those restrictions and he, she still wasn't coming back. So a lot of this wasn't really completely adding up and people were scratching their heads as to what's going on. But again, not a huge deal. However, the channel underwent a big change in July of 2021. They started doing videos again, and she was back in Las Vegas. But they changed the name from Slot Lady to All Casino Action. And immediately I thought, that's a weird thing, because the main draw is that she's a slot lady that she's a lady who's playing slots and she's the only one, at least with any kind of sizable channel, who's doing it. The rest are dudes. So why would she draw attention away from that and call it all casino action? Well, she announced that not only are they changing the channel name, but that they're going to have other slot players on the channel as well. And people thought, hmm, that's weird. Well, very quickly, one of those other slot players was introduced. It was a guy named Victor. And to this date, no other slot players have been on that channel. It was just her and Victor. So immediately people started to think, hmm, I wonder if Victor is her boyfriend. And if she brought Victor into this channel because she started dating him. And that's why they're calling it all casino action because he wants in on this too. But people weren't quite understanding why they would bring Victor in because clearly Victor is not as much of a draw. Victor isn't even particularly good-looking, and there's nothing really unique about him. He just looks like an average guy. So who do people want to watch on that channel? The pretty girl playing slots or just the average dude who might be dating her? I I think you know. So why why would she ruin the winning formula and bring in Victor? Another good question was if she's getting all these donations from these guys who have a crush on her with maybe the belief that this might lead one day to her dating them— why would she dissuade this by showing a dude on the channel that they might think could be dating her and maybe they won't be as uh, excited to donate any money to her? So people were really scratching their heads as to what was going on. So there were starting to be some theories that maybe she was just kind of getting tired of it since she seemed to not be enjoying the channel and she's uh, giving Victor a chance to make some content then uh, in her place. There are a lot of different theories. But... There's another slot channel that decided to do some research into this. The guy put out a video which has really uh, gotten a lot of attention, even got Slot Lady's attention, and she responded to this video. So this is a guy who goes by Easy Life Slots. That's the letters E-Z, then Life Slots. So he did a video explaining some things he noticed about the transition from slot lady to all casino actions. And he said that not only does he feel that uh, Victor is her boyfriend, but that Victor has been there the entire time in the background and that Victor was actually in the background as chat moderator Jenny using a fake female name and that it was actually Victor's channel and that he was really calling all the shots. Well, that changes a lot. That makes it look like Slot Lady is really 
a puppet for Victor. That Victor basically just put up a girl that he knew people would want to watch instead of him. And that he was really running the entire channel while hiding in the background under a female name in the chat. That was the allegation, among other things, from Easy Life Slots. So I'm going to play you some of this Easy Life Slots video. And Slot Lady was so rattled by this that she posted a response video to this guy. And he's claiming that he's going to post a response to the response video, but we don't have that yet. But here's his video calling out Slot Lady and why he thinks the whole thing's phony. Well, hello, everyone. This has been a highly, highly requested video for some time now. People are always asking me, what do you know? What do you know? So I'm going to tell you what I know. Let's dive in. Back on July 5th, 2017, a lady by the name of Sarah started a slot channel called Slot Lady, and her videos did extremely well. Her channel did extremely well. It started to just blow up. Her channel did really well. People really liked her. Uh, I would probably probably say specifically men really liked her. But regardless, she found a little niche within the slot community and uh, her channel started to flourish. I wouldn't say that she was a big part of the community per se. She really kept to herself. Uh, you wouldn't see her comment on other people's videos come in other people's streams. And then probably about two years ago, she started to come out of her shell, I would say a little bit, and start to collaborate. She collaborated with Diana. She collaborated with BC, uh, MG, who is obviously no longer a channel and has closed down his channel. If you didn't watch that video, you should. So she started to collaborate with other channels. I always found me personally, I always found her interesting. Let me stop this for a second. You can hear there's a lot of drama in this community. That some guy named MG shut down his channel over some drama. Like, I'm not aware of any of this. I didn't really follow any of that stuff. But it's it's funny that there is a slot YouTube community where then drama springs and, and it resulted in one channel getting shut down. And now there's this whole slot lady thing. Isn't it weird all these like sub communities that are out there that you just have no clue exist, but are a big part of a lot of people's lives and a lot of people are watching unfold. It's kind of fascinating to me. Because when she would go live, she would have this person that she would call Jenny talking in the chat under her own login. So it would come up slot lady in the chat, but the person was always telling her what to do, what game to go to, when to end the live stream. And I found that odd. And I was like, okay, this is someone's pulling the strings here. I would say I'm a pretty good uh, investigator. I mean, I have coined myself as the uh, investigator of the slot community. And I was like, you know, this is not, something's not right here. This is not Jenny. This is someone else. I don't know who, but they're, they're telling her what to do. They're telling her what to play, how much to bet, when to stop, when to go, uh, when to move. It was very interesting. Those streams are still up. If you go back, you can see this Jenny talking under the slot lady handle in the chat. As of recent, this video was dropped, released on her channel. Okay, so he's showing in the background the transition to All Casino Action and explaining what it's going to be called, All Casino Action, from now on. He, by her, him saying that she's in the chat under Slot Lady, 
not only was Jenny a chat moderator, but Jenny was a chat moderator using the main Slot Lady YouTube account while Slot Lady was uh, live streaming. So it wasn't just someone appointed mod. It was someone appointed mod and giving ac- given access to the main account. So it's obviously someone who's very trusted and seems to have a major role at the channel. And some people wondered, who is this Jenny? How come we never meet her? How can we never see her? How come it's, it's not really fully explained what her deal is? And, and how does she have so much power? Why, why is she bossing around Slot Lady about what to play, when to quit, etc.? These are good points. And he's saying that uh, these aren't just allegations. You can go back to her old videos where, and, and go look at the chat that is recorded there, and, and you can watch Jenny in action. Channel, but so far, Victor has been the only additional creator that has been bought onto this channel so far that is now called All Casino Action. think that this was just a way to bring Victor on. There aren't going to be additional creators. It's just Sarah and Victor. And I guess we should just dive into what I know and what I've seen. So first, I just want you to look at this. These are prior videos before Victor came on. And if you notice the trend, all these photos are taken by someone else. And I have noticed this. This has been, this was the theme for her thumbnails for the longest time. Yeah, I want to stop here and explain something else I've noticed. Not only were these pictures of Slot Lady taken by somebody else, these weren't selfies, but they were highly filtered. Now, as I said, Slot Lady is attractive, but she's not as attractive as what you see in these thumbnails where her skin looks perfect and in these thumbnails, she really looks beautiful. Then you see her actually playing on the channel. You go, okay, you know, she's a pretty girl, but uh, she's not beautiful like in these thumbnails. So it's like a heavy filter put on to make her look a whole lot better, which I thought was stupid because it's not like she's ugly or even average looking. She's above average looking and she's only 30. So I could understand if she's 50 and plain looking, if she wants to look attractive in the thumbnails, but this is someone who already is attractive. There's no point to filter the hell out of these pictures to look even prettier. So that already kind of struck me as a little bit phony. But so someone took these pictures of her for these thumbnails. It was definitely a separate photographer. And then someone, either her or the person who took them, filtered them before posting them. These are not selfies. Every video she put out was her sitting in front of that game that you were going to watch in that video. And I was like, so someone's taking these photos. Every time she's going to ask a stranger, hey, can you take a photo of me? I'm like, okay, there's someone else running this channel with her. So that was my first thing that I saw two, three years ago that was like a, a red flag for me. I was like, there's someone else here that she's not, you know, speaking of Jenny. This next one I've had in the vault for quite some time, just waiting for it to come to light. Like many things that I keep in my vault behind me that haven't seen the light of day yet, but eventually everything will come to light because even if you are not ready for the day, it cannot always be night. If you remember when all the casinos closed down uh, across the whole country, the first casinos to reopen were the ones in Deadwood. And Lady Luck went there. The big jackpot went there. A lot of channels that really needed content to keep their channel alive ran to Deadwood. So did Slot Lady. But Slot Lady went with someone else this time. This was the first time that I was sent a picture of Slot Lady with someone else. So this photo, if you look at the timestamp from my camera roll from my phone, 
It's from May 24th, 2020. And it is, uh, you can see by the chair, it's the lodge at Deadwood, that slot lady. And she's not even holding the camera to record the session. Who is? That's Victor. So now at this point, I'm like, okay, so this is the other person. This is the Jenny. This is my opinion. What I think is that Victor and Sarah are a couple. They won't admit that they're a couple, which, by the way. Are you siblings or a couple? We're not, we're not related. <laughs> we're, not, we're, not, we're not related, no. So that, this is uh, like a Q&A they did. And he's showing that they're saying they're not siblings. When someone asks, are you siblings or a couple? But they don't touch the couple thing. Uh, but. So the question was asked, are you siblings or a couple? And they just answer, we're not siblings. They didn't say we're not a couple. So they're not saying yes or no. I feel like they never do. So I'm going to go with that. Yes, they're a couple. Are they married? I don't know. I would say probably not. Now, I want to show this clip. This will set the tone for what I think had happened, why Victor was introduced to the channel. It like, makes me, literally makes me like not want to do the, these stupid chats because I just get endless comments about how I look sad and I'm, like, I'm crying and it's so annoying. And like, So now she's upset because someone in the chat made comments about her physical appearance and... You know, she's at the brink of the trolls. Fine, fine. DM me all your crappy messages about how I'm ugly and sad and boring. So what I think happened was I think that having a channel, just like anything else, it, it takes a toll on you. People will come for you. People will attack you. And I think Sarah had enough. And Sarah said to Victor, I'm not doing this anymore. And the only way to salvage this was to introduce Victor because it takes some of the heat off of her. It introduces a new person. He could put out videos. He could do live streams because I think she was done. I just think that she was 100% done with the channel and uh, the, the, the comments that people would leave and, and everything. It's the only thing logically that would make sense. I feel like everyone who has a channel at one point in their YouTube life felt this way as well. Like, I'm done. I've had enough. I can't take it anymore. And that was where she was at. You could see it from that, that live stream that she did from home. And shortly after that, that's when Victor came into the picture. So v Victor is an interesting character. I think that uh, he was behind this the entire time, which this video right here, thinking about this even since last year even since before we went back to toronto so um i know you guys don't know uh like only met victor recently but victor's actually been a huge part of the channel behind the scenes since i started the channel uh really um she's admitting right here that victor has been part of this channel since day one which victor was jenny in those chats so that that connected all the dots for me and now Victor has a voice. Victor is part of the channel. They're portraying it as 50-50. There's, there's still a little bit of tension between the two of them. And I think that she still does not want to do this. Just recently, she had this little rant on a live stream. In a day and a half. Which I guess a, a you know what? Fine, that, guys. Guess what? We're broke. That's why we're not gambling anymore. Fine. Whatever. Think whatever you want. <laughs> whatever, 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 whatever you think. So... 
you could just see that she's at her wit's end. She's had enough. The reason why that the, the broke thing came up was because they have made the announcement that they're going to stop live streaming as often and they're going to really cut it down. Um, there's going to be no schedule for live streaming. It's just going to be posted videos. Um, and this is what was said. I guess too, like, like we were talking, about, it's been a bit like we were talking about this last year. And um, when I went back to Toronto, I wasn't sure um, if we were going to continue or not. I mean, there's other reasons why things happen the way that they happened. But um, overall, we're just, we're not ending the channel but we're 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 changing the thing we're changing things up a little bit uh we're we're not even ending the, the live casino stream no. so don't worry don't worry guys like they'll still be there but there's just the the volume is not going it's to not going to be what it used anywhere to be. near where it used to be so that they're you know they are cutting down the live streams cutting them out essentially from what you know i take it as and the reason why i think that's happening is because it's expensive to do a live stream every night. They were live almost every night, $1,000, $2,000, $1,500, whatever it was, risking that, putting that on the line. And that's a lot of money. And the reason why is because Sarah said it. Ask that question. It's very unsettling or un it makes you very unhappy to know <laughs> the outcome. But guess what? This is a business. It's a channel. <laughs> this is a business. In any business, what do you want to do? Make a profit. Cut out the live streams. You have bigger profit margins. So I think that that's why the, they're stopping the live streams um, because it is a business for them and they need to make money. Now, you're probably saying to me, well, you haven't really showed much. You really haven't said much. Strap in. Let me show you a little receipt that I have of my own. So what you're looking at here is essentially an article of incorporation. Okay, I'll stop this here. There's about six more minutes left of this, but I'm, I'm not going to play the rest of it. Uh, you can find it on Easy Life Slots if you want to see. It's called What Happened to Slot Lady. But he basically is showing that they incorporated and the company's called Capital Corporate Services, Inc. And that it is incorporated... And that Victor was the uh, basically the officer for everything there. It looked like it was his company. So that's what he revealed there as the bombshell that this is actually Victor's and that the incorporation from July of 2021 proves it. So this really rattled Slot Lady, all the stuff that this Easy Life Slots guy put out. Why does it rattle her? Why is this so terrible? What's the big scandal here? Well, it's not a big scandal. It's that Easy Life Slots pretty much exposed that this seems to be a facade. As I was saying before, that Slot Lady was just put up to doing all this by her boyfriend, Victor, and that uh, maybe she doesn't even enjoy slots. Maybe Victor just taught her what to do so he could get her on camera doing it and grow the channel that way rather than show himself playing where there'd be much less interest. And that he was hiding in the chat as Jenny and directing the whole thing. And they were specifically avoiding mentioning him for about four years to give the impression like that she's single. She didn't specifically say she's single, but that was kind of the implication 
where you don't see a guy involved. There's a reason that he was Jenny in the chat. There's a reason they didn't ever mention him being there, that you were supposed to get the impression from watching that this is like a single girl who just enjoys going to play slots and is filming it herself. So he felt that this was kind of dishonest and that uh, this transition to this new channel all-casino action was also dishonest. So th- that was what he was bringing out there. And uh, he also tried to make some allegations that this is basically being forced on her by Victor, and she really hasn't wanted to do this. She really wasn't into it the whole way, but now she's really not into it, and then he's kind of forcing this on her. So she was very unhappy with this, because she's had this this uh, successful channel for four and a half years now, and she successfully avoided a lot of drama prior to this. And yeah, she was easily rattled by trolls that would complain about how she seems depressed and seems unhappy doing it, and and people would make comments about her looks or whatever. So she didn't have a thick skin, for sure, but... At least there wasn't any kind of major drama that uh, called into question the basic premises of the channel. But here, now this Easy Life Slots guy went and did it and got tens of thousands of views very quickly. So she felt like she needed to respond. Keep in mind, this channel she has has 188,000 subscribers. So that's a pretty big channel. And she kind of just felt like, I don't know how much of this was true. You know, the guy has his allegations. Some of it, to me, looks like it's true. I don't know if all of it's true. There are some things which may not be true, like like maybe Victor is not uh, forcing her to do anything or pressuring her to do anything, and maybe she really does own the channel or owns half the channel. Who knows? Uh, that stuff is difficult to prove either way. But uh, I will say that it looks pretty clear to me that Victor has been behind the scenes the entire time and they hid him for a reason. And that was to mislead the viewers, especially the male viewers that were into her, that there was a man involved, which to be honest is uh, while I understand why they did it is a little bit misleading. So she put out a response video very quickly. She put out a response video on new year's Eve, December 31st, 2021. She didn't even want to wait for the New Year. She spent her New Year's Eve doing this response video looking very upset the entire way. And by the way, this is one of the few that does not have a thumbnail looking beautiful with a smiling face. This has no thumbnail. And you see the real her for 10 minutes in a response. So we're going to listen to this and then I'm going to give my analysis. And by the way, I have been told that Slot Lady and Victor read this thread on Poker Fraud Alert about the YouTube slot players. So they're aware of the discussion of them on there. So I'd like to say, in case they're listening to this show, or in case uh, someone alerts them to this show and they go listen to this segment, that I have no dog in this fight. I'm not someone who watches slot content. I'm a poker player and uh, sometimes a casino advantage player. I'm someone who finds just regular slot play boring. No offense to them, but I find the subject boring. I'm not part of the slot community. I will never be part of the slot community. And I don't care about all this drama back and forth, and I'm on nobody's side. 
So I have my opinions about this whole situation, and they're not as harsh as uh, some of other people's opinions in the community. Uh, so I, I, like, I understand why they did it the way they did it. But if they'd like to come on this show and explain themselves, then I welcome them to either come on the show or the forum and explain their side of it. And I will be respectful if they come on the show or the forum. And again, I'm not on anybody's side here. And I'm honest about this. I really have no emotional attachment to this because I'm not part of this community, nor will I ever be. I'm just covering it on this show because I find it pretty interesting, uh, this whole drama back and forth that is based upon the allegation that Slot Lady, the only female slot YouTuber, is kind of a facade. So let's listen to her response. Hello, everyone. I'm here today to address a video made by another YouTuber whose intent was to create a false narrative regarding myself, Victor, and this channel. I'm making this video by myself because it's really been my autonomy that's been called into question. And while Victor isn't here, please know that he supports me and what I'm about to say, just as he always has. Okay, I'm a little questioning this already. I do believe he supports what she's saying. I think they probably came up with it together. However, uh, it does, again, seem like someone's filming her. You don't see her arms holding up the camera. It is possible she has a camera just sitting there and it is recording, but there are also a lot of cuts and edits here. You won't notice this when you're listening as much because you're listening and not watching, but there are a lot of cuts even in the first minute of the video. So this is highly edited. It seems like it was uh, prepared and like, does it matter if Victor's there filming her? I, I think we're past that point. I think we we all know that Victor is a big part of this whole thing. So wh why even say whether he's there or not? Like, he doesn't have to be on camera. Maybe she just means he's not on camera and not speaking. But clearly, this is a statement from both of them. But make no mistake, these are my words. When I first watched the video, I was initially confused as to how anything that was said was tea because it was basically using clips from my live streams, things that were publicly available that I told my viewers, using those clips to then create a false narrative for which this individual had no proof of. I'll use clips from my live streams to refute these claims to show that nothing that was said in this video was tea or news and that I never lied to anyone. First, there's the opinion as to why I changed the name of the channel and added Victor as a creator. I will replay what I said after Victor was introduced onto the channel and what I've continued to say ever since. Uh, why the addition of the channel, just to change things up? Yeah, there's a bunch of reasons why I wanted to do it. Um, one, I just felt like there was a lot of content that was on the table, again, like poker, that I, I just knew I couldn't do by myself. Running a channel takes a lot, um, and I just, it just was at the point where I just couldn't do it by myself. And, you know, there's other things that I want out of life beyond the channel, and uh, adding other people allows me to do that, so. Just, it's really that simple. Yeah, there you go. I've also said multiple times that Victor and I have known each other for years, so it's not as though I framed it as if he was someone I had just met. Okay, true, but look, that answer you gave was a non-answer. If you gave a specific answer, I added Victor for X and Y, and they all added up and it made sense, and people go, oh, okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. It was a very, very intentionally ambiguous answer that could mean anything. So... That does not refute what this guy is saying. This guy was saying that the channel was stressing you out and you added him on there to lessen that stress, to add a second personality to it, to make it less just about you. So maybe there wouldn't be as much happening to upset you when they have Victor to focus upon as well. 
I don't know how that would really work, and it really hasn't, but that seemed to be a good theory because there were times you seemed to be visibly upset when trolls would say things in the chat that were upsetting to you. So I think that's a good theory. I, I think I agree with the guy. We've been friends for a long, long time, actually. We've known each other for quite a while. Several years. I can't prove my motivations for doing anything, so while my story hasn't changed, it seems as though people will not believe me just because the truth isn't as dramatic as they want it to be. Were there several reasons as to why I wanted to make the changes that I did? Yes, but I've never lied about any of them. You can choose to believe whatever you want, but I know my truth. Okay, there's a difference between not lying and not stating something. So when you say, we're just adding other providers here, and, uh, and Victor happens to be one of them, he's another content provider, we're adding him to the channel, that's not a lie. You are adding Victor, and he is providing content. But when you're not really giving a specific reason why you're doing it, then it is omitting a big part of the story. And maybe you don't want to tell it, but it is... I wouldn't say a lie by omission, but it's just an omission which leaves a big hole. And when you leave a big hole in the story, others will seek to fill that hole, especially when you have 188,000 subscribers, some of whom will become curious about this abrupt change. You can't be irritated with people for wanting to know, why is this guy suddenly here? Now we have the claims about who owns the channel. I'm assuming the individual that created the video that I'm now responding to has very little business experience and doesn't understand corporate structure, or perhaps they do and are intentionally misleading their audience. I'm not sure, but let's explain something. A corporate officer is not a shareholder. Corporate officers are able to perform tasks on behalf of a business. Shareholders own a business. A corporate officer may or may not be a shareholder. A shareholder may or may not be a corporate officer. Now, not only does showing the corporate directors not show who owns a, who owns a corporation, but there's also the fact that this corporation was registered in July of 2021. Okay, come on. This, this is nonsense. This is the worst part of the video, in my opinion. You don't talk about corporate structure when the corporation's two people. That's why I played that laughing sound effect. I mean, come on. Well, it may show that uh, Victor is the, the, the director in the corporate structure, but that doesn't mean he owns the channel. He's just a director. You don't understand the way corporations work. Come on. This isn't a corporation. It's technically a corporation. It's two people who formed a corporation. So if one guy's name is all over the corporate paperwork and your name isn't, and he's the director of everything, then yes, it is a safe assumption, though not 100%, but it is a safe assumption to believe that he owns all, most, or at least half of the company, or it would be your name on there. It's not like a big corporation of, of a thousand employees where looking at the director doesn't mean who actually owns it. This is a totally different situation. So you can't say, this guy who did the video, he doesn't know about corporate structure. Come on. He caught something that you probably didn't want people knowing or thinking. And now you're you're talking about this. Like, I'm not saying you don't own any part of your channel. It may be 50-50, or it may be an informal agreement where Victor owns the channel, but uh, technically you get half the proceeds because you've been together for so long. Maybe he's even your husband, who knows? But uh, let, let's not pretend that this means nothing, that his name is on all this paperwork. This, this isn't corporate structure. 
So that's kind of insulting to the viewer to say that. And Victor came on the channel only a few weeks after I resumed filming. So I'm not even sure as to how this proves anything. With all that cleared up, let me say this. I indeed own my own channel. Now we have the claim that I don't like gambling and I'm simply a puppet that just does whatever Victor tells me to do. Now, while I can't prove my likes or dislikes, or the fact that I do indeed make my own decisions, I've also said, since Victor has been on the channel, how much he knows about gambling and how I use him consistently as a reference. Like, if you want a casino expert, watch Victor. He's the one who knows everything, okay? Not me. I hired him for a reason. Okay, th that clip is dishonest right there. I hired him for a reason? No, you didn't. He's your boyfriend. You didn't hire him. He's been, he's been there for a long time. Are, are you paying him a salary? Was he just a, a, a regular employee? If you two had a dispute and ended up in court, would you describe him as an employee or more than that? I, I think we know the answer. So you didn't hire him for a reason. So that's uh, the you're, the clip you're playing to try to debunk the claims from this Easy Life guy are just kind of making it more convincing that some of the stuff he said was correct. Now, I will concede that it is very possible that Victor isn't telling you what to do, that this is an equal partnership, that you decide on this together, that maybe Victor has more of an even temper than you do, and that you, to, you, you tend to get rattled more when people on the internet aren't nice. And by the way, I'm not even giving you a hard time about that, because I run a show, I run a forum, I get bashed all the time, I get insulted all the time, I have weirdos bothering me sometimes, and it sucks, and it's stressful. And as that Easy Life guy himself said, he understands that uh, people who run things like this have their moments where they say, this isn't worth it, I kind of just want to go away. So I, I can fully understand that. And, and I go through some of the same stuff that uh, you probably have. So I, I can appreciate all that. But at the same time, uh, yeah, it, it's very possible that you two do everything together and this is an equal partnership and that he's not making you do anything. But at the same time, he may be more into it. He may be enjoying this more. He may be uh, less desiring to quit than you are. He may get less upset than you do when people are not very nice who are watching your channel. That doesn't mean he owns anything or controls you. So I'm not willing to go that far and say that Victor's running everything. But there was the whole thing with Jenny, who was almost certainly Victor, who was in the chat directing you what to do. So either he is in control or you've allowed him to at least control what's going on on these streams, kind of like as a director. That doesn't mean he's your boss, but that means uh, you've given directorial control to him in those videos where Jenny was giving directions. So uh, at the very least, that was happening. And talking about how you hired Victor is <laughs> not really honest to me. It isn't news that Victor is a more experienced gambler than I, and I've said this ever since he's joined the channel. There's also the supposed tea about how Victor's been helping me with my channel since the beginning. Since the video I'm responding to used a clip of me saying exactly that, I guess I'll use the same clip too. Um, I know you guys don't know 
uh, like only met Victor recently, but Victor's actually been a huge part of the channel behind the scenes since I started the channel. Victor wanted to maintain his privacy for a very long time, and I respected that. Whenever somebody asked me who helps me film, I simply just said, a friend. Whenever anyone met us in the casino while we were filming, we both introduced ourselves, and if they asked, oh, how come you're not on the channel? Victor would always say, I just prefer to maintain my privacy. I never claimed I didn't have anyone help me film, and as this person said, it's pretty obvious from my thumbnails and my earlier footage that somebody was helping me, so I'm not really sure how this is newsworthy as well. Well, okay. Yeah, you never said that. You never said this is me, myself, and I, and nobody's helping me. I just want everybody to know that. You never said that. That's true. However, you never talked about somebody else being involved until Victor showed up, which is weird. Why, like, why would you not even say there's another person? Why wouldn't you refer to the other person, even if you don't want to show them on camera or describe anything about them? Why was it always kind of implied you were by yourself, even if you didn't directly say that? And yes, yeah, someone watching could see, hey, who took these pictures or the, the video angle doesn't look right for you to be holding the camera. But you definitely went out of your way for years to not make it clear that someone else was involved. And there's the whole matter of Jenny, who, by the way, spoiler alert, this video I'm playing, you guys, has five more minutes. Jenny's never mentioned. She never addresses the Jenny thing. So number one, that makes it pretty clear that Jenny is indeed Victor. And number two, let's look at the name, Jenny. Why was Victor using the name Jenny? He doesn't look like a Jenny. He looks like a regular dude. Why wasn't it John or Bill or Frank? Why, why was it Jenny? It was Jenny because... They didn't want a male to be seen as part of the slot lady channel. That was a conscious decision. I can't say this for sure because I wasn't there when they made the decision. But to me, it looks very obvious that care was taken. Great care was taken for years to make it look like there is no male associated with this. And while they didn't outright lie and say, hey, everybody, there's no male here. The one male that was involved went by Jenny in the chat. You never saw him on camera. It was never described that there's a male there. And in fact, they really went overboard attempting to never even discuss who else might be there, which is kind of weird. Well, I know why. I think you know why. If a lot of her appeal is being an attractive female slot player, then Guys don't want to think about another dude a few feet away from her who's directing the action. Even if he's not directing it in a controlling way or he's forcing her to do anything or pressuring her to do anything, if he's like equally involved, it's not going to be as appealing. They're not going to get as many donations. They're not going to get as much interest in the channel. So they clearly wanted no impression that there was a dude involved. And that's why Jenny was there. Because Victor wanted to have some way to communicate with her there and direct her there, but not as a, a male. He could have been anonymous with any male name. Why Jenny? And she doesn't address this. She never addresses the Jenny thing. So this is one of these things. Hey, I never lied. I never said Victor wasn't there. I never said that someone wasn't helping me. So where was the lie? Well, but it was just kind of misleading. And you definitely made the attempt to have people not understand what was really going on there. Is this a huge scandal? No, 
Did you rip anyone off? No. But were you honest with your viewers about what was really going on? Not really. The next thing I have to address is so ridiculous, but here we are. The scandalous double nudge on our last live chat. Victor was simply worried that I would derail the chat by going on a rant about trolls, which I've been known to do. I'm not really sure, again, why this is tea, but okay. Now we have the claims about the relationship between Victor and I. I have said on this channel that I prefer to keep my personal life private many times, so I guess I'll roll a clip of me saying exactly that. It's not a disrespectful question. I just... Um, it's just that we, we want uh, to keep our... When I started my channel, I decided what I wanted to keep private in my life, and I appreciate you all for respecting that. And it's just not something that I think should be up for public debate or discussion. It's my own private life, and I just don't want to talk about it. So thank you. Exactly. Okay. I'm going to play a little bit more she has to say about the subject, and then I'll give you my opinion. Victor and I have every right to choose what we do and do not share online. This is a channel about casino content. This is not a gateway into my personal life, and viewers are not entitled to know every single thing about me. The point of this channel has always been to create authentic gambling content, which is what we've always done. These videos have always been created with my own funds, and while I haven't seen every gambling channel in the space, I have reason to believe that I show more losing videos than most. Okay, let's, let's stop right here. I do not like the position of, it's none of your business if we're dating. We're not revealing this. Get out of our personal life. Well, you know what? Once you bring Victor as a public face of this channel, then of course people are going to ask that. At that point, it's a very relevant question. It's a less relevant question if Victor is not part of the channel. Let's say you really are just a single girl who's doing these videos. And let's say at some point you're dating some guys who have nothing to do with the channel. Then you would have a right to say that nobody who's watching the channel has any right to ask you about your dating life. That you don't want to say who you're dating or if you're dating or how long you've been dating somebody, that this is none of their business. It has nothing to do with the channel. You're here to provide slot content, not talk about who you're dating. Okay, I agree with you there. But if he is part of the channel and people say, hey, you know what? It really looks like you two are a couple. What? We're not telling you that. None of your business. We understand why you're asking, but none of your business. We're not sharing it with you. That's very off-putting. If you're going to have him on there, and if it's going to appear to a lot of the viewers that you two are a couple, you've got to address it. You're not forced to, but you look like assholes for not doing it. This is where you start to look like you're not being honest with the viewers. You're not required to say this, but if you're going to come on together, then you do owe it to your loyal viewers to explain the nature of the relationship. And if you don't want to do that, then don't bring the guy you're dating onto the channel as a major player on the channel. So it becomes very relevant as soon as he becomes a major person on the channel. Even if you bring him on once, it becomes a relevant question. But the, the fact that he's like half the channel now, of course people are going to want to know this. And if you flippantly tell them it's none of their business, then that just gets them mad. Because what you're doing is you are showing part of your life to your viewers. And then it becomes part of the show you're putting on. And... While you don't have to tell them intimate details, you, know, you don't need to tell them about your sex life with Victor and what positions you like, but 
you can't answer whether you two are a couple because it's going to upset the simps who have been donating to you and you, you don't want to lose that sweet money? Like, like, What's going on here? You brought him on here, so if he's your boyfriend, say so. And if you don't like those questions, you don't like these assumptions, then don't bring them on the channel. It's that simple. Anything that you broadcast to the public, people are going to have questions about. And things that are very simple, simple questions about the nature of a relationship of two people on a channel, yeah, that's something the viewer is going to feel that they kind of have a right to know, even if you're not compelled to tell them. And uh, to scold them for wanting to know this is very off-putting. So this is what you have to do if you're going to put a couple on a channel. You've got to at least say if you're a couple or not. And look, people aren't stupid. Whenever someone says, I'm not going to discuss whether we're a couple or not, you know what that means? You're a couple. Because if you're not, it's a very simple answer. We're not a couple. (laughs) Then the whole thing's over, provided you're telling the truth. So if you say, oh, I'm not answering that, then that means that you probably are, but you don't want to confirm it and disappoint certain people. It's kind of like what I used to say about people's sexual preference. If you ask somebody, are you gay? If they're straight, they'll say, no, I'm not gay. If they say, it's none of your business what I am, then there's a good chance they are gay, or at least bi. Because at least what it used to be, I don't know about today, because things have kind of changed, but what it used to be is the assumption was that most people were straight. And what was mainstream, and even like back in the 80s and 90s, what was considered like acceptable by society was being straight. I'm not saying that's right, but that was the way it was back then. So if you were straight, you had no problem immediately saying, nope, I'm not gay, I'm straight. You wouldn't say, wait, none of your business. I'm not telling you if I'm gay or straight. That would be very uncommon. In fact, you see that with actors. If an actor was asked, are you gay? And they wouldn't tell you, that meant they were gay. If they say, no, I'm straight, then they're possibly lying to preserve their career. But uh, there's a good chance that they're straight if they say they're straight. But as soon as they say they're not telling you, you know the answer. So similar about a couple. You ever ask two people if they're a couple? If they're not, they'll very quickly tell you because there's nothing to be ashamed of about not being a couple. Males and females can be friends. And it's often important to clarify when a male and female are seen together a lot that they're not a couple. So no one's going to say, what? You're not a couple and you're hanging out together? No. Yeah, the males and females hang out sometimes. So there's no problem with clarifying that. But when you say, wait, 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 it's none of your business. I'm not going to tell you for a couple or not. That means we are, but we don't want you to know. So why, why play that stupid game? Just, just say it. I mean, I know you would have preferred that people just thought Slot Lady is possibly available and maybe we'll donate more to her and be more interested in her channel because she might be available and you might have a chance with her. I know that was driving some of the viewership, but now the cat's out of the bag. This Easy Life guy put out that video. It's fairly convincing about a lot of this stuff. So instead of trying to say none of your business or I didn't technically lie about that, how about just coming forward and telling the truth? Because the truth isn't that bad. You're not having to cover up anything terrible that happened here. Let's go on. And I have since the beginning of my channel. Anytime I've ever done a sponsorship, it's always been very clearly disclosed. 
Now, normally I wouldn't feel the need to address specific comments underneath a video, but in my opinion, as a YouTuber, when you pin a comment, you are thus endorsing it. This individual made a claim that I said a slot attendant robbed me when I left a ticket in a machine on a live stream. This is completely untrue. You can go and watch the live stream where that happened and nowhere do I say anything of the sort. And I don't believe that. It was my fault that I left the ticket in the machine and someone else saw their opportunity to cash it out and run. I have reason to believe that this is the same person that has been sending me these messages for months until I finally got so uncomfortable I had to block them from every platform that I have. Okay, so this is kind of a creepy part of this whole uh, video. And I actually felt bad for her seeing all this. So she keeps showing these messages from some guy named Jason. And this Jason has sent her just, I mean, so many messages through Squarespace, through Patreon, like just tons and tons of messages from this dude here. And they're pretty psycho. (laughs) The guy seems like he's got major issues and he seems like he's super obsessed with her. And if I were her, I would be kind of nervous, to be honest. Like, this guy looks like he needs some help. And it would be healthy for this guy not to continue watching her channel, in my opinion. So I understand if she's getting these messages that it was probably scary and disturbing. And this is one problem when you are a female who is doing a channel and that you're trying to get viewership from your appeal in that way unfortunately one thing that you're going to do is you're going to attract weirdos you're going to attract people who get obsessed with you and want to date you and expect that you're going to date them and don't take no for an answer and it's much more likely to happen when you're a pretty girl than if you're a dude or even if you're an older woman. So this is the one downside to being a popular female YouTuber is that you will get things like this. And she said she eventually had to block this guy because she couldn't take it anymore. And some people are saying, well, why did you even respond to him? Or why didn't you block him earlier? Well, I actually understand that too because when someone seems they're like they're kind of unhinged, what you want to try to do is de-escalate. You, you, if you block them right away, they can get insulted and come after you. So she probably felt, okay, uh, I'll try to keep it short with this guy. She didn't say this, but this is my guess, that she just wanted to keep it cordial with him, not to lead him on, but uh, also not to piss him off and, and uh, hope it could kind of just stay there and then just kind of die down. And then all it did is get worse, and she finally had to block him. And... uh uh, I, I feel bad for her for having received these messages. These messages do look authentic. I don't think they're faked. Someone on the forum said that something looks funny about these. I don't agree. I, I think these were authentic, creepy messages she got from this dude. And the the comment that she was showing, the pinned comment about her uh, blaming a slot attendant for stealing from her, came from that same name. And it was pinned by that Easy Life guy for whatever reason. Pinned means that it's the top comment everybody sees. And uh, to this Easy Life guy's credit, he took down the pin when he saw her response video and realized that the guy who posted it seems like he's crazy. So uh, 
Uh, props to Easy Life for taking that down. And he'll probably address this when he does his response video. And I, I legit feel bad for her for getting this. Like, uh, women shouldn't have to deal with this type of shit just because they're attractive and, and guys get to like them from their videos. And, and unfortunately, they do. And uh, while males will sometimes have to deal with psychos themselves, uh, it, it's in a different way. And I, I feel bad for her that she's had to deal with this. And this might be part of the reason she's been so on edge and so upset when people say nasty things in, in the live chats and everything. And this may be why she was near her breaking point and may have brought Victor into this. But you know what? That's reasonable. Like, I don't even blame her for this. This, this is totally reasonable if some guy who was obsessed with you pushed you to the point where you just couldn't stand this anymore and you thought by bringing your boyfriend on there it might kind of change things up and maybe this won't happen as much and uh, maybe the focus will be off you some and that that was the only way you were willing to continue so I understand this uh, happening if that's the way it did let's let's play the end of this and I'll give you my final thoughts was made up of clips of things that I said publicly that are and always were available to view on my live stream and a false narrative for which this individual has no proof. I understand if somebody enjoys making stories up about people, but keep me out of your creative writing class. I'm tired of being called a liar when the only thing I've ever done is tell the truth. I'm sorry that the truth isn't dramatic enough for you guys, but I can't change reality. Stop looking for negativity and drama where it doesn't exist. Stop pitting Victor and I against each other. Stop saying that we have an abusive relationship, a toxic relationship, or whatever other nonsense that you want to fabricate. You're only proving exactly why I never wanted to talk about my personal life in the first place. Victor is the sweetest person I have ever met and has only ever cared about my well-being and has supported me and helped me since I've known him. This is the last time I'm going to address Slot Lady and the channel name change. Any future questions will be directed to this video. Thank you to those who have supported me and continue to support me while I live my life in the best way that I possibly can and make the choices that suit me best. Okay, so that, that's pretty much it. Here's my take on this whole thing. You haven't been completely honest with everybody there's obviously been some deception here with Jenny, who noticed you didn't you didn't mention Jenny. Why, why was there no talk of Jenny if you're honest and transparent? That was a big part of this dude's video. He only talked for 17 minutes. I played about 10 of them. He spent a lot of time talking about Jenny. How come in your 10-minute response you don't mention Jenny once? How come that's not addressed? You know why you're not addressing it, because that was an attempt to deceive. Even if not through a direct lie, it was an attempt to cover up that a male was involved with the channel. So you can't say we've been honest and transparent the whole way. No, you haven't been. You haven't done anything terrible, but you haven't been totally transparent either. There, There is a, a narrative you're trying to present with your channel that wasn't totally true. And, and I understand why you did it, but I'm just saying that you can't wave the flag of honesty and transparency here. And people who are watching carefully and people who saw that video are not going to buy it that you're honest and transparent. You can't say, well, you can't show me what, I, you can't show where I've directly lied about anything. So I've been honest and transparent. That doesn't work. People aren't that dumb. People, they can read between the lines. So when all of this gets unraveled, like it has been 
through that Easy Life channel. What you need to do is come clean, especially because the truth isn't that bad. So here's what I believe to be the truth. I think that at some point, at some point, about four years ago or so, four and a half years ago, that Victor, who is an experienced gambler, and I think Sarah here was probably new to the whole thing, I think Victor had the idea to do a slots channel. But Victor, realizing that he's just an average dude, he thought, hey, how am I going to build up traffic being an average dude? I've got this pretty girlfriend in her 20s. Why don't I use her? It's a lot more interesting to see her play slots than to see me play slots. So why don't we try to build up a following based upon my pretty girlfriend, who I'm going to teach all about gambling. And uh, you know they, they branched out to do more than slots. She was playing blackjack and, and other things too. So you get to watch this pretty girl gambling, sometimes winning, sometimes losing. And it's a lot more interesting than watching Victor gambling. I agree. So that is a much better plan for a channel. And a conscious decision was likely made to make it look like this is just her. And while they weren't completely hiding that there was a second person involved, they were somewhat hiding it. They definitely avoided saying it. They definitely had him chat under a female name when it was clear there was a second person. So at the very least, there was a female, a second female involved who you didn't ever see or really understand who she was. But there was definitely an attempt to cover up that a male was involved with the channel because they felt that was good to build traffic from the male contingent that might have a crush on her, that might keep watching because they had a crush on her. And the worst thing when people are watching because they have a crush on a female is for those guys to think about her being with another dude in a long-term relationship. Even if they kind of know they're never going to date her, you can at least maintain the fantasy if she's single. If she's not single, it's a lot harder to put this fantasy in your head. It's a lot harder to donate to her thinking that maybe she'll notice you if she's got a live-in boyfriend. So I think this channel was probably Victor's idea Then he probably taught her how to play these games and taught her about slots and taught her about uh, blackjack and, and whatever else you see her playing, roulette. And she learned because she seems like she's fairly intelligent at the very least. And then he made sure to stay out of the way. And they did this for years. But then some problems cropped up. Trolls in the chat were rude. Weirdos got obsessed with her, especially this one Jason guy. And she was getting more and more irritated with the whole thing. It was starting not to be worth it. So finally in July, Victor was brought in to kind of change things up and maybe... uh, reduce some of these problems. So why not admit it? Why not just say, we felt that for the growth of the channel, it was best if only I was presented. You don't even have to explain it was to try to attract simps who would have a crush on her. You don't have to say that out loud. You can just say, for the growth of the channel, we figured it was best to not present Victor and to only present me. And that I decided in July due to a number of factors, including uh, people harassing me, that I didn't want to be perceived that I was doing this alone anymore. I wanted people to understand that there's a man here, 
that there's always been a man here, that he's my boyfriend, that uh, I've been with him. I know I didn't say right away he's my boyfriend because uh, we, we didn't want to get into all that. But OK, he's my boyfriend. We've been together. I wanted at least these weirdos to realize there is a man involved. I'm not just a girl going to the casino alone. And that was the only way I was willing to continue, given everything that's been happening behind the scenes. And I hope you guys understand, and I hope you understand why we didn't show him at first, because it was a good way to grow the channel with only me being shown. And I'm sorry, and we're going to be more transparent going forward. So yes, Victor and I are a couple. We've been together since, uh, you know, 2000-whatever, and uh, we love each other, and we both enjoy gambling. And uh, this channel was Victor's idea, but now it's a 50-50 venture, and we both enjoy it, and... uh, and then you can say all the nice things about Victor you want and that he's not controlling you, blah, 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 which may actually be true. And then that's that. And you know what the audience is going to say? Okay, thanks for being honest. May you lose some donations that you got before from guys with a crush on you? Yes. But the drama will be over. And there's no point to continue covering this up because the simps, the guys with a crush on you, are going to realize the truth anyway. So why not just be honest about it? Because it's not that bad. It's all like fairly reasonable. I don't want to sound like I'm saying that you guys committed some horrible deception or did anything really unreasonable. I'm just saying there was some deception. And that you have to understand first and foremost, if you're going to do a YouTube channel, especially one with 188,000 subscribers, that anything you present out there and anyone you present out there becomes part of a story and that you need to at least give basic information or otherwise the viewers feel cheated. You don't have to tell them every intimate detail, but you can't say this is only a gambling channel. I'm not saying if we're dating or not. That's just treating your viewers like assholes. And people don't like that. I can tell you as someone who does a show for many hours a week for now 10 years this show and several years another show before this one that people listen to me and even if I've never spoken to them before feel like they have sort of a relationship with me in that they've learned a lot about me and my life and my personality and I don't tell everybody everything there's things I keep to myself obviously for my private life But I'm aware of the fact that you listen to me this many hours a week, you kind of get to know me in some way. And I always have to keep that in mind when I'm talking to you guys. And anything that's relevant to the show, I I think you guys should know, or at least know the basics of. And I don't begrudge anyone for wanting to know things that are part of the show. That's why I'll even follow up on personal stories. Like when I was telling my story about the ER and the fail there, and I said, I'll keep you guys updated with what happens. Not that I owe you guys any update on the hospital story, but since I brought it up on the show, I want you guys to hear how it plays out. There hasn't been an update lately, but when there is, I want you guys to know because it's a story I brought out here. Not because you're entitled to know, because I feel you should know if I made it part of the show. So Slot Lady and Victor, you two need to Take that lesson. Take it from me. I'm older than both of you. And take this lesson from me. I'm not trying to be condescending here. But you've either got to have a YouTube channel 
and give some basics to those who follow you, or don't have a YouTube channel and live a completely private life. Either option is totally fine, but you can't have both. We will see where the next videos go here. We'll see if uh, Easy Life responds, which he claims he will, and we'll see if she responds back to his response. She claims she won't, but who knows. But I don't think this channel can uh, continue this way if they continue this whole facade or continue this whole thing about uh, it's none of anyone's business. I wouldn't say it's a facade. It's more of this this weird, we're not telling you even though everybody already knows. It's just so strange. Okay, so I hope you guys enjoyed this little foray into the slot community. And if you hated it, then don't worry. This is not going to be a big feature on this show. But I figured this one kind of weird enough to be worth talking about. But I did keep it to towards the end of the show. So those that don't like it at least uh, didn't have to have this right in the middle. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. I see we didn't lose live listenership during that segment, so maybe it wasn't that bad. I always get a little bit nervous when I do a new type of segment here that isn't about poker, because then I wonder if people are going to enjoy it, but we'll see. You can give me your comments. Text me, 775-372-8355. Did you like the Slot Lady segment? Was this something you found boring? Was it kind of in the middle? Let me know. Let's go back to talking about poker. This is a story that should have been covered last week, but I just absolutely forgot to include it in the agenda, but just as well because we had a very long show last week, though we have a probably even longer show this week. So I guess either way, it's going to be part of a long show. But this is about Fedor Holtz and an allegation that he made, which quickly turned into a shit show. Not for Fedor. He, he looked fine here, but... Someone who was defending these allegations ended up looking pretty bad. You got to watch out on social media that you have to understand people aren't stupid. Similar to the slot lady thing. If people have kind of figured out that something's going on, you, you can't come onto social media and treat everyone like idiots. You have to assume there's a lot of intelligent people observing the situation and, and telling them bullshit is just going to get them angrier. So if your only play is to tell them bullshit, then just say nothing. That's advice you really need to take to the bank. Anyway, Fedor Hulse, of course, a very, very talented and successful young poker, pro, young poker pro from Germany. He brought this up on Christmas Day, and he is at Crown Up Guy on Twitter, exactly as it sounds, at Crown Up Guy. He wrote, a pretty obvious collusion spot, including Sage Star, which is a player on this site on a big $1,000 final table with his friend Saluan. They're part of a Brazilian high stakes group that work together called Nine Tails. Cheating sucks. I think every high stakes regular that doesn't cheat should work together to bring up similar situations. Well, I agree. Provided you're not directly accusing someone of cheating without uh, ample evidence, I do feel that when something looks very suspicious in poker, that regulars in the game should call it out instead of just keeping quiet. The more cheating is called out, the less it will happen. So good for Fedor for bringing this out, and I'll explain in a second what he's talking about here. 
he posted a screenshot from an online poker site. And again, this was a $1,000 event. And it was the final table with four people left. And two of the people at the table were part of the same high-stakes poker group that calls themselves Nine Tails. And they're based out of Brazil. So what happened here was that one of the two Brazilians open-raised to two big blinds, which is a min-raise. Basically, he's raising to exactly double what the big blind is with ace-jack offsuit. Then the other Brazilian at the table who was on the button went all in for 7.1 big blinds and then the first Brazilian folded. The other two people were never in the hand because uh, they both folded pre-flop. So the very first one to act under the gun went... uh, to a min-raise of uh, two big blinds with ace-jack, and then fold, and then the other Brazilian at the table on the button went all in for 7.1 big blinds. So the significant thing about this was that the guy who went all in had ace-nine, which obviously was crushed by ace-jack. Now, you may say, okay, well, if they weren't cheating, how could the guy with ace-jack know that? So like this, um, what, what's wrong with this, you may ask? What's wrong with this has to do with the situation they were in regarding their chip stacks and the fact that this was a four-handed final table. So first of all, in a four-handed poker game, people raising are raising with a lot lesser holdings often than they are in a full ring game because the fewer people that are getting cards, the fewer big hands that tend to be dealt. That's just the law of averages. So as a result, you have to make more loose re-raises and loose calls in a shorthanded game than in a full ring game. This is true in poker throughout. So we have the guy with the min-raise of the ace-jack who is the chip leader, and then the short stack with 7.1 big blinds who goes all in. So you've opened with ace-jack, and then the short stack goes over the top for another 5.1 big blinds, and everybody else has folded. So you can either call 5.1 big blinds, and then it just runs out, and whoever wins, wins. There's no more money to put in, or you can fold. And before you call those remaining 5.1 big blinds, there's already 5.5 big blinds in the pot, because remember, there's two big blinds that you've already put in. And there's the uh, two big blinds that the button put in to match your bet before raising the one, the five and a half. So that's already four. And then the small and big blind uh, are another one and a half. So that's five and a half big blinds already in the pot. And you just have to add another 5.1 and then that would create a pot of about a uh, little under 16 big blinds total. You've just got to put 5.1 big blinds in to run it out. And there's no way you'd have to put another penny in beyond that because it's only you and the other player who's all in. So for those of you that are poker amateurs, this is referred to as pot odds. 
the amount you have to put into the pot in order to win in order to go for the entire pot what you're putting in versus what's already there so you're getting pretty good pot odds there putting in 5.1 big blinds to win another 11 point something big blinds if you win the hand so that's already pretty good pot odds but there's more than that remember this is a four-handed final table you're the chip leader and the guy who just went all in is a short stack if he loses the hand he's out and you don't have to deal with him anymore and now everybody's guaranteed payout has just gone up that no matter how unlucky you get from this point even if you lose every single hand you can't finish worse than third whereas with this guy in the hand you could finish fourth so knocking someone out here has value and you have to think about that too it's not just about how many chips you have and what you think his holdings are it's the value of knocking him out that increases your equity at the table because once the fourth place finisher is out then the money you could expect to make from this final table even with an average stack has gone way up so that's another consideration that you don't have earlier in the tournament if there's a thousand people in the tournament and you're only 20 percent through the field if there's 800 left knocking out an additional player means nothing but uh, at a four-handed final table, yeah, you want to get this guy out. So all you have to do is call 5.1 big blinds into a pot that was 5.5 big blinds before the re-raise and is going to be a total pot after your five 5.1 you put in of over 16. Or I guess over 15, near 16. So it's an obvious call, and also ace-jack is not a trash hand. Ace-jack isn't super premium, but this is a four-handed table, and there's a lot of hands that would come over the top on ace-jack that are either racing with ace-jack, where it's essentially 50-50, even something as good as pocket hands, or where you're beating them, like this ace-nine. So it's not like it's a guarantee that you're going to be way behind. In fact, there's many chance, many cases where you won't be. Remember, it's only four-handed, and this guy's short and kind of desperate, and he knows you may not be racing with a great hand. So you have to consider all that. And and a good poker pro will always know this. This is not really advanced stuff I'm saying. In fact, you probably already know a lot of this if you've played some poker tournaments. So ace-jack is really only in big trouble against ace-queen, ace-king, jacks, queens, kings, or aces. Any other hand, which could be a lot of them that would re-raise him here all in here, you have a decent shot to beat, either something around 50-50 or you're ahead of them by a good deal. So that's why you don't fold ace-jack here. You never fold ace-jack here unless you're a horrible player. So Fedor Hulse is saying they probably weren't aware that it was being live-streamed with the cards up. He didn't. He's saying that these uh, Brazilians didn't know that this was one of the tables that was actually being shown on a live-stream on a delay where you could see what everybody was doing. So they thought this would fly under the radar and nobody would notice what they're pulling here. Remember, these are two guys in the same high stakes group. Why would they do this? Well, this guy who was the chip leader, by the way, if he lost that hand, he would still be the uh, second chip leader out of the four. So it's not even like he'd be devastated. It's not like he has to call off a ton of chips and risk his tournament life. This is He'd still be number two, even if the worst thing happened and he called and lost. So why would they do this? Well, if these guys are on the same team and sharing the bankroll, then it's most advantageous for the chip leader 
to transfer chips to the short stack to where the short stack has a better chance to win the tournament. Ideally, they would finish number one and two. And it's hard to finish one and two if one of the guys is short stack. You're going to have the best chance of finishing one and two if both of you have chips. So Fedor Holtz, who obviously is no slouch in poker, a very, very good tournament player. Fedor Holtz was saying this is very obvious that these Brazilian guys were colluding and that they knew what each other had. And this was orchestrated where one raises, the other re-raises, and the first guy folds so they could even their chips more. It was basically chip dumping at the final table. This was bad enough, but then again, these are two Brazilian guys who presumably aren't very active on Twitter, may not even speak English. But enter Patrick Howard. Now, does Patrick Howard sound like a Brazilian name to you? I don't think so. Well, I'm not exactly sure how he got involved with these guys, but he has some kind of association with these Brazilians. And he popped in and decided to comment on this on Twitter, and he didn't realize how stupid he'd look. So Patrick Howard is at Mobius Poker on Twitter. That's M-O-B-I-U-S Poker, at Mobius Poker on Twitter. And I hadn't heard of him before this, but boy, did he look bad after this thread that he jumped into. He's listed as data nerd ruining poker. (laughs) It says he's a lead strategy developer at Poker Detox. And uh, he actually has a blog on runatonce.com, of all things. I'm not sure why. He's from Wisconsin, it says. Now, here's something interesting. He has... 2662 followers, which isn't huge. It's even less than me, not by a lot, but he has fewer followers than I have. And he's following 182 people. That's not a lot. So it's not like he's following everyone in poker or following everyone who follows him. Well, interestingly enough, guess who he is following among these 182 people? That would be one Todd Dandruff Wittellis. Not sure why. I don't believe I've ever had any interaction with him, but he is following me. So maybe he listens to this show. If you are listening to this show, Patrick Howard, I would love to talk to you about this because this doesn't make a lot of sense to me. This is what he wrote. This is a thread regarding the recent accusations against Nine Tails. Remember, that's the name of that uh, Brazilian high stakes group. I have a coaching for profits agreement with this group, so this accusation directly affects my business. Now, keep in mind, it's not like anyone said Patrick Howard's at fault here. No one even knew about this. So it's weird that he injects himself because it's not like he was under attack and had to defend himself. He said, because this group is being attacked, this is affecting my business, so I got to stick up for them, which is already kind of weird. He goes on to say, simply put, there's not enough evidence to make these accusations. Well, I disagree. (laughs) This seems like a lot of evidence that good players are chip dumping. He said, the first rule of accusing someone of cheating is that in absence of a smoking gun, you never, ever make an accusation based upon a single instance of suspicious play. Yes, you can. Of course you can. It depends how bad the play is. If it's something really marginal, then yeah, you can't do it. But if there's something that just looks like it makes no sense, something that very good players would never do, 
then, yeah, you can make an allegation based upon that single instance. I'll give you an extreme example. Let's say I raised to uh, 9000 and let's say the next guy who happens to be a good friend of mine goes all in for his final 9500 and then folds back to me and then I fold for the final 500 Would you think that is me soft-playing my friend and chip-dumping to him? Of course. Would there be any doubt in your mind that that's what was going on there? No, there wouldn't. You you would know 100% that I'm not dumb enough to fold for just 500 more, no matter what hand I have. So had I done that, especially live, online you could say I misclicked, but live, uh, you would say there's no chance. Even online, you'd probably say there's no chance. This was online, by the way, we're talking about, but let's face it, this was not a misclick. He said, far worse plays have been made by good pros at final tables. Here's one example. And guess what he posted? A link to that World Series hand between Ryan Lang and Jungle Man, where Ryan Lang made a really dumb fold that could have busted Jungle Man. I mean, can you believe this? Why is he picking on Ryan Lang here? Ryan Lang is a nice guy. He handled this very graciously. He made a terrible play here. He admits he made a terrible play. There was nothing shady about it. He just made a very dumb play. Patrick Howard wasn't trying to say it was shady. He was trying to say, hey, look, Ryan Lang is a good player. And look at this awful play he made at the 50K Poker Players Championship. Well, yes, he made an awful play at the 50K Poker Players Championship, but it was different. First of all, Ryan Ling and Jungle Man are not known to be friends. So it's not like anyone thought this was on purpose to save Jungle Man at that uh, final table. This was just a dumb play made by Ryan Ling, and he was very gracious about it, and he admitted right away it was a terrible play, and he had a good attitude about it. And he had a good attitude about the criticism he was receiving. And we talked about it before on the show. But why is Patrick Howard rubbing these salts into Ryan Lang's wound from that? He has nothing to do with this. He wasn't even commenting on this situation. So wh- why are you dragging him into it? Wh- well, look, 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 other pros make dumb plays. Look at this dumb guy. <laughs> like, you don't do that. Ryan Lang doesn't deserve this. I know what he's trying to say. Hey, look. Very good players make mistakes all the time, but that was different. The Ryan Lang and Jungle Man are not friends. These two Brazilians are on the same team, so it's very different. He goes on to say, one bad fold does not mean two players are colluding. The fact that these players are teammates does not mean they're incapable of making mistakes against one another. Yeah, but it makes it a lot more likely. Also, the racist accusations in the comments below... Fedor's tweets are abhorrent and shouldn't be tolerated by anyone. I, I didn't see any racist tweets. I, I just, I, I seem to see that they're saying, hey, these are both Brazilians on the same team. That's not racist. That's just common sense. It's not about them being a different race. It's about them being from the same country and on the same team. And the chance of them colluding is a lot higher than two randoms. The only grounded way to pursue this case is to present more evidence in the form of other suspicious hands between the two players. Nine Tails has already said they will cooperate with any further investigation into the final table in question. 
What do you mean they'll cooperate? An investigation can be done by the poker site, and they can pull up all the hand histories. Or since it's being live-streamed, anyone could pull up that stream and pull them up. So, oh, we're going to cooperate. As opposed to what? How will they not cooperate? Go delete the stream of the final table and delete the hand histories from the poker site? What, what does it mean they're going to cooperate? How? In the meantime, Fedora Holtz, please delete these tweets and issue an apology In any other industry, this would be grounds for a defamation suit. (laughs) Come on. Come on. Well, this didn't go over very well with the poker community. It did not. Let's look at what he did. He needled Ryan Lang, a nice guy who has a lot of respect from poker peers. And Lang had nothing to do with this. He didn't make the allegation. He didn't comment uh, comment on the allegations. He's just being kicked as, hey, look at this guy making a dumb play. Ha, ha, ha. See, it happens. Totally inappropriate. He threatened a defamation suit. I mean, can screen names from Brazil even sue for defamation? No names were mentioned. Screen names were mentioned, but no names were mentioned. So screen names from another country can sue in the U.S. for defamation? Or Wait, Holtz isn't even in in the U.S. either. He's in Germany. How would that work? He played the race card, and his whole explanation sucked. Patrick Leonard, who is uh, well-known in the poker community, at Pads Poker, P-A-D-S Poker, asked, what do you coach them? And then Patrick Howard said back, nothing pre-flop related. We started working together this month. (laughs) I like nothing pre-flop related. Because he didn't want his coaching business ruined. It's like, if this is what you're teaching, I I don't think I want to take a lesson from you. So he made sure that people don't think that they were learning pre-flop play for him. So then Patrick Leonard responded, didn't mean it in a condescending way, by the way. Sure, you're a great coach. A lot of history in cash games, etc. Most prolific multi-table tournament group hiring a cash game coach in coaching for profits deal instead of just hourly just sounded interesting. Very intriguing, he said. Now, he's being super sarcastic here. And then Patrick Howard apparently didn't get that and said, no worries, didn't take it that way. (laughs) I didn't want to take any undue credit for the group's results so far. Patrick Leonard was raising the point that this doesn't make any sense that a super prolific tournament group like this Nine Tails would hire a coach who is a cash game specialist to coach them. And instead of at least hiring him as a one-time coach, maybe to learn a few new things from him, they actually have a deal where he gets a percentage of their profits. So here they're doing so well, and they're crushing the multi-table tournament scene, and somehow he's getting a piece of their profits, even though he's only a cash game coach, and this is a very prolific, high-stakes, multi-table tournament group. So Patrick Leonard is saying this is very intriguing, and it sounded interesting, and Patrick Howard's like, yeah, well, don't don't worry, I didn't take it in a bad way. (laughs) He didn't get the sarcasm there, but that's a good point that Leonard sarcastically raised. What the hell is this deal here? How does this even make sense? How how does he figure into this? I don't even have an answer to this one. How does Patrick Howard from Wisconsin have any piece of this 
multi-table group from Brazil. Maybe he's been backing them the whole way. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Really weird. I don't believe that they needed his coaching services when he's a cash game player and they're already doing well at high-stakes multi-table tournaments. Scott Seaver, someone, I'll tell you, I've uh, gotten to like him better in the last year or so. I used to really not like this guy. I used to really just not care for him. And keep in mind, Scott Seaver, I didn't dislike because he had done anything to me and he didn't have any shady history in poker. He didn't cheat anyone. I just didn't like the guy's personality and attitude. And he just was off-putting to me. But I'll say I've kind of enjoyed his Twitter a lot more in the past year. And this one is an example of it. He he just responded with that meme of, of the guy putting on clown makeup. That's all. He just responded to Patrick Howard's whole rant with the clown makeup meme. Got 145 likes. Good answer, Scott. See, this is why I'm starting to like you better. I'm serious here. I never thought I'd say that. Scott Seaver used to really irritate me. But I've started to come to appreciate him. I'm almost hating myself for that, but I am. I've... There's been people, I won't name them, but some people that over the last year or two I used to like or think neutral of and uh, I think less of now. And then there's people who I've gotten to like better in the last year or two. And I'm not talking now about people I've known personally or even semi-personally. I'm talking about just people on Twitter I don't really know very well just from observing them. It's funny how opinions can change over time. Just observing relative strangers that you start to get a different impression. Sometimes better, sometimes worse. But yeah, Scott Seaver's improving on Twitter. I don't retract my past criticism. I stand by it all. But he's dropped some good tweets recently. So my analysis of this isn't too different than the remainder of the poker community, who is very, very critical of this play and of uh, Patrick Howard's explanation. The fold is highly suspicious. I can't imagine any good player doing this at a final table forehanded, given the stack sizes involved. Patrick Howard, whatever his role in this whole thing is, made a fool of himself in his explanation. And the outrage and the laughable legal threat were especially stupid. And of course, Patrick Leonard brought up a whole point, a good point, that it really doesn't make sense where Patrick Howard's connection is to this whole thing and why they would have hired him in the first place and given him a piece of their action. The whole thing doesn't smell right to me, but maybe Patrick Howard, who follows me, can explain this further. I'm willing to listen. just doesn't look good. Very few people, if any, responded positively to what Patrick Howard wrote I can't imagine this is going to do a lot for his coaching business. He describes himself as data nerd ruining poker. (laughs) I don't think the data shows that you should fold ace-jack offsuit for five more big blinds to an all-in. Unless you are colluding. If you're colluding, yeah, the data shows you should. I would think a data nerd would be one who would really know that's an awful fold. And he wasn't denying that was a bad fold, but 
his explanation about how it's probably innocent or you can't conclude if it's innocent or not is pretty lousy. And he admits he's not a neutral observer, which on one hand is good because he could have just commented on this without saying he's coaching them and people would have disagreed, but no one would have suspected that he has any connection to Brazilian poker pros who play MTTs, but I guess it's good he identified his connection, sort of, but that also kills any kind of uh, air of neutrality or credibility here when you're defending them, especially in something egregious like this. Haven't seen much since then. This happened a week ago, and it's been kind of quiet since Patrick Howard made a fool of himself like that, but if Mr. Howard would like to contact me and tell me his side beyond what he wrote on Twitter, I am willing to listen. Finally, before we go on to the coronavirus, this is going to be a long show. Finally, I want to talk a bit about what's going on with the Indian casinos in California and the endless battles regarding the future of gambling in California. Despite having about one-ninth of the U.S. population, California continues to lag behind other states with online gambling legalization and sports betting legalization. There is a big market for both, but they're not coming because there is a big dispute that has been ongoing for many years now regarding who should have a right to provide the games. Because everyone wants a piece of this lucrative pie, and no one can agree how that pie is going to be divided up. So as a result, nobody gets anything. Isn't that nice? But that's the way it's been, and that looks like it may be the way it stays for a while. This is stemming from a tribal sports betting initiative that might be on the ballot in California in September. And of course, anything that involves the expansion of gambling in California causes a battle between the Indian tribes, sometimes with each other, and always with the card rooms, because the card rooms, which are not Indian tribe run, talking about things like Commerce, The Bike, Hollywood Park, Bay 101, the card rooms in the state, especially the bigger ones, they want a piece of the action. They don't want the Indian tribes to get it all. And the Indian tribes, they don't want to give it up. They end up battling, and nobody gets anything. So there's a ballot initiative that can be printed in September and voted on in November. It's a ballot that will be for November 2022 in the November election, which should get some pretty good voter turnout because it's a midterm election. It's not an off-year, like an odd-year election. It is a midterm election ballot. And something that's going to be on there is a gambling expansion initiative. And this is one that is backed by uh, some of the Indian tribes. So two California card rooms have sued California Secretary of State Shirley Weber. And they're attempting to invalidate this initiative. And they claim it violates the state constitution and probably not in the way you think that they're claiming it. 
The two card rooms involved are Southern California's Hollywood Park, which was a big center of poker prior to the rise of commerce. So in the 90s, that was a very popular place to play if you wanted to play poker, especially Hold'em in the L.A. area. And then Commerce beat the pants off them. Now Commerce is declining and Hollywood Park is getting some of that back, though the bike is presently the biggest room. And then CalPAC, which isn't as big, but they're in uh, Rancho Cordova, which is in Northern California. So these two plaintiffs together are claiming that it's unconstitutional. Now, why do you think it's unconstitutional, this uh, sports betting initiative? Does it have to do with sports betting in the state being unconstitutional? No. They're claiming it's unconstitutional because what they're doing is voting on too many things at once in the same initiative, claiming that the California state constitution demands that only one issue at a time is there per ballot measure. So they're saying there's too many things being authorized by this ballot measure that are unrelated, and this violates the state constitution. The reason this is in the state constitution is to prevent a situation where a bunch of things are stuffed together, where something that the public supports that is major gets voted in, and a bunch of stuff the public normally wouldn't support is crammed in there that uh, people are not going to vote against because it's part of the major thing that they do support, and therefore things that would have otherwise been unpopular and voted down get through. So California made it to where every ballot measure has to be about one topic. And if it's about more than one topic, then it violates the state constitution and can't exist. So they are attempting to stop it for that reason. You may think it's a technicality, but they are attempting to get this off the ballot based upon that. They claim that this whole thing is the Indian tribe's attempts to exploit the popular demand for legal sports wagering by hitching two unpopular wish list measures to a sports wagering initiative. And I'll explain in a second what they mean by that. And the two casinos that are engaging this lawsuit are attempting to stop this initiative from appearing on the ballot, and this would have to be decided before September when the ballots will be printed. So this is the only initiative. There's actually four initiatives that are uh, attempting to make it on the ballot in 2022, but this is the only one that is on the ballot, but may not stay there if this lawsuit is successful. It is backed by the following Indian tribes, Agua Caliente, Barona, Pachanga, and Yocha Dehe. I don't know Yocha Dehe, and I didn't bother to look up which card room they have, but I, I know the others. Uh, these all have uh, casinos associated directly with their names, Agua Caliente, Barona, and Pachanga. You've probably heard of them especially if you're in California. And this initiative would legalize in-person sports, sports wagering on tribal land and at uh, various horse tracks. And 
This would allow tribes to offer roulette and dice games, which right now they can't. You can't play craps or roulette. You can play modified forms with cards, but it's totally different. Like, it's just not as fun. Right now, that's just not legal in California to play dice or to have a roulette wheel. And uh, this would authorize that. And also, it would allow private lawsuits to enforce other gambling laws. So Hollywood Park and this other uh, card room in, in Rancho Cordova, CalPAC, are claiming that there's too many things. That they figure people are going to vote in the sports betting because sports betting has gotten very popular in the U.S. and people in California want to bet on sports. And that they are forcing into that the roulette and dice games and this thing about the private lawsuits which otherwise wouldn't pass on their own. So these two card rooms are saying, no, 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 you can't do that. If you want to just vote on sports wagering, go ahead, but not the rest of this stuff. They claim that they're trying to take uh, action for three items on this ballot measure when it should be one. These two card rooms are demanding that the Supreme Court of California either command Secretary of State Weber to not put this on the ballot, to reverse the decision to put it on the ballot, request that she show a valid reason why it's sound and should stay on the ballot, or to uh, apply a uh, delay to this appearing on the ballot so uh, this could be decided later. So we'll see where this goes. I, I understand their point. I think they're right. I think they're right that this, this is putting too many things in one initiative that are just not directly related. Like what, what does uh, roulette and craps have to do with sports betting? They have nothing to do with it. They're, they're gambling, but that's it. They, they're two different things to authorize. And especially this whole thing about the, the private lawsuits being allowed to enforce gambling laws. It, it just seems like there's too many things that uh, have nothing to do with one another. Now, it's not like Hollywood Park is interested in enforcing the state constitution. They, they, they don't like this initiative. They don't want to see the tribal casinos get these casino games, and they don't want to see these tribal casinos get sports betting. So they're using this as a technicality to get this thrown out. But you know, the, the law is the law, and it does look like they're right. Now, you may wonder about online, because notice this initiative is not allowing online gambling of any kind. It's not allowing online poker. It's not allowing online sports betting, online casino games. So is that possible? Well, there's actually a second initiative that some other tribes want that will allow sports betting both in person on tribal land and online. This is be called the age-verified tribal online and in-person sports wagering and homelessness solutions act (laughs) and uh, that one is by the san manuel mission indians the rincon band of indians which of course operates harris rincon aka harris southern california which is a caesar's property the Federated Indians of Graton Rancheria, I don't know that one, and Wilton Rancheria, I don't know that one either, but I definitely know San Manuel and Rincon. 
Uh, so they were backing that long-named initiative, including this Homeless Solutions Act, which, you know, is just being thrown on there so people vote for it. But if either of these two pass, what would happen would be rooms like Hollywood Park would not be able to offer sports betting, the tribes would. And also that first initiative would add roulette and craps, which would be popular, and make them more attractive destinations to visit as opposed to card rooms like Hollywood Park. So basically, they don't want anything that gives more gambling options to the Indian tribes while they don't get a piece of the action. They figure it will further the gap of appeal between the Indian tribes and what they have. The Indian tribes can already do some things they can't. Indian tribes can offer normal blackjack, and they can't. The Indian tribes can offer video poker. They can't. They, meaning the card rooms like Hollywood Park. The Indian tribes can offer slot machines. They can't. So while there are some restrictions, there's no sports betting, there's no dice games, there's no roulette, there are still some some things that the Indian tribes can do and they can't. They don't want to further that gap. Now, there's even two other ballot measures that uh, could end up on the ballot, but at the moment haven't. There is one from the card rooms that is, of course, competing with these first two. The one from the card rooms, which again is not on the ballot yet, would allow California card rooms like Hollywood Park, Commerce, etc. to operate regular casino games. So this would finally allow them to offer what the Indian tribes are offering and also allow them to offer sports betting in person only. So, of course, they prefer this over the others because they get a piece of it. Now, what about the Indian tribes? Could they offer sports betting? Yes. Interestingly enough, the one that is backed by Hollywood Park and this other one in Rancho Cordova actually does cut tribes into the sports betting market. They just want any kind of existing licensed casino or card room in California to be able to offer in-person sports betting, period. So they're saying open up sports betting to everybody, not just these tribes, and allow us to offer what the Indian tribes offer. So they're, they're trying to say this should be even. We should be able to do what they do. We don't want more than them, but we want equality. And then the fourth initiative is actually from FanDuel and DraftKings, and would allow in-person sports betting at tribal casinos. And guess who would actually be providing the services? Yep, FanDuel and DraftKings. And of course, this would also cut out the card rooms. Which one do I think is most fair? Which one do I think deserves support? And I'm not saying selfishly. Selfishly, I'd like something that permits online betting. Putting that aside... Which one do I think is the right one to vote for? If, if I, I don't think all four of them are going to be on there. Maybe none will be on there. But if I had to choose one, which do I think is the most fair? I actually think it's the one from the card rooms. Indian gaming is a big scam. It's not accomplishing what it was supposed to accomplish, which was alleviate poverty among the Indian tribes. What it has mainly done is gotten a small percentage of people in these tribes very rich and the rest stay poor. 
So this really hasn't done what has been attempted. There's also no consumer protections, which there still wouldn't be. But uh, they screw people all the time. You have no rights. Everything is decided by the tribe. They can detain you and jail you if they want, and you have very little power to stop it. And they also have an unfair advantage. They have an unfair competitive advantage to where the card rooms in the state cannot offer the games they do, which just isn't right. I don't mind the tribes being able to offer casino games, but so should the legalized card rooms be able to do it. And at the moment, they can't. You can't have real blackjack at Hollywood Park. You can't have slot machines or video poker at Hollywood Park. It's not fair. And you can't even say, well, we have to give the Indian tribes a leg up because of some bad treatment they've gotten in the past, which has caused some of the poverty we see today, because it isn't helping the tribes very much. It's helping a few people in those tribes be very rich. And that was not what was intended. Furthermore, a lot of this has been used to allow big companies to expand into markets that really shouldn't be there. Let's look at Harris Rincon. They're a great example. Why is there a Harris Rincon, which is now called Harris Resort Southern California? That's an Indian tribe. Why is Harris there? Why is this a Caesar's property? I was happy it was there because it, it gave me closer access to Caesar's properties to run up uh, tier credits. But let's think about it practically. Why, why should that be something that Caesars can have, whereas the California card rooms can't. Now, yeah, it's technically owned by the Indian tribe, but Caesars gets a huge benefit out of this, and Caesars has nothing to do with Indian tribes. They have absolutely nothing to do with Indian tribes. They're not Indian tribe owned. There's no tribal connection to Caesars. They've just made a partnership, and they got an advantage in the California market that they don't deserve to have, even if they don't own it. That's another problem, is that it turns into these managerial partnerships which benefit large companies that have nothing to do with Indian tribes. And when these companies benefit, then the competition suffers when the competition can't offer the games that these Indian tribes can. So the whole thing is very unfair. A lot of it's very arbitrary. The whole tribal situation screws the customer very often. The customer has no rights. That needs to be fixed too. This needs to be torn down. I feel everybody should have a chance. So what's going to happen here? I don't know. I don't know if this is going to be stopped. Now, it'll be interesting if this doesn't stop and this initiative does make the ballot. I think there's a good chance it's going to pass in November. Because there's such an appetite for sports wagering that I think this is going to win. And then at the same time, the tribes are going to be able to offer roulette and dice games and grow even more. And I don't really know this whole thing about the private lawsuits to enforce gambling laws. I'd kind of like to know about it, but the article I found about this didn't really describe that. But that, that could be bad, too. The roulette and dice isn't bad. It just furthers the gap between the card rooms and, and the Indian tribe casinos. But I will say if it gets on the ballot, it probably passes. And that might change some of the face of California gambling. 
it still won't help any online situation, but it might already get the ball rolling to f- bring online gambling to California in the nearer future than if it's not on the ballot. With that said, I'm so irritated by Indian gaming, I'm not even rooting for it. I, I'd rather we wait a little bit more and have this done right and less control is in the hands of the tribes. Okay, so finally I want to talk about Omicron again. We talked about it last week, how Omicron was becoming a dominant variant in the U.S. And now it is a very, very dominant variant in the U.S. And we are watching it rip through the U.S. at record infection levels with a lot of breakthrough cases. That's a fact. It was projected that this would happen by around New Year's Day, but it happened a lot earlier than we thought it would. It was believed that it would become a dominant variant in late December, early January, not that it would become a dominant variant in mid-December, as it actually did. By December 17th, it was already found that about three-quarters of new cases were Omicron, and that Omicron was quickly dominating Delta. Now, we talked about that last week, but of course, it's gotten worse since then, or worse in the way that Omicron has spread more, which we'll discuss in a second whether that's actually bad. But it is far more contagious than Delta or any other coronavirus variant that we've had. And we've seen record case numbers. Now, it's hard to tell by looking on worldometers, which keeps track of this thing, because there's always a weekend lag. What happens is that on weekends, a lot of governments and hospitals don't report things. They don't report deaths. They don't record report cases. And then you see that trickling in on Monday and Tuesday. So sometimes Monday and Tuesday will look horrible. And the weekend right before the Monday and Tuesday looks like it's improving. And then you go, what the hell? I, I, what's going on here? So in reality, you have to kind of average them out to get the true numbers. But it's tremendously uh, different than it was before Omicron. And Omicron is really infecting people pretty fast in the U.S. And that's become by far the dominant variant. It is not that likely that you're going to get anything but Omicron at this point if you're going to catch COVID. What I have been seeing looking at the data over the past week and ignoring these weekend lags is that we're seeing 400-something thousand, 500,000 new cases per day verified in the U.S., but hold on here. That's verified cases. There is a big testing shortage right now because, number one, it is spreading so quickly and the testing wasn't available. And this includes both the rapid tests you can buy in the store and the testing you can do at a site. There just isn't the capacity. Biden messed up back in October. He declined to increase production of these at-home tests. Now, he didn't know about Omicron yet. Nobody did, but uh, it wasn't hard to picture that something like this could happen, that a much more contagious variant could show up, since Delta was significantly more contagious than the original COVID. So 
we had original COVID, then none of the other variants really took over until Delta, then that was more contagious, so it dominated the original COVID and original COVID disappeared. And now Omicron is dominating Delta in the same fashion. Very soon there will be no more Delta. It's pretty much getting close to already being there. So if you're going to get COVID, it probably is going to be Omicron. If you know somebody who already has COVID, that's a different story. There are people who've had COVID for you know, a week that caught Delta a week ago or two weeks ago. But as far as new cases, you, get, you catch COVID in 2022, at least January 2022, it's probably going to be Omicron. It's almost surely going to be Omicron. So they're verifying about 500,000 new cases a day, but there's a lot of people who can't get tested or just don't want to get tested. People who either figure they can't get a test at this point or don't want to stand on these really long lines at these testing sites. There's been pictures of these testing sites with hours-long lines where you got to wait to get tested. And then the other downside is that if you don't have it, then you might catch it there online waiting to be tested because who is typically going for a COVID test? Usually people who think they have COVID. So that's a place you don't want to hang out very much if you want to avoid COVID. So there've got to be a lot of people who have Omicron and either are dismissing it as a cold, since in a lot of people it presents like a cold, or are asymptomatic, or think they probably have it, but just aren't going to go through the hassle of getting a test. In fact, some people don't feel well enough to stand outside in the cold and and wait to get tested. Especially because if you're testing positive, you have the same instructions as if you don't get tested. And that is just stay away from people and wait it out. It's not like there's some treatment you could get. So a lot of people just are choosing not to get tested. So it could be a lot worse than what we were believing we're seeing of the 500,000 cases a day. But that's still way more than we ever had before, even at the worst point last year. Remember when all those people were dying in January of 2021? Remember we were getting these death rates of uh, 3,000-something a day dying of COVID, and the cases were going up everywhere, and it was a disaster? And the only reason we put a halt to a lot of that was that people started getting vaccinated. That's when the vaccines showed up, and that slowed everything down. And then COVID started to decline rapidly. Never came close to disappearing, but the vaccines did make a very big dent in it. This is before Delta. This is original COVID, but this was a year ago I'm talking about. We have far higher new case numbers now than what we had during the worst point prior to now, which was about a year ago. So does this mean doom and gloom? Does this mean that the hospitals will become overwhelmed? That people are going to die at an even higher rate? Might, be, might we be looking at 5,000, 10,000, even 20,000 people dying per day from Omicron? No. No. I think you know why. Because Omicron is far less serious. Omicron, as we mentioned earlier in the show might be a hybrid between Delta and a common cold. There's a number of theories out there of how Omicron mutated so much compared to the other variants. It did a lot of bizarre things. 
and it mutated in a way that is very unusual for any virus like this to where there's a belief that something weird happened there's even a theory that it jumped to an animal mutated in the animal and jumped back to a human but i still like the theory that it mutated with a common cold it merged with a common cold in somebody's body who had both viruses at the same time and then created this super contagious hybrid virus which then rapidly spread everywhere and now is spreading throughout the entire world and is becoming the dominant variant and is going to kill off all the other variants. And basically, COVID as we know it will become Omicron and pretty much has become Omicron. And as I mentioned last week, this could be a tremendous game changer. If this did merge with a common cold in someone's body, that one person might have changed the world. I'm not exaggerating. They may have changed the entire trajectory of this virus because it didn't have to mutate to become a cold. It could have never mutated to become a cold. But if it really did, if it really has merged with a cold and now is headed to eventually be a cold, then that will be the end of COVID. I'm not saying we're there yet. I'm saying that this could be a major, major step to the end of COVID. This could be something that's in the history books one day, that the big turning point in the fight against COVID was not the vaccine, not the masking, not the social distancing, but it merging with a common cold. And that the next stop, the next mutation might actually be a common cold. Or even if it's not, maybe a lesser version of what right now is a very bad cold for a lot of people. Does that mean that almost nobody's going to die from it? Because almost nobody dies from common colds. People die from the flu, but common colds kill very few people. Even uh, very old people tend to not die from common colds. I don't think we're going to be that fortunate with Omicron. It's hard to tell right now because while people are dying every day, not at the numbers they were before, the deaths are uh, significantly less than they were during Delta, especially per case. And this is now a combination of people in the hospital who had Delta and Omicron. So as the Delta ones fall off, they either recover or pass away and it's all Omicron people left in the hospital, then we may see the numbers really decline. I wouldn't be surprised if the numbers get really low compared to what we had before. And I think if that happens, that's going to really start to change people's opinion of COVID. Because right now, let's look at uh, two days ago. It showed uh, in the U.S. 450,000 new cases in the U.S. and 716 deaths. Well, okay, 716 deaths isn't nothing. It's not like the 3,000-something that was happening last year, but it, it's not something to laugh at. It's not something to say, okay, it's over. 716 is, is a lot of people to die in one day from this virus. So if it stays at like 716, well, that's better than 3,000 by a factor of four, it, it, you're not going to say, well, it's pretty much over. 
But if this 716 drops way, way down once the Delta cases are gone, because remember, some of these Delta people have been holding on for weeks, extremely sick on ventilators, like just really on the verge of death, most of them being very old. And as these resolve one way or the other, either in uh, the unfortunate death of these people or recovery, then we're only going to be looking at Omicron. And if those numbers drop way lower, like under 100 per day, People are going to start looking at this and go, wait a minute, the, the death rate is so much lower, even with way, 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 way more cases than before. So the chance of the average person dying from it, even the average old person dying from it, is tremendously lower than it was before. And it will start to fade as a major cause of death, even for elderly people. Because right now it is a major cause of death for elderly people. It's right up there with the other major causes like uh, cancer and heart disease and stroke. In fact, it's, it's ahead of some of them. And if it falls to where it's not anymore, and if it also falls to where it's not in one of the top three causes of death for middle-aged people, as it is right now, then we're going to look at it and say, okay, some people are dying from this, but look, the flu, we have people die in every year in a bad flu season 80,000 people die and, and nobody panics you hear about it on the news but it, it doesn't cause any changes in society we just had a bad flu season in the 1819 year were you that worried was this big news no but 80,000 people died so if this drops under flu numbers and stays there then it'll take some getting used to but it will really start to change the narrative about COVID and it will really start to, there'll start to be less and less justification for all of these measures to prevent it. Or at least there should be. You never know what the government's going to do. And I'm not just saying the U.S. government. I mean, all governments. Because a lot of governments are actually handling this with more restrictions than the U.S. So I think a lot of governments need to revisit this. You can't treat 2022 COVID like we treated 2020 COVID. If it's a different version of the virus, if it's causing a different level of devastation, which is lower, then we have to treat it for what it is presently, not what it once was. And that's important. I said this last week too. So watch that death level closely over the next few weeks. Because once the Delta cases fall off and it becomes all Omicron, if it goes way down, then that really would push us away from having to keep all these restrictions. And I'll tell you some good news. You may have already heard it. There has been a fear that has been pushed by the media that yes, while they acknowledge that Omicron is less severe, typically, than Delta was, that with so many more cases happening at once, since it's so contagious, and since it breaks through the vaccines, especially if you haven't had your shot in a while, if it has worn off, then we're going to see so many cases that even with a much lower rate of severe disease, the sheer number of cases will still be very high and will overwhelm hospitals 
and hospitals won't have room for patients with severe disease. And that's what all the current panic is based on. It has been basically conceded, even by the panicky media, that Omicron is less dangerous than Delta on a case-by-case basis. I don't really see anyone trying to say, well, we think it may be worse. This may be a worse one. They're not even saying it's the same. It's generally being acknowledged. Some are trying to hide that a little bit by saying, well, we can't be sure. We're still studying it. No, no, we can be pretty sure at this point. We, we have enough data at this point, especially from countries that had it before we did, that Omicron is less severe. In fact, it seems like a good deal less severe. It seems to be a lot more cold-like than COVID-like. So that is kind of being acknowledged now. But the fear is, because it's so much more contagious, that the sheer number of people needing to be hospitalized at once will be something we can't handle. But wait! What we're seeing is not showing that. Even with these big spikes, we are not seeing hospitalizations increase. In fact, we're seeing it about flat. And this is including people who are hospitalized from Delta. Even with them in the hospital, we are seeing hospitalizations overall about flat, despite way, way more new cases. And we've had enough time, because remember on December 17th, which is more than two weeks ago, we had three quarters of the new cases being Omicron. So you can't even say, well, it just started. So of course people aren't hospitalized yet, but wait another week, it's going to be a disaster. No, we've waited now two weeks and we're not seeing the hospitals being overwhelmed. All these new cases, we're not seeing the hospitals overwhelmed. We're seeing a ton of cases. You probably know a lot of people with Omicron. There's no doubt it is super contagious. There's no doubt that if you have dodged getting COVID so far, that there's a good chance your luck is going to end unless you've been boosted and you've been boosted fairly recently. And even then it might break through. But if you have not had a booster shot or at the very least your second shot of the vaccine within less than three months ago, then there's a good chance that it is going to bust through. Almost as good of a chance probably than if you weren't vaccinated at all though you'll probably get a lesser version of it. So there is still value you're going to be gaining from that vaccine you got. There's a very good chance you're going to get it. And you can't look at it and say, well, look, I've done well up till now. I haven't had, I, I've been out doing things now for the last two years. I haven't got it. Yeah, you probably will. In fact, there's people listening to this show right now that I know personally that have it presently. I feel bad for them. I'm not making light of this, but they uh, they dodged it for two years and they were uh, going out and doing things and uh, it got them like it's getting so many people around the world. So in that way, it's gotten worse, way, way more likely you're going to catch COVID no matter what your situation. If you're boosted, way more likely than before. If you're not boosted, way, way more likely than before. And if you're unvaccinated, even more likely than before that you're going to catch COVID. But 
the chance it's going to be severe enough to hospitalize you or cause permanent damage is a lot lower. The chance it's going to kill you is a lot lower, no matter what age group you're in. So that's the good news here. Does it mean it's just going to be like a cold? You're just going to have the sniffles like uh, a mild cold? No, I'm not saying that. People I know that have gotten Omicron, some have had symptoms that are really crappy. Not bad enough to go to the hospital, but very unpleasant. They feel very sick. They can't stand it. So it looks like it's not going to be dangerous, but it looks like it's very unpleasant. So don't just shrug it off and say it's, it's going to be a minor cold. I'll blow my nose every 20 minutes and no big deal. And it's not just like that. It's possible. In fact, it's possible you'll get it and be asymptomatic. But if you get Omicron, it's probably at least going to feel like a bad cold. I saw a description that if you get Omicron and you're recently boosted, then it'll probably be something like a medium to bad cold. If you're vaccinated but not boosted, it'll range between a bad cold and a really, really, really bad cold. And if you're unvaccinated, it will range between a bad cold and something that will hospitalize you. So the vaccine, as I said, it it does provide some value here, but it's not going to protect you the same way it did before from symptomatic disease. It's not known why it is so contagious. It's not even known for sure if the old discovery that surfaces weren't transmitting it is still correct. It may have mutated so much. It may have become so cold-like. It may be transmitting the same way a cold is. I talked about that that last week. That's my theory that might be happening. I'm not saying it is, but I'm, I'm saying you can't take for granted that some of the transmission may be the same way colds transmit because if it has merged, then that would make sense. So keep that in mind. I'm not saying you have to constantly sanitize everything but I'm saying it's not as useless as it used to be. Before it was just performative. Now it actually may have some benefit. But really, if you go out into crowds, especially indoors, uh, there's a very good chance you're going to get it soon. And when I say soon, I mean like within weeks. This also might apply to schools. It's very possible when kids go back to school in uh, this upcoming week, because they've been in a uh, Christmas break, the entire country. So starting Monday, everybody's going back to school and it's very possible it's going to rip through the schools. I was saying before that kids weren't transmitting, but number one, kids are receiving. So the teachers could easily be transmitting it to the kids, even if the kids aren't transmitting. And number two, the kids could be transmitting this one. This is one of these things where everything you knew about COVID before, you you got to throw a lot of it out the window. And that kind of sucks because you got used to certain things And I was telling you certain things before, and now I'm saying forget a lot of this stuff I said before. So it can't transmit on surfaces or through food and drink. I said that before. Now I'm not so sure. I'm sure about the previous variants. I'm saying this one I'm not sure. Or kids aren't transmitting it. Now I'm not sure. Or if you're outdoors that you're probably not going to get it. Well, it's definitely way more dangerous indoors, but 
now I'm not sure how safe outdoors is from getting COVID if you're in a big crowd. Or that you have to be somewhere usually for at least 15 minutes indoors with someone who has COVID to probably catch it, that it's not that likely to get it if you're walking in somewhere for a minute, unless someone like breathes right in your face. And that is also something that could easily not be true anymore. There is some reason this is way, 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 way more contagious than before. And it's not really understood. So leave your mind open about that. What I have been doing, remember I was boosted in mid-October, so it's not super recent, but it's also not old enough to have degraded that badly. I probably have less protection than I did like in mid-November, but I have more protection than I will probably like two months and three months from now. But would I be surprised if it broke through? No, I would not be. Do I think I have a better chance to prevent a breakthrough than someone who only had two shots? Yes, I think I have a much better chance. Do I think I might get this? Yes. Do I think I will get this? Not necessarily. It's kind of, I, I wouldn't be able to guess the percentage chance of that, but I'm not putting myself in positions which are that dangerous. So I'm not going to crowded indoor spaces anymore, even semi-crowded indoor spaces. I will go to the supermarket. I will go to friends' houses. I will go to relatives' houses. I even went to a home poker game on Thursday. But that's because at the home poker game, it's you know, six other guys there, seven other guys there. It's, that's not the same as being in a room with 500 other people. So yeah, if, if one of these seven other guys has Omicron, then I'm probably fucked. <laughs> I'm probably going to catch it unless the booster I got stops it. But I wouldn't be shocked if I came down with COVID symptoms. I wouldn't be shocked if Ben caught COVID and then brought it home and I got it and Ben's mom got it from him. I could easily see that happening. What I would be very surprised about is if either Ben's mom or me got a very severe version and we ended up in the hospital. I would not be surprised if we got like equivalent to one of the worst colds we've ever had despite being boosted. So keep that in mind. If you're going to go out and do something, you're taking a great chance that you're going to catch Omicron. Maybe you're okay with that because Omicron is not as severe. But you also need to be honest with yourself and judge your risk of severe disease. And that's something you didn't have to think about as much before. Before it was kind of like, well, are you vaccinated against it or not? Now there's a whole tier system of risk based upon vaccination. And of course, risk factors like age, of course, is huge. That's, but but I'm, I'm even talking about the severity of, of symptoms that w- without even bringing you to the hospital. But if you're unvaccinated, you have the highest chance of getting symptoms at all. Vaccinated, no booster, you have a middle chance and vaccinated with booster, you have a lower but definitely existent chance. And the severity you're likely to get is also tied to that. So you need to decide what is personally acceptable to you. And by acceptable, it means there's a decent chance this will happen. So am I okay with it? 
You may say yes. You may say, I'm going to get this at some point. So I don't care if I get this now or in a month or in two months. I've got to go through it. So I'm just going to live my life normally. And when it gets me, it gets me. Okay. As long as you're pretty convinced you're not going to die from this or get severely damaged from it. Okay. I can understand that. But I disagree with the experts that are saying that it's inevitable we will all get it. Now, I think it's inevitable at some point we will all get some version of this, but Omicron is spreading so quickly that it might either burn itself out or it also might have to mutate to continue spreading and actually become a cold at that point. It might become even less severe. So if I get this down the line when it's just actually a cold or indistinguishable from a cold, then whatever. I don't care if it's technically COVID-19. I care what it's going to do to me. And if it's going to do to me the same thing as a common cold, which I get a few times a year at least, then I don't care. I'm not going to enjoy having it, but I'm not going to live my life avoiding it like I would not live my life avoiding a common cold. So, The point I'm making here is you have to decide for yourself based upon your vaccination status, boosting status, and willingness to risk the associated level of disease you're going to get from catching it, but go into it with the assumption that you are going to catch it. Whereas before, you were going under the assumption that you might catch it, but you also might not. And that's a big difference. Look at at the people who are unvaccinated who've gone two years without catching COVID, and now just got COVID. Okay? So think about that. The people who went all this time with no precautions and still didn't get COVID, and now they have Omicron. Do you think they were just unlucky right now? No. It got them because it's getting so many people now. It's totally different. So just assume you're going to get it if you put yourself out there to get it. Unless you're boosted, then maybe your body can fight it off to where you'll never feel it. Aside from that, assume you're going to get it if you put yourself out there and then decide, am I willing to take these symptoms? If you are, then do what you want. If you're not, then change. That's all I can say. It's, it's, it's up to you. What I will say is that the whole argument of, of you need to get vaccinated for the sake of other people is, is starting to go out the window because it is now starting to be believed, though not yet proven, that vaccinated people can transmit COVID, at least this version of COVID, the Omicron version, it's starting to be believed that vaccinated people can transmit it. So if that's the case, then the whole thing of you're not just doing it for yourself, you're doing it for everybody, that, that goes out the window. So think about more of yourself here and what you're willing to feel. Do not fall into the trap of, I'm healthy, therefore it's not going to be bad. I know personally, people who died of COVID, not Omicron, but the original COVID, who were healthy, but it killed them anyway. I'm not going to be an alarmist like CNN and tell you a story about a 25-year-old healthy person I knew who died of it, because I don't know anyone like that. There's very few like that. Those are severe outliers. But what's not a severe outlier is a 50-year-old who's completely healthy that dies of it. 
or a 55-year-old or a 45-year-old. This does happen, and it's not super unusual. So I'm talking about the previous COVID, not Omicron, and there's a very big distinction. But what I'm saying is that, especially by age, especially if you're 45 or over, COVID may get you pretty badly, even this Omicron version, and you have to be aware that this might happen. And very badly doesn't mean you'll be hospitalized or permanently damaged. You may just have a week or two of being absolutely miserable. And had you gotten the vaccine, that absolutely miserable may just be uncomfortable or semi-miserable. And I'll tell you something about the human brain. And if you think back, you'll probably agree with me. The human brain has a mechanism in it to where it blocks out unpleasant things. So even if you can remember them, it is sometimes hard to picture exactly how you were feeling at the time when they occurred. And this is true of illness. Think about when you were really, really sick and try to picture now how you were feeling. Not just that you were feeling badly, but the actual physical feeling of it. Try to picture that. You're going to have a hard time exactly picturing what you were feeling. Oh, you can describe things. Oh, I had a headache. I was nauseous. But actually picturing it gets to be pretty hard. I know I'm that way. I sometimes have a hard time like putting myself back in situations where my health was not good at the moment, including the mental health things from over three years ago when those were at the worst point. It's it's hard to picture again how those felt. It's sometimes even hard to imagine that was actually me feeling these things, but it was. And this is something that's built into your brain to prevent lasting trauma from these. It it allows you to get past it and forget it and move on. Even if you know what happened, it allows you to continue living your life and not having to go back and dwell on how awful you felt. So for that reason, people can sometimes minimize how sickness actually feels until they get it again. And then when you have it, you go, oh, all I wanted for this to go away. And you're just waiting and waiting for the moment when it goes away and you feel better. And you just can't wait till that comes and you think about how life will be so wonderful when things return to normal physically. And then when they do, you kind of forget about it. You're like, okay, good, I'm normal again. And then you you stop appreciating it for the moment and you kind of forget how you were feeling before. I even had that with those last two vaccine shots. The, The second shot was really crappy. And then I went into the third shot, remembering what had happened, but I was kind of having a hard time picturing what that was like. And then I felt it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember this, but this is even worse. And then it went away. And now I'm sitting here having a hard time remembering exactly how I felt during the second and third shot aftermath, other than remembering it was really crappy and I couldn't wait for it to go away. So don't fall into that trap thinking, oh, I can handle this because it may be really crappy to deal with. But also don't fall into the trap that you think you can avoid this because there's a good chance you won't be able to, especially if you don't have that booster. So if you don't have that booster yet, 
And by the way, the booster takes some time, so you can get it, but then you're probably going to have to wait a few weeks to get the benefit from it, so that may be too late. <laughs> you may be screwed here as far as Omicron if you don't already have the booster as of a few weeks ago. If you don't have that booster, it's a very good chance you're going to get this and feel it. There is. Now, I wasn't saying this before, but now I'm saying it. Not saying to be scared. I'm just saying that's reality. But what's also reality is that it's going to be most likely a less unpleasant experience than Delta would have been. And I will say that a lot of these symptoms that people really hated seem to not be happening much anymore. The loss of smell and taste, the high fever, the permanent lung damage. We're not seeing that much of this from Omicron. Unfortunately, one symptom that seemed to go away from Delta has come back through Omicron, and that is the brain fog. The brain fog is where you have trouble thinking uh, consistently, where you, you start forgetting things or not coming up with the right word to say or having trouble thinking without getting interrupted in some way or getting stuck. And I know how that feels, even though I haven't had COVID yet. Because when I had my very high-level anxiety depression in 2018, I got a brain fog with it as well. I got a lot of other weird stuff. My brain was just broken during that time. Which is funny because if you heard me talk or you watched me write, if you read posts I made around that time, it looks completely normal. Looks like I seem totally like myself. But I wasn't. I was the opposite of myself. But I had a brain fog then. And it was weird. I'd try to come up with a word to say. And I'd be stuck. I couldn't say it. I'd be thinking about something, trying to figure something out or or uh, whatever. It's like I would get stuck in the middle of thinking. Draw blanks. Didn't usually happen to me before. But it was happening every day. I was definitely getting what's known as the brain fog. And then when those symptoms improved, when the anxiety and depression, especially the depression, uh, went away, the depression went away, the anxiety lowered, the brain fog went away. So I don't have it anymore. I haven't had it in uh, three years, more than three years. But I know what it feels like. I wouldn't want that back. I wouldn't want that permanent. Now, it's not clear because Omicron is so new if the brain fog is going to stay permanently, but that has returned as a symptom. So... Colds don't come with brain fog. So it's not a cold yet. But some of the COVID elements are now gone, or mostly gone. The reason there's such high demand for tests is because it's become pretty difficult to tell the difference between Omicron and a very bad cold for a lot of people. So if you have a lot of fatigue, a very stuffy nose, a wet cough, a headache, a sore throat, you have all that and it's very bad but you really don't have anything else maybe a low-grade fever what do you have you got a cold you got covid who knows could be either one i've had colds that are described exactly like that way before covid so (laughs) good luck figuring it out unless you get covid specific symptoms and colds are not gone there's 
a myth that colds have gone away as a result of COVID? No. Flus mostly disappeared in 2020 as a result of COVID. But even the flu is coming back. There's even reports of the flu-rona, which is a combination of flu and COVID, but they've only seen a few cases of it in Israel. Wouldn't worry too much about that one yet. But the flu is back, and colds have been here the whole time. Colds are very hard to avoid because they have so many ways of transmission. I mentioned that before. There's just so many ways you can get it. It could be a cold. Colds are there. Colds are out there. I've caught colds during the COVID pandemic, but I haven't caught COVID. So the next time I catch quote, a cold, it may actually be COVID. Who knows? I'm not going to wait on a three-hour line to find out. And by the way, the rapid tests apparently aren't that active any, a- accurate anyway. So even if you get one, it may show negative and you're actually positive. So there's a lot of false negatives from these rapid tests now. If you really want a serious test, I would recommend going to a testing center and doing what's known as a PCR test. Now, PCR tests don't have to be the one that goes way up your nose that feels like it's uh, going into your brain, that really, really uncomfortable test. They also have PCR tests that are called uh, mid-turbinate tests, which uh, you do yourself and basically rub the thing in your nostrils, in both nostrils, and then put it in a little container, and then they test it. That's not quite as good as the one that goes all the way up your nose, but it's better than the rapid ones. All right, let's throw this guy on here. I think it's a guy. Could be a girl. Call her on the air. Hey, hey, Dan. Really enjoy the show. Thank you. Who's, who's this? Uh, this is Carmine. Carmine, hi. I was, I was wondering what you think about... Uh, People that get tested when they're triple vaccinated and have no symptoms. Do you think that's necessary? No. Absolutely good. not that's, necessary. that's what I think. Too. No, that's a good I, point. I, 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 that, that's, that's a great point. I forgot to bring that up. I'm glad, I'm glad you talked about this here. There has been a push to stop doing this, and I think that's a correct push. And in fact, like the NFL is now doing it this way, where if you're not showing symptoms, you're not getting tested and it's not, you're not going to worry about it. Because the problem is um, the, otherwise there's going to be so much of, a, of a, an attempt to test everybody that, number one, th- there's not enough tests to go around. And number two, that there will be sometimes positives that are not really positives in the way that they're, that anyone's transmitting or is ever going to show symptoms. So the the... Belief is now that if you don't have a reason to believe you have it, you you shouldn't bother to test, especially because the symptoms are milder anyway. So just wait until you see evidence that you have some virus. Test at that point if if it's available. Otherwise, don't worry about it. Yeah, I mean, that's what I think, too. And I I just think it's crazy because we're saying we're running out of tests or running out of tests, but... You know, I'm as Republican as they come, but I don't even think this is Joe Biden's fault. I think it's the fault of people that uh, are panicking over this when they don't even have any symptoms and are vaccinated, and they're running off to get a test. Yeah, they they shouldn't bother with this anymore. And the truth is, if you're getting cold-like symptoms, 
You may want to know, and if it's not that hard to get tested, then go ahead and do it. I wouldn't suggest waiting in a three-hour line for it. It's just not worth it. And can... <laughs> yeah, it's just, I mean, it's so silly to me. And, it, and I think the NFL will hopefully be the model for society. When I saw that, I'm like, wow, okay. What they're doing, I think, will hopefully become what society does in the future for the entire outbreak. Yeah, and, and like the NBA, they're still messing this up. And the, the NBA has become such a joke with, with most of these teams out with COVID quote, quote, COVID protocols, meaning people who don't have any symptoms, but because they were exposed to someone with symptoms that they have to sit out uh, for a certain amount of time. And, and you have these ridiculous games with so many players out and with these players that are signed temporarily to these teams who otherwise should be out of the NBA by now. And the, the games are a joke. And I, I've tried to bet on them and I've gotten killed because like, I can't handicap COVID basketball. So the, the whole thing's a disaster. I even stopped watching because this is so stupid. So they need to stop that too, especially in athletics, because these are guys who are almost all under 40 and and healthy and in great shape. And the, the chance that they're going to get a, a severe version of COVID is very, very low, especially with Omicron. So that that should be the approach everywhere in athletics. But even people who are not super athletes like these NBA players, uh, even the average person, if, if they're not feeling anything that is uh, any symptoms they shouldn't bother. And, and even if you're feeling cold-like symptoms, if you can do it easily, sure. I mean, you might as well know if you can. It's not too much trouble. But as I said earlier, it's it's the same treatment if you know or you don't know. You just uh, stay away from people. And And since these tests have a lot of false negatives, you can't even say, oh, good, well, since I tested negative, no problem. I'll just uh, go out and... Uh, see everybody and and uh, treat it as if it's not COVID because it might be COVID anyway. So you're not going to learn a whole lot from the test if it's negative. If it's positive, you'll, you'll probably learn. If you have cold-like symptoms and it shows positive, then it probably is uh, Omicron. But if you have cold-like symptoms and it shows negative, that doesn't really tell you very much. It could be a false negative or it could be a cold. You don't know. So, and also with a cold, you know, it's not as bad as, as COVID, but you, you don't want to necessarily give a cold to everybody anyway. So it's even before COVID, if you had a cold, especially in the early stages of it, it, it was advisable to stay away from people to just not be a dick and give it to them. Right. Sounds good. I really appreciate the show, Adros. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you for calling. Good night. No problem. It's actually not good night anymore. It doesn't feel like this show is as long as it's been because it started earlier than usual. But this this has been a long show. Anyway, I'm done. I don't know if we're going to talk again about Omicron next week. I have a feeling it's going to be kind of more of the same, just like a ton of cases. I think the only significant thing we may see, and maybe even by next week, is a big decline in deaths. And if we see that, then it's it's really time to change. I can't emphasize that enough. I don't know if we will, especially with Biden and the Democrats in power, but we should. If we see that this is hardly killing anyone or at least killing to a much uh, lesser degree than the flu, even something uh, roughly equivalent to the flu. You can say it's worse because it's a lot more contagious than the flu. Still, if it's killing at around the same rate, or especially if it's a lot less than the flu, then you've got to say, okay, we have to relax the restrictions big time. And we have to go back to normal life and just accept people are going to get this 
and that it's not going to kill many people and that's done. We're not there yet. You know, may, maybe the death numbers will come in and we'll see that Omicron's still killing a lot of people. And especially people who are vulnerable will need to watch out. I see it very differently, though, for myself personally, than like in 2020. In 2020 and the beginning of 21, before I was vaccinated, this is obviously before Delta, before Omicron, but from regular COVID, before I was vaccinated, I had the real belief that I was not super unlikely to die from it. I was unlikely. The odds were very much on my side to live through it. The odds were not as much on my side to escape it with no permanent damage, like lung damage. But it wasn't off the table, the belief that I could die from it. And that was scary, that I could just get it and within weeks be dead. I'm old enough to where that could happen back then with no vaccine. Once I got vaccinated, I saw it very differently. And today, having been boosted two and a half months ago, and with Omicron being less severe, maybe much less severe. I'm no longer thinking if I get Omicron, I've got to worry about death. Where if I caught COVID back in January 2021, just a year ago, I would have worried about death. I would have said, wow, I I hope I'm not one of the unlucky ones. I have to just sit here and pray. If I got it now, I wouldn't have to sit here and pray that I was not going to die. I would more think, I just hope this doesn't become really uncomfortable. That's what I would be thinking. Very different thought process and a different level of fear of it. And that's why I'm doing more, but at the same time, I realize how much more contagious it is, so I I don't want to get it at this point. So I'm still trying to stay away from that. But I might get it anyway. So I think you guys have an idea of what to expect from this, from what we can see so far. And if the death rates drop, we'll have another segment about this sh- on this show about that. I'll be watching. You can watch on worldometers.info that's worldometers.info you've probably been there by now and make sure to always click on yesterday and then two days ago don't just look at now because now is often just showing the cases reported in the last few hours and yesterday sometimes has lag from the weekend so yesterday and two days ago are good to look at and then also you need to realize when these were so if if yesterday and two days ago are monday tuesday then the cases are going to be artificially high if yesterday and two days ago are friday saturday or saturday sunday then they're going to be artificially low but you know it's, it's a rough indication of what's going on and if those deaths fall 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 then provided this doesn't mutate to be more serious again which i don't think it will then we may be headed towards the end of this whole thing. And wouldn't that be nice? And then the question will be, can the panic stop? Can the government stop overreacting? And can a lot of these protocols get undone? I hope so. Well, guess what's going to be undone? This broadcast. It's not going to be deleted. It'll be in the archives later today when I have a chance to edit it. I'm not going to go edit it now after this long show. I've had enough for the moment. But later on today, I will edit it and slap it up in the archives, as I always do. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I haven't looked who's won the free roll, but someone is going to walk away with uh, 
it's $350. They've already won. It's, uh, the walking away part will be when I send it to them, which I'll try to do uh, relatively soon. Thank you to Kelwatt for appearing on the show and for donating $350. Thank you to the other donors who gave various sums of money, ranging from $5 up to 104 Thank you to Kelwatt for appearing here. Thank you, Trederuski, for coming on for the time we had him. And we have an anniversary coming up. Today is January 2nd, 2022, as I record this. On March 2nd, exactly two months from now, 10 years of Poker Fraud Alert. Whatever day of the week that is, we're going to have a broadcast on that day, March 2nd, 2022. You can even check the date of the domain registration at PokerFraudAlert.com. You can see it. You can also see a post I made on Poker Fraud Alert on March 2nd, 2022. Ten years of the site. Maybe we'll have another big free roll in honor of that. Hopefully we don't have to do another memorial free roll for a while. And if you found this show recently, I'm happy to have you here. And if you have been around for a long time, I'm happy to still have you around. So that is all. I'll be back next week. Shalom. Shalom.